This is no, nah, I'm just kidding. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to No Budget Nightmares. This is Mo. He's a bad film hating while I skating all the while, masturbating. That's, That's Mo Pawn. Yeah. yeah. And with me, as always, is the one and only Doug Tilly. He's bow, Doug bow, Tilly, bow, bow, number bow, one super bow, guy. Bow, bow, bow. Mo, how accomplished do you feel right now? <laughs> what the fact that I could uh, that we have like an established intro and that I can say it most of the time. You, you get it about eighty five percent of the time, which honestly isn't so bad, especially <laughs> considering bad. how exhausted you are during most of the times when we record. Just nonstop. Like right now, I'm tired as shit, but I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna try to keep the energy level up and see uh, see how well I can maintain. <laughs> Mo, we've been averaging one episode a month lately. <laughs> <laughs> Mo. This is our 100th episode of No Budget Nightmares, the podcast. Holy shit. It, uh, what a long, difficult uh, trip it's been <laughs> to get what here. A, what a long, strange trip it's been. I mean, it's almost exactly six years, Mo, since our first episode of the podcast. Isn't that unbelievable? Can you remember what wild. you were doing six years ago? Uh, six years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was two years divorced, yep. so uh, as uh Probably in some form of crippling depression. Yes, uh, of course. Wait, times haven't changed. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I was, I was obviously still back up in Connecticut, not, not down here. Uh, I was working at. Uh, no, I was not working at a job. Okay, oh, you got to stop was... talking about your past, Mo. It's bumming me out a little bit. But I know I'm depressing. But you I... want me to start over? You want me to do that over again? No, not at all. Because I want to oh, tell okay. you, Mo. A great man once said, time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Into the future. That's right. So I thought we'd start this 100th episode, Mo, because this is an episode full of surprises and things being done a little bit differently than normal. I thought we'd start with uh, a little clip from our very first episode of No Budget Nightmares. Oh, yes, please. Let's, Let's see what, what's, how far we've come. If we, maybe we haven't come that far. I don't know. Let's have a little listen and find out. Welcome, welcome, welcome oh my God. <laughs> to the Daily Grindhouse Presents No Budget Nightmares. Uh, welcome to the Bastard Roundtable. Oh, today, remember the bastards? It's me and my well, fellow I bastard, remember... Doug. <laughs> Say hi, Doug. This is me. Hello, everyone. It's me, Doug, also known as Sweetback over at Daily Grindhouse. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, this is going to be a fun This, this, this is going to be a fun one. I can tell. All right. Uh, I can tell all right. Okay, I'll, I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. All right. All right, so <laughs> so a couple of things that I mean I I know we've touched on it before, but but you you brought this up to me right before we started recording that I don't even say your last name. That's true. And of course, I hit Doug with the real is it with the uh, factuality that <laughs> that's a word I just made up. It's a fact, <laughs> it's a fact and an actuality that 
I did not know his last name because we started talking for the very first time about five minutes before we hit That's record true. on that episode. Now, let's talk real quick about the uh, the setup that we had for recording our yes, episode. Absolutely. Okay, because this is the best. I used to record on one of those little, super shitty tabletop desk mics. Um, you know, the, just the worst of the worst. I think it was like ten dollars, and uh, as you can tell by listening to that, how fucking terrible it was. <laughs> and we we recorded all the audio at the same exact time by, and this is the genius part, yeah. putting one of the computer speakers next to the microphone. So all of Doug's audio was coming through the, the computer speaker and, you know, and I was sitting in front of the microphone. It was the worst setup ever. It was the, like seriously just horribly unprofessional and I kind of loved it. Yeah. But, I mean, it was appropriate you know, for the kind of show we were doing, certainly. But I will say that really was. there's a lot of podcasts that I'll get into and then I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to go back to the early episodes and listen to them. And you notice yeah. a distinct like sound quality. Well, the the difference in our show is a little more substantial than in some. Yeah. Mo, how did you do sound clips back then? Uh, Well, yeah, that was a <laughs> fucking slog. <laughs> Jesus. I had to rip the audio for every movie that we were doing. Then I had to go back into the movie. I, I like when we would do the when we would do the movies back then. Like instead of like now, where we're smart and keep notes of time codes for when <laughs> shit happens. Um, I would just rewatch the movie, you know, and th- so I'd rewatch the movie in one screen. When I would come to an audio clip that I wanted to grab, I'd go into the audio program, find it on that audio file, and cut that chunk out. Right. And make little MP3 files or, you know, WAV files for every single audio clip that we were using. And I would do this, like, in real time. So, like, I'd be editing the episode and I'd be like, no, no, I want to put that audio clip right there. So I'd watch the movie until I found that audio clip, uh, go into the audio program, cut it out, and then slip it into into the... I was using, probably using Audacity at the time. Right, right. And it's interesting because back then you used to be the one who edits the, the, the podcast. I edit yeah. it now. And I do a very similar thing, except I don't do it in real time. I send you the audio clips that we're going to use, and then I go back into the movie, and I edit out those clips individually and save them as MP3 files. But, of course, now we're able to play them so we can both hear them at the same time. Right, right. Yeah, we already know what audio – because that was the thing. Back then, we didn't know which audio clips we were going to use. Exactly. Yeah, we were not prepared. And it's funny because we were somehow a lot more prolific back then. When we've actually yeah. streamlined the process significantly. But that's the thing. In the last six years, our lives have gotten a lot more busy as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, Mo, that takes us back to what this is, which is the 100th episode, the the the, the centennial No Budget Nightmares episode. And uh, anyone who's coming into this episode, they probably don't really know what to expect, except that there's going to be some surprises. And let's start with the very first surprise, Mo. That little clip I just played of our very first episode, uh, that episode is only 45 minutes long, and it covers a movie that's kind of near and dear to our hearts. Um, and for long-time listeners, they'll, they'll know that we've referred back to this movie again and again and again. What is that movie, Mo? Oh, it's a little movie called uh, Hip Hop Locos. 2001's Hip Hop Locos, the very first film ever featured on No Budget 
nightmares. So we thought it would be apropos <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to finally give Lorenzo Munoz Jr. his due and to devote a full episode of No Budget Nightmares to Hip Hop Locos. And when I say a full episode, I mean parts of the episode that then we're going to fill in with surprises. Yes, yes. Special, super secret surprises that nobody can possibly predict what they're going to be. In fact, let's tell <laughs> let's tell them right now, Mo, that uh, that these surprises come in the form of interviews. They do. They do. Mo and I did four super secret interviews on the sly. Uh, while well, you did, you did four. I did three. Mo did three. Now the reason for that, and, and we referred to this in the most <laughs> recent episode, is because Mo was, of course, being battered and bruised by a big hurricane that almost destroyed him and his everything that you hold dear. Isn't that right, Mo? It didn't at all. Actually, um, it we lost power. Yeah. That was it. Uh, if, I remember you used the power of prayer and you you managed to <laughs> hold it off. I I prayed I prayed to to, uh, to Ted Cruz uh-huh. uh, to to fix my electricity and much like standard Republican fare, it took him a week to get back to yeah. me. Uh, but you know he he got it back on. But I, that's it. It all worked out eventually. You're back, but that means that one of the interviews uh, was only between myself and the participant. But the other three right. are Mo. And me, the 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 the, the dynamic duo, <laughs> the the pair you love to hate, that we're, yeah. we're the best. Anyway, so we uh, we've interviewed a uh, in some in some combination we've interviewed four different people. We're not going to tell you who they are until we get to that portion of the episode. We're going to sprinkle it in, and then after we're finished talking about hip hop locos, Mo and I are going to do a little uh, nostalgia, a little reminiscing when we rank our ten favorite. No Budget Nightmares episodes. And I've also put together, Mo, a list of our five least favorite movies covered on No Budget Nightmares. Right. So, listeners, right, you have to listen to the whole episode start to finish. This thing is going to be a monster. Some kind of monster. It's like that Metallica documentary, Mo. Uh, yeah. With a less, a lot less therapy. Though we might need therapy, Mo, after 100 episodes of No Budget Nightmares, right? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm actually on the phone with my uh, doctor at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, scheduling an appointment because of this episode. Well, I know him, Mo. Isn't he Dr. Feelgood? No, he's Dr. Nosmo King. Oh. <laughs> Mo, <laughs> Hip Hop Locos from the year 2001. Yes. Maybe we should just jump... Right into it. It is our hundredth episode. Just, yeah. <laughs> Are you not prepared to talk about hip hop? So, no, I'm so fucking tired. All right, I, we're gonna like, get your like, energy up. We start. We started this episode and like I did that intro and now I have just crashed and it's hilarious. It's hilarious because it's like, of course, it only makes sense that on our hundredth episode that I would just die right at the beginning like i am so like i'm the ultimate warrior after he gets to the ring i am just gassed yeah yeah that's right you're gassed out <laughs> most energy reserves have been exhausted but that's okay yeah you, right you're that's gonna all right. it's all we need to do is inject you with some sweet steroids in the form of my energy and you're gonna match it right and then we're gonna be able to get all the way through this three or four hours or however long this recording session <laughs> i mean just think i mean Thank your lucky stars, Mo, that we've already pre-recorded a good chunk of this episode. Yeah, thank yeah, thank. <laughs> and also, thank goodness. And also, Hip Hop Locos. It may be a poor film, and I'm not saying that it is, because we'll we'll get to that. It may be a poor film, but it is a short, poor film. 
Thank goodness. Hip-hop locals from the year 2001, Panic Pictures presents a film by Lorenzo Munoz Jr., Hip-Hop Locos. Now, Mo, when was the last time you watched Hip-Hop Locos? Oh, that would be the day we uh, recorded the episode, or the day I edited the episode, Mm -hmm. uh, six years ago. So it's been six years since you saw Hip-Hop Locos, but you did know what to expect going in this time. Now, Lorenzo Munoz Jr., the director of Hip-Hop Locos, I believe, and I believe it's been proven, uh, that he is also Uno Dos, the lead, Uno Dos. The lead loco <laughs> in hip-hop loco. <laughs> he's, in the credits, he's loco number one. He's loco number one. Now, that's the thing. We have two locos in hip-hop locos. One is Uno Dos, which I believe means one, two. Isn't that correct, Mo? <laughs> <laughs> let, huh, let me let me uh, let me search my memory banks, uh, my many many years of Spanish lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yes, it does. In fact, his yama es uno dos, which is one two. <laughs> yeah, his yama. <laughs> and the uh, the other loco is J ten. So it's uno dos J ten, and they are our hip hop locos. I didn't. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> just just cut that part. Yes, yes, that's yeah. We're gonna keep you awake, Mo. I don't give a shit if you keep passing out. The movie starts with some text on the screen, Mo, and I'm sure you've written it down so you can uh, orate it to our listeners. On the night of two twenty oh one, two Latino rappers decided to break into the hip hop industry. They planned to rob drug dealers, sell the cocaine, and use the money to record a hip hop album. You are about to witness what occurred that evening. Now, we uh, we rag on the quality of these intro titles we see in micro-budget movies sometimes, but I will give this movie credit. That is exactly what happens in this movie. <laughs> that is entire Like, that could be the IMDb plot summary. It pretty much covers everything we're about to see. And I hope you liked it, because you're going to hear that about six more times. Well, here's the thing about hip-hop locos. Most of the running time involves... Uh, Uno Dos and J10, uh, and they just have a camera very close to their faces, or I should say close to Uno Dos's face with J10 in the background. And there's a lot of what I would refer to as poorly improvised dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> but you know how when they do a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm, where it's sort of semi-improvised, everyone has a plot outline and a general sense of where it's supposed to go, but the actual dialogue is improvised. That's kind of like what happens in Hip Hop Locos. They know what right. they're doing to get from one scene to the next. However, uh, 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 uh-huh. let's, n- let's, let's not give them that much credit in saying that they know what they're doing. All right. <laughs> they, they know what they're supposed to generally be go. saying. Right. But because they have nothing else but g- getting from one spot to the next, they just keep repeating the same exposition again and again and again. Yeah, so you know, you know, in those horror movies where the the young kids who have to battle the monster go and visit the old man who tells them exactly what they need to know. Imagine that. Mo, Mo that guy was in the Holocaust. Okay, oh. <laughs> he served in pie. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert for the Monster Squad. As <laughs> yeah, say, Wolfman's got an art. Um, yeah, like so. Imagine that scene done really poorly, just. Six times back to back with one very short, for lack of a better term, action scene Mm -hmm. in between. That's the entire movie. So if you want to get a sense of what some of that dialogue sounds like, here's a little clip. uh, Really the first bit of dialogue in the entire movie. So you'll get a real sense of how it's supposed to come together. 
Hey, homes, it's not for Latinos, homes, it's not for Mexicans, homes, you know what I'm saying, eh? You ain't got that many motherfucking Mexicans in this motherfucking rap game, homes. Nah, no true motherfucking Mexicans, homes, really holding the shit down for the fucking Raza, letting these motherfuckers know what's up with the body and shit, homes, how the fuck we live and shit, you know what I'm saying, homes? How the fuck it is on our side of the fucking hood. Okay, I'm just going to cut it off right there. Now, imagine that for about 70 minutes straight, and you have yeah. Hip Hop Locos from 2001. Right. The the only time the only time they stop doing that is to jack a homie. Yeah. And they want to sling some coca or to sling some coca mm-hmm. or to smoke some drogas. Yeah, right. They they'll smoke a fat blunt, right? right. With their with their homies. <laughs> Actually, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is the scene where they're rolling the blunt because yeah. it's one of the worst rolled blunts I've ever seen in my life, Mo, and I love it. One thing that has happened to me in the last six years is that I have an increased awareness and um, aptitude for marijuana, right? Mm. So um, I have a little bit more familiarity with how that whole thing works. I will say, and correct me if I'm wrong, and we'll get to it in just a bit, it's some weird looking weed that they're rolling yeah. into that joint. Yes, it, yes it is. It's fucking weird. Like maybe it's just because I don't have enough awareness. I mean, look, I'm a funny guy, but I'm no Doug Benson. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> so if my familiarity is kind of limited, so I mean, it just looks it looks fucking weird. That's all I'm putting out there. And sometimes when watching the movie, I get the impression that they want to seem hard, right? So they're saying all this shit, but actually that. Um, oh boy, I don't want to get in any trouble here. But that Uno Dos and J10 are actually a couple of pussies. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just saying that's how it comes out Like guys pretending to be hard As opposed to Then again You know they're the ones Jacking that coca And and slinging it <laughs> Yeah You know They're they're choking essays And, and dropping beats And uh, other slang terms Yeah I'm absolutely And let's, let's make sure Let's mean. make something very clear Mo We are not uh, dissing uh, Hip hop music Certainly not I think no. both Mo and I Both love hip hop Yeah I was gonna say I have a huge affinity For hip hop I I'm a big fan, yes. You're a hip-hop head, I hear. <laughs> I am a hip-hop head, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but also, we are not... I'm not even uh, sure what that means, but we're, okay. We're not dissing Latinos or Latino no, culture. Um, absolutely not. And we know that there are some real locos out there that, uh, hey, you got you to gotta be careful with those locos. Um, but <laughs> but there's a, a poor quality to what's happening here. And it starts with that very first scene, which is just two people standing in the dark talking at a camera. And that right. is a, a lot of what we're going to see. Now, sometimes they put in video effects. Lorenzo uh, puts in some video effects, like the screen will flip around or the screen will go inverse color or go in black and white. Uh, right. And sometimes there's some audio effects where instead of, you know, I have this kind of rich baritone. Mo. <laughs> sure. Well, imagine if instead of it being my normal voice, it went really slow. It went, I was like, hey, Mo. How are you? Yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you turn into, uh, you know, Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel. That's I am Groot. That sort of thing, right? Right. That, that'll age right. well, I'm sure. <laughs> me, me saying that. Anyway, um, how do you turn your back on your family, Dom? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, so yeah, so sometimes the audio effects they kick in for no particular reason. It's just to add interest. It's like if Oliver Stone directed uh, a movie by a mentally challenged Latino gentleman. 
I'm not arguing with you. I, I think that's a pretty apt summation. Because there's a lot of effects, there's a lot of filters, uh, but uh, the thing that really needed to be filtered was everything being said and everything being shown, because it's not yeah. very good is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. So then the video goes black and white, and our hip-hop locos say that tonight they're going to, ja- to, to, they're going to jack some bangers, right? They're going to jack the fool with the equipment. Now they want, <laughs> despite the fact that they are apparently very interested in hip-hop, um, the only thing that we see from them in regards to hip hop is some poor freestyling and them not actually using any instruments because they don't have this equipment. They need audio equipment, Mo. Right. So they need to jack that shit. They need something with some mad beats. So let's uh, let's explain what the what the plot of this movie is going to entail. They're Did going. I not just do that. No, no. Let's like <laughs> actually the order in which it occurs because there's a okay. lot of repetition that's going to happen. Yes. They're going to meet with. Uh, well, first they're going to steal a car. So they're going to kill someone and steal the car. Then they're going to go to uh, a guy to buy some cocaine. They're going to kill him and steal that cocaine. Right? Mm -hmm. Then they're going to meet another guy and uh, also steal his cocaine. (laughs) Then they're going to try to meet a guy, but that guy isn't there. (laughs) Then they're going to meet a final guy who has the equipment, uh, but that guy realizes what their plan is that they're going to try to jump him and then it becomes a shootout and then everyone dies hip-hop locos from 2001 good night folks it's all in the game yo (laughs) so the first thing they need to do is steal a car (laughs) so this is done from the perspective okay it's a side view of the car it's it's like grainy um it's like grainy footage from like a security camera almost. Yeah, I think that's what they're intending it to be, security footage. So but yeah, you basically you basically just get a man meandering around. Now, keep in mind, the lighting in this entire film is so piss poor yes. that you never really know who is doing what or who is where, except for some oddly bright scenes where yes. they take all the filters off. This isn't one of those. This is full on grain uh, grain video, black and white, you know, uh, shit footage uh, that they decided to use anyway. Man's walking around a car. He jumps another guy. Yeah. So, and by the way, there's no audio. I mean, th- there's some like music playing in the background, but you can't hear what's going on between these characters. So right, it's right. basically just playing out in a silent black and white image, a single shot of this guy just kind of walking around. I mean, and, and this goes on for minutes. And then another guy jacks him, and then he uh, takes the car and runs off. Yep. We don't even really see what happens to the guy in order to uh, for him to get killed. That's actually explained because the car drives off, and uh, we discover that this was J-10 who, who jacked the guy. And he picks up Uno Doz, and he explains that he uh, killed the guy with a screwdriver to the chest. Did you notice in this film... And I know we mentioned this in episode one, but did Mm -hmm. you notice this time around again how every time they talk about killing somebody or any act of killing or whatever is strangely homoerotic? I mean, look, I don't want to say that they see... I'm not saying... I'm not making any claims. I'm just saying maybe it's something wrong in my brain. They get... I will say that there's a part in this movie where they go through a, like a gym bag (laughs) and and they caress a sack of cocaine in it. And at first one of them tells uh, the other to put the cocaine at the bottom of the bag. 
and then they they caress each item in the bag, and then they take out the cocaine again, and then put it at the top of the bag. And I will say, while watching it, I was like, this must be like the weirdest fetish video I'm possibly. It's, <laughs> it's about people who get off on watching things be put in and taken out of gym bags. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there is a sexual element to it. They these guys love to kill. They have they have a thirst. But I'll tell you, Mo, if you're loco, of course you're gonna love to kill. Right, that's that's, that's the whole point of being loco. That's true. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad we've come to some agreement on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I know it's been it's been it's been a heated debate for six years now. <laughs> I'm glad we can come to an agreement. So the the J10 he murdered this dude, jacked his car, picked up Uno Dos, and they're driving around. He said that that fool dropped like a motherfucker. Essay, and then it cuts to <clears throat> color from black and white to color, uh, even though it's still complete darkness. And right. we have Uno Dos looking at the camera, and he's smoking the blunt. Now, Mo, Uno Dos has a, a very prominent soul patch. Yes. He reminds me of one of my favorite musicians, Mo. Do you know who that is? <sighs> who? Superstar al- alternative musician Chris Gaines. <laughs> who also sported a very <laughs> prominent soul patch. <laughs> uh, I, I can't wait to see how many of your personal loves you fit into this episode well, I just like it It did warm me a little to, to think about Chris Gaines for just a little bit while looking mm-hmm. at my good friend Uno Dos um, right 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 <laughs> so he just stands there staring at the camera for a bit while music plays and we discover that this what we're looking at this darkness it's actually the inside of a car it's shooting through the front windshield and um, this is going to lead, by the way, to the most infamous scene in all of Hip Hop Locos. Uh, longtime listeners of the show will know that we've referred to this one many a time. Many times. So this is a friend of Uno Dos who gets in the car, gets into the passenger seat. They have a little back and forth. Uh, the friend, he, uh, he talks about his girlfriend. He has a girl at home. Uh, she's tripping, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they have a little back and forth about bitches who be trifling and whatnot. <laughs> But you can only kind of see half of their faces because that's the only thing that's lit. I mean, let's face it. This is an unwatchable movie. You cannot see what the fuck is going on. It yeah, might as well a, be a, be an audio play for as much as you can see. Yeah, on a technical level, this movie just it fails on every on every level technically. It's it's unfucking watchable. So Unodo says that he wants to gather bank and sling shit. <laughs> To come up with some bank to buy some equipment to get shit jump started. Now that that's a little difficult to parse there, but I think we understand what he's up to. So the guy is going to give him a uh, half a key of co- coca, cocaine, mo. Right, cocaineum, as uh, our friend Arnold likes to say. <laughs> cocaineum. Um, and and the friend asks him, "Why do you need so much cocaine this time?" And Uno does. He's very smart. He's playing it cool. He goes, "Well, you can't make money with little bags. He can drop this off for a couple of extra bills." Mo. Yes. How much does he want to sell this cocaine for, Mo? Uh, what did he say? Like, like it's like 20-something thousand. 23,500. 23,500. Yeah. And this makes Uno Dos very upset. He does not want to pay 23,500. It's odd that he gets so upset. It doesn't seem like it's necessary for this part of the plan. Because just as he is getting upset, what happens, Mo? Uh... J10, the the, the locoist of the hip hop locos. He is the locoist of the locos. Mm-hmm. Um, he 
wraps a cord around this other fine gentleman's neck. Yes. And uh, proceeds to, uh, how do they say, choke him. He proceeds to choke him with this cord. I, I think it's like a garrot. Isn't that what they call it, Mo, when you put a little cord? <laughs> garrot, yes. He's, a, yes, he's garroting him, except uh, my understanding is that you can garrot someone fairly quickly. This takes this amount of time. Let's have a little listen. Choke that motherfucker, Holmes. Oh, well. Come on, Holmes, get that motherfucker right there. All right. Choke that motherfucker, Holmes. Let me paint Holmes. a picture of what's happening here. Choke He's that choking motherfucker that motherfucker, right Holmes. <laughs> let, let me I do I do sense a little bit of him getting him as well. Choke that motherfucker, Holmes. Yep, nope, there's just there's some choking. Get him, Holmes! Yeah, yeah, get him, Holmes, get him! Yeah. Uh, By the way, come on, that's the, the guy who's getting choked manages to squeak out a fuck you. Choke that motherfucker, Look, J ten is loco. Get him, Holmes! But he's very, very bad at choking people. Get that motherfucker. I mean, this is in real time, okay? This is what's happening in the movie. All right, I think. Choke his ass. No, nope, okay, it's still going. Choke that motherfucker. Yeah, motherfucker. Coming up like this and shit, bitch. You know what I'm saying? I mean, in a better movie, Mo, I'd almost say that they're trying to get across, you know, just not only A, how difficult it is to actually murder someone, but it's still going. But also the fact that. Um, you know, death is is something that we should take very seriously, right? I mean, this isn't something we should be applauding or thinking it's fun. You know, this is a, a tragic, brutal act that we're watching in front, or, or at least we would be watching if you could see what the fuck was going on in the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's either that, you know, but no, it's got to be that because why would they, they wouldn't do something like I don't know, extend the scene out for for. Padding. What? I mean, that what would the purpose that, be, Mo? That, yeah, that sequence goes on for a full two minutes. Now, I don't mean just the sequence of like getting in the car and all that. Just the choking. Just the choking is a full two minutes, and then yeah. uh, it does kind of go on like the death part of it for another thirty seconds. On top of that, it is right. Fucking ludicrous. <laughs> Yeah, it yeah, I mean actually I was I really looked forward uh I was really happy I should say to revisit this particular scene since it's one we've talked about so many times. Um just to remind myself how ridiculously long this scene is and we, and we mentioned this the last time how much at certain moments if you're listening to it rightly it sounds like gay sex. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's all I'm right. saying. Well, I mean it's certainly gay sex that involves choking that motherfucker Holmes. Right, exactly. <laughs> so um, they toss the corpse out of the car And at, at some point, by the way, the screen goes completely black Just for a few seconds Which is not something, like, there's no artistic intent here It's just they don't have any light So it's complete black Right, right, right The Locos then celebrate their victory Because uh, they're very happy to have all of that coca, Mo uh, And as J10 likes to say He said, you scored mad, eh? <laughs> <laughs> So they drive around, and we get a lot of POV shots of the car driving around. And if you enjoy POV shots of a car driving around, you'll love Hip Hop Locos because there is a lot of it. Sometimes with the Locos speaking to each other, often with nothing. Sometimes just a little bit of music playing. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of scenes where one Loco is asking the other what the address is of the place that they have to go. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes the person answers, and then a couple of seconds later, the guy will ask him for the address again. Right. Um, maybe that. Maybe. Well, look, they're loco, right? I mean, you can't expect yeah. someone who's loco to have a you know a reasonable memory. 
Well, other other features of uh, these car rides include uh, making full length phone calls that you can only hear one side of, um, and adding every minutia detail, every little thing that like a normal quote unquote conversation would have. Mm-hmm. You know, like like asking somebody, "Oh, well, how are you?" You know, to an extent, and sitting there and listening to their response. But you're only just watching somebody holding a phone up to their ear. Right. You know, it's little details like that that really make this movie stand head and shoulders above normal bad movies. You know, Mo, sometimes I think of myself, I've, I've referenced this on, uh, on previous episodes, I like to keep up the chatter when it comes to No Budget Nightmares, right? Like, right. I like to fill in empty spaces uh, with my voice because this is an audio medium. We want to make sure people who are listening that there isn't these long pauses. Or if there are long pauses, they'll end with you going, yup, or something along yep. those lines. But in this movie, it feels like both locos are very dedicated to never having any quiet at all because they just need to talk constantly, even if they're just repeating the thing that they just said again and again and again. So at this point in the movie, we are approaching uh, the later steps of the series of things that happens over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's what we call the planning stage, where they say what they're going to do. Right. Okay, that was the beginning where they talk about how they're going to go jack a car and, and, and then go and get some some coke and kill uh, that about, guy. Mo, mo, mo. Coca. What? They need coca. to sling some coca, so that's what they need. They need to have. slang some coca, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so they got the car, uh, they, uh, spoke with the gentleman, uh, murdered said gentleman, stole his coca, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and are now going off to do what they do after, sometimes before, but mostly after every violent encounter in the film, and that is to do drugs. Yeah, so that's, you know, this is another yeah. interesting aspect of this, by the way, which is that they're going to do all the shit that they need to do in one night. So they're going to get a bunch of cocaine, they're going to get some weed, they're going to get the equipment, and then they're going to do the process of actually selling all of that and recording the music, right? But the plan is they need to get, like, their capital together, right? So, I mean, they really have right. thought this through to do all this murder in just one night. Uh, so they want to, in this case, Mo. Do drugs. They want to smoke blunts. But in order to do that, you need to get blunts to smoke. Isn't that correct? That is correct. So we get an image, a kind of reverse reverse black and white image of one of the locos smoking a blunt. And as he does that, the audio goes like super deep and slow. And then we see him talk to a guy who has a bag of weed that he's trying to sell him. Yes. A lot of weed, I would say. It's a f- pretty packed bag of weed. It's a fairly, yeah, it's a it's a fairly significant amount of weed. Now, Mo, back in 2001 when uh, Hip Hop Locos was being made, I'm sure you were smoking a lot of weed. Um, no. No. Well, anyway, a bag of this size, how much do you think it would cost? By today's standards? Well, let's say today's I, I mean, I, standards. I yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how much that in 2001 would have cost... Today's standards, that bag, I mean, you're talking a couple of hundred. A couple of hundred, right? Well, this guy tries to sell it to Uno Dos for $70. $70. Which I thought... Which is a great deal. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But I'll tell you who unless, doesn't think... Unless it's the scummiest of scummy skunkweed, then it's a great deal. No, this is the good shit, essay. So, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, Uno Dos 
he does not think it's a good deal at all. He's not happy at all. By the way, th- there is dialogue in this scene, but it's hard to hear because there's a loud drum beat going on in the background. <laughs> uh, and again, Unodos didn't need to be upset about it because he then attacks the drug dealer, the the guy who was trying to sell me weed, and he uh, he uses his weapon of choice, also J Tan's weapon of choice, the deadly screwdriver, and he murders this guy with it. Yeah, I. That's which is crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I get it. It, it was sorry, Mo. Did you say it was crazy? Don't you mean it is oh, loco? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it's loco. Uh, no, I mean, like they have a gun. They do have a gun. We do see a gun a little bit later. But hey, Mo, a gun can be traced. You know what? You can't trace screwdriver. <laughs> it's the perfect weapon when you think about it. Either that or an icicle frozen into the shape of a screwdriver. <laughs> an untraceable weapon. <laughs> the perfect crime. Mm-hmm. That's what they should add. <laughs> By the way, if, if I was going to do a remake of Hip Hop Locos, they would definitely use an icicle uh, screwdriver. So <laughs> that the, after they murder this guy, we cut back to the close-up faces of our two heroes. And they are smoking a... Uh, um, well, J10 says it's a fatty Holmes. <laughs> They're smoking a big fatty mo. Fatty boom batty. So they just smoke these joints while the screen spins around to give us the audience the feeling of the the sort of disorientation that you sometimes get from smoking marijuana. And this just goes on forever. I mean, it really does just keep going and going and going. It's nonstop. It does culminate in J10 letting out this exclamation. This is a fucking good herb he took from his away. <laughs> That's J10 with a slowed down voice because he's so high, talking about how it's some good herb that you jacked from that. I think he says Vato, but I'm not 100% sure. Hey. So, Mo, hey. this is where we are in the story. I feel like our hip hop locos, they're well on their way to uh, finding success in the hip-hop world. But we are also well on our way into our 100th episode of No Budget Nightmares. Huzzah. Huzzah. So we're going to take a quick break. We don't usually take break. That is, by the way, one of the defining things about our show, Mo. We don't take breaks. <laughs> no. Nope. Even though our shows sometimes run for two-plus hours, we just fucking just keep talking. And Mo just gets tired and more tired. And he just... Yeah. And he, he you know, he's blowing those plumes out. But he... It's just the way we do things. We we just want to put it all out there. We lay it out on the stage. We're a little loco ourselves, you know. You we could be uh, not hip hop locos, maybe podcast locos. What do you think, Mo? I'm not gonna start calling us that. Well, no, no but... I think we are going to do that for sure. In fact, <laughs> rest in peace, no budget nightmares. This is now the podcast podcast locos. locos. <laughs> Mo, what would your podcast loco name be? Uh well I mean I'll take a uh I'll take I'll take a a a page out of the Uno Dos book mm-hmm. and uh maybe I'll call myself Cuatro Cinco. Cuatro Cinco. That's great. I like the numbers. Uh yeah. what what would be a good I don't I don't think about Sp- I don't feel a connection with the Spanish language even though I did take it in university, Mo. Maybe I should do French since uh I live in a bilingual country. Oh, that's perfect. Your name could be Merit. Merit. Tabernacle, Mayor Tabernacle, that's me. <laughs> Mo, we've taken a little break from Hip Hop Locos because we need to introduce our first special secret interview on this special secret episode of No Budget yes. Nightmares. Now, this one is really interesting. 
I, yeah, this is this is all you because I got no, I got nothing on this one. This is the one. This is the interview that we have asked people to guess who we might be interviewing and saying that there's no possible way that they could guess. Um, and we we did you know make a few disclaimers that it wasn't going to be people who have connections to the show in a negative way like Joe Castro and 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 a few others. However, this is a person. That had what I would refer to as a, uh, a a negative connection with the show, because we covered one of his films, and I think it's safe to say that neither of us liked it very much, Mo. That's absolutely correct. The film that we're referring to is Women's Studies. Now, uh, for anyone who's heard our, bet you didn't see that one coming. <laughs> for anyone who's heard our Women's Studies interview. We fucking tear into that movie. I mean, we, we really, really do. We really do. Yeah. Uh, to the point where uh, we, at some point, I think not only did we accuse the director of being a misogynist, but we also, uh, I think at the very end, boy, I feel bad about this part. Mo. <laughs> I said, I think at the end, usually at the end of a movie, no matter how bad it is, we're like, we're not trying to dissuade people from making more movies. We want to make sure that the next one's going to be better. <laughs> I think at the end of that one, we said, don't ever make another movie. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, many a uh, month, in fact, over a year after we released that episode, uh, Mo and I received a message through the website from the director, Lonnie Martin, the director of Women's Studies. And um, that started a back and forth, a very interesting and enlightening back and forth. He had heard the episode. Uh, he was he actually found it very amusing, but he also, you know, probably was not uh, happy <laughs> to hear about our reaction to it. And, uh, you know, I think that while being conciliatory, uh, uh, I also, you know, held our ground, which is which is great considering I couldn't remember anything about the fucking movie. Um, <laughs> we watch a lot of movies around here, but within that conversation, I invited Lonnie Martin to to have a little conversation with Mo and myself. Now, this is the interview that because Mo was uh, uh, was taken out of action because he didn't have power for a while. Uh, that uh, I had to do solo. So, <laughs> by the potentially our most contentious interview, <laughs> I was left uh, left to my own devices, and I talked to women's studies director Lonnie Martin. And I have to say, Mo, he was a super nice guy. And and I'm sure. I mean, like I, you know, I read through uh, all the emails that we had back and forth, and he seems he seems like a nice enough guy. But you know, not just nice, but also very conscientious uh, and mm. very aware of the limitations of his skills when he made women's studies and that sort of thing. I think our conversation ends up being really uh, enlightening and interesting. We also get to talk about another one of our favorite movies here on No Budget Nightmares, the WNUF Halloween special, which uh, mm. listeners might know that actually Lonnie does a one of the commercials in that. Uh, so let's let's jump to that interview now, and we'll be back in just a minute. So we're on the phone right now with Lonnie Martin. Uh, and if you're a longtime listener of No Budget Nightmares, then this might be a name that you would really not expect for us to be talking to. Uh, Lonnie uh, is the director of Women's Studies, uh, which is a film that we featured on episode number 63 of No Budget Nightmares way back in June of 2015. And uh, for those who were listening back then and have been continuing to listen, you might recall that we were not very kind to that movie. In fact, um, if I seem to recall, I think it might have been, at the time, one of the films we most disliked that we had uh, watched for No Budget Nightmares. Uh, And then something a little strange happened. In July of this year, we uh, received a message from the director, Lonnie Martin himself, uh, who uh, honestly was extremely kind considering how how much effort we went to, to to eviscerate his movie. Incredibly kind, but also, uh, 
I, I hesitate to use the phrase pled his case because I don't think that's something that you would have felt a, a necessity to do. But certainly um, went into more detail regarding your side of what you were trying to do with it and contextualize your position on what you were trying to do with women's studies. And through that, uh, we have managed to to bring you together with No Budget Nightmares, Lonnie. And uh, I really do appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time. And honestly, if you wanted to start this by telling us how offended and horrified you were to find out what we said about your movie, I would be completely, I would completely understand that. But, but I think we should start with, I'll just start with asking you, what were you feeling when you were listening to that episode? Did, did you take it personally? Did you feel that we were being way too harsh or being uh, completely missing the mark? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I appreciate, I appreciate you giving uh, me some, some, some airtime. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I, it was sent to me uh, by a friend who had, you know, I was like, Can, have you heard this? And I was like, no, I haven't. And I, I went ahead and I listened to the episode. And uh, so two things. One, you guys have watched the film far more recently than I. So a lot of it was like, oh, yeah, I put that in. <laughs> I see. That's right. I forgot I did that. Um, and secondarily, I was um, – the biggest thing was like a couple times I was like, man. I wish I was I wish I was as smart as these guys think I am to put all in all of this subtext they're ascribing to this movie. You know, like I wish I mean, not that I not that I, uh, you know, I, I guess I, you guys sort of pinned me as some sort of uh, MRA like uh, woman hating. We uh, did do that. Yes, we. Absolutely guy. And I was did. like, well, I was like, well, that, and that doesn't bother me because other people have seen the movie and, and, and had had similar reactions and, and I, and I'm not that person. I am, I am, uh, I can, I'm, I'm a, fem, I'm a feminist. I am a defender of women's rights. I'm a defender of, uh, rights of people of color and people of, of, uh, uh people of various sexual identities. Um, I'm, I, I am, I'm very much on that side of the political spectrum. So, um, and because I'm confident in that, that, that part didn't bother me. I was sure. just like, you guys really went deep into sort of the subtext of like how much this film wanted to put women on like a lower a lower spectrum and i was like it was it was it to me it was just fascinating because i was like I, I was like i'm not like the subtext i put into the movie isn't that like well thought out you know what i'm saying obviously sure, sure. obviously because it's it's sort of it's easy to sort of take it and um to to i guess misinterpret it to misinterpret my original intent so um i i laughed i got to be honest i laughed at a couple parts just because i First of all, I'm I'm that was I made that film uh, ten years ago now. Sure, of course. And I'm certainly separated enough to sort of realize it is not a um, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. And I'm sort of I sort of understand that it's uh, it's my first feature. It was a uh, early in my filmmaking career, and so it, it has many many flaws. So I'm and I've uh, in terms of a film, in terms of a story, you know, I've I've come to terms with a lot of what doesn't work in women's studies. So I wasn't offended. I, I again, I'm always sort of sad when people think it is. When people miss my people, really think it's really it's anti-feminist and it's meant mm. to sort of say feminists are bad and they want to kill men. Like it was really meant to be sort of a more subtler um, th- uh, message. So and I guess so it's always but it's like again I other reviews uh, written reviews had done that. I was just I was. I was really shocked that, like, for a movie you guys hated so much, you spent so much time on it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, that we do <laughs> tend to yeah. dive very deep. It's it's interesting because I, I had such a visceral reaction to it. But I also think that the political temperature of 2015 and the year since then 
that maybe I know I know that you've had some some intense reactions to that movie in the past, but I really feel like even since then things have crystallized a little bit more and the reaction to something like this might be whatever your intent was even more intense because people take these issues so seriously and they're willing to be very forceful in their opinions about that. Would you agree with that? Yeah, no, I would never, I would never make this movie. Now what I would do is say, Hey, here's this idea. And I would hand this off to, uh, uh, I mean, if someone was interested in kind of taking this idea and, and running with, I mean, to make a woman, I think a woman direct a woman taking this idea, <laughs> being able to sort of like the nuances of feminism and how, you know, being able to sort of take it from that, uh, the side of the other, you know, I don't know how much cultural studies you guys talk about this whole idea of that people, mm-hmm. you know, non-white males are sort of other. Somebody be able to take it from that perspective and approach it. I mean, that would be that would be the right move uh, for this movie. And I remember a lot of even early reviews were like, "Oh, what a missed opportunity!" Everybody thought it was going to be this crazy satire. Right. It was meant. It was a satire, but it was very much a play it straight satire. It was very much designed in the way of sort of the '70s sort of. Uh, exploitation movies like Switchblade Sisters and like these, you know, those like crime movies of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the, uh, of the seventies. It was really designed to be that. And so, um, but, uh, but I, I would never think to make it out. And it, I was sort of naive enough to really think too, cause I was always sort of a strong supporter of make roles for women and, and women and, and, and giving women opportunities to like play different types of roles. I think I was just naive enough to think that, oh, well, we're past all this, right? You know, I think I was just young enough to think, no, this is, everything's cool now, right? And I mean, that's like, that's privilege, right? That's a privilege at work. But uh, I think when I made it, I was just like unaware of like, it was like, you know, they, I was just aware of my own privilege in the situation. You know what I'm saying? So. Absolutely. No, absolutely. It's, it's interesting, especially, and again, it's been a little while since I've, I've revisited the movie, but I do recall that its kind of climax revolves around a female politician who is trying, from my perspective when watching it before, is trying to basically implement a matriarchal society and and and, and she's killed because that, of course, in the sense of the context of the movie, that would be a very bad thing. And, of course, we've had some pretty harsh uh, reactions to female politicians, politicians in recent years. And uh, it's funny because back in 2015, I probably couldn't even have seen that coming. But, yeah, in 2017, this would be... For some people, this would be a pretty hard watch. Sure, sure. And I guess so, I'm, my original intent, and I explained this in my email to you. Sure, was, of course. I, it was very much coming off. Like, this is the Bush years. This is sort of 9-11. There's a lot of anti-Muslim, mm-hmm. still very strong, anti-Muslim sentiment in the United States. I, I think you guys are in Canada. I'm not sure. I'm uh, in Canada. Mo is in the U.S. And thank thank goodness all that anti-Muslim sentiment has been cleared up. Yeah, right. It's all better now, right? We're <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so it was very much sort of my whole thing of like, it was like people were like, all Muslims are bad and, and, you know, and, and it doesn't, you know, can't build a mosque in New York and, and all these things going on. And to me, what I thought, the, the idea behind women's days, well, there are degrees of all these things, right? Like the, you, you know, there are very, to me in any group, I think there are very few extremes. I think most mm. people think whether your politics are left or right, I think most people, and I'm older now that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, I'm not a, a kid anymore, but I mean, you know, you, you everybody moderates as they get older. And uh, so the to me, the idea was to take this idea, well, like, there are extreme uh, Muslims and there are just, you know, people who are Muslims who are living their life, who want to raise their kids and, and have a, get, a, get, a, get a good education and take care of their sure. families. And, and to me, I wanted to show that. To, to me, I was like, let's take this, let's put it into feminism, where you have the extreme cultists of the academy and then you have what was meant to be our main character who's supposed to be just kind of this moderate, right? Hmm. And, 
it just, I think the problem is, it. well, again, the problem is I, I, as, a, as a storyteller, I just didn't, I don't think, one, I didn't understand uh, at that point. I think, again, like I said, I thought things were better than they were. Sure. And I just don't think I had that point as a writer, and maybe even not now as a writer, I had, I sort of had the nuance to, to make that work without, I should have gone deeper into satire, but I didn't want to camp it up. I sort of wanted to just play it mm. straight. And this is going to sound, you can, and you can laugh, but I didn't want to, also I didn't want to be overly pretentious about it. I just wanted to like sort of just tell a straight story and like about a bunch of crazy cultists and just sort of let it be, I want, I wanted it to be more subtle than it ended up being. Mm-hmm. And it obviously wasn't subtle at all. I mean, it's as subtle as a hammer of the head, but I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, but you know, they, it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Yeah. Look, I mean, Lonnie, I didn't, we, we certainly don't have you on here, so you should beat up on yourself, but I'm, I really do think that this contextualization really helps the film. At the time that we recorded our episode, um, a friend of our show sent us a message, which I don't think we ever revealed it on the show itself, but part of it said this, and I just wanted to get your take on it. It says, this begs the question of whether the movie reveals dormant misogyny and his own fear of women, or can a person be such a technically inexperienced filmmaker uh, and be so overwhelmed and unable to deal with the subject matter that it actually twists the intentions and makes a product that ends up bolstering the exact opposite point of view that you want to support? Now, again, I don't want to necessarily... uh, I actually think it's a technically a very well-done movie, especially for a first feature. But that last point in particular... Do you think that what we, Mo and myself, were taking out of it was actually the opposite perspective of what you were trying to uh, to kind of imbue in the movie? Um, I mean, that gives me an easy out, right? If, if I go say, well, yeah, you guys totally misinterpreted it. And I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I think, again, I intended it to be, um, I don't think I intended it to be feminist and like super pro-feminist. Sure. I certainly did not intend it to be misogynist. I think, and again, like, I don't know. So, like, this is the other side of it that we had a lot of time. We talked a lot about uh, Irish home rule and sort of, uh, and the idea is like, okay, yeah, these guys go, so these guys go blow up a bunch of, you know, blow up a bunch of cars, kill a bunch of people, but is their cause wrong? You know what I'm saying? What happens, sure. like, you know, sort of the methodology. It's like people blame Antifa would be sort of the modern uh, equivalent, right? Like people say, oh, Antifa is violent. And it's like, well, there maybe, I think there's a violent component to that, but can you justify, I guess the question I was asking that I'm not, an, that I, I don't even know if I can answer now is like, sure. can you justify the violence? You know, do, does a wrong make a right uh, if done with good intentions? Like I made this movie with good intentions. So, it's, a hit, it's a really, I mean, that's a huge concept. I mean, you could look at, you know, Israel-Palestine, obviously, is another very core uh, issue in terms of intentions and what people have to do uh, in order to, uh, in their perspective, fight back against an enemy that, that has completely overwhelmed them. Um, but I do think that there's a danger in interpreting. I mean, it sounds a little bit like the the Trump, you know, all sides are bad type thing. But what you really seem to be saying was the extremity just like re- religious extremism, that's where you get all these mixed messages and people uh, losing their message. Right. And, you know, and like, so, and I, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And so, like, I always say that ISIS, what is ISIS? ISIS is the response to 
one, the uh, the 2003 invasion of, of Iraq directly led to the creation of the conditions that created ISIS, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, and secondarily, I mean, you have like 30% unemployment, right? You have you have a high unemployment. You have uh, low levels of education. You have all these sort of things feeding into this thing. And then some extremist shows up and says, hey, I'm going to give you a job. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you honor. You're going to be able to feed your family. Come on and do this, right? And so I think what I, uh, with women's studies, again, it was sort of the same idea of people who feel like they have nowhere to go. And it's, I mean, we're, we're seeing this on a, I think, a nationwide scale in America right now. People sure. who feel hopeless latch on to this, what they could perceive as power and what's going to give them power. And if that means, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think, you know, a lot of people get, join ISIS are there for six weeks and like, Oh my God, I can't be this. Right. right. I didn't, it was this, I thought it was just like a, we, another more extreme form of Islam. I didn't, I didn't think it was this, you know? And I think it's that, I don't know. I think women's studies in some ways, all of these I kind of, uh, ideas were coalescing at the time. I think I felt it. I definitely felt it in terms of sort of like the xenophobia I saw in America. Sure. And I think the point was to try to put it over into, and I'm just, I, you know, I, I probably didn't understand, and maybe even now don't didn't understand sort of the uh, the 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 battles that feminists are fighting as well as I should have, and certainly now, like now, I'm certainly aware enough that I would never in a million years do it now, you know. So it it must it must have been pretty hurtful for you though, because some of the reactions to this I mentioned on the episode, the Jezebel article. uh, They really tried to paint you. In fact, we did as well, of course, as this MRA type person so it, it it's that obviously wasn't your intent but it means it must be really hard to think that people are watching this and making these judgment calls about you as a person and as a and not just as a filmmaker but as a human being yeah uh i mean so again i'm sort of thick-skinned uh in those terms and it is i mean it is her now make no mistake sure. i certainly like was upset about these, not about your review, but certainly back when the movie first came out, I was certainly like, oh, no, no, I was I was disappointed, and I was, you know, people, you know, people said really bad things about the movie, and it was certainly uh, hurtful, but at the same time, it was like, well, I can survive this, you know, eventually I got to sleep at night, right? Right. I mean, so it's like, you know, this isn't gonna, this isn't the end of the world, I know my intentions are good, and anybody who actually took the time to actually reach out to me and talk to me mm. was sort of like, oh, you just screwed up you know what i'm saying <laughs> like you just like you tried to do this and you did it poorly you know and i mean i sort of agree with you like there are still technical parts of that film that i'm like wow i and trust me i had no idea what i was doing at that point i may not have any idea what i'm doing as a filmmaker now although i i've kept doing it i've been you know i've, I've been pretty uh consistently making films and i, I work as a, a freelance um filmmaker uh for, for a living. And so I've certainly continued to do it. So, but I mean, yeah, I think that, I think my heart, my heart was in the right place. And I certainly had the best of intentions as a storyteller. Uh, I just was not, uh, and a sophisticated enough storyteller. And I, who knows, I may still not be, but I think it's all a progress. I think if you get to a point where you're, you say, Oh, well I'm done and I know everything and I'm the best guy. And if you don't recognize my genius, you're stupid. I just think that, like, why are you doing it at that point? Like, I think, like, Ridley Scott's still making, he's 80 years old, still making films. And you read interviews with him, you still, he's he's still, you can tell he's still like, well, I'm still figuring it out. I'm still trying things. Sure. I'm, still, I'm okay. I think, you know, any, I would, any, and I don't know how many indie filmmakers you have listened to this, you can't be afraid of failing. 
sure. failure because you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. And it's like, I'm sort of glad that it was a failure that I could sort of overcome and still stick with it and keep making movies. So. I mean, it's, it's better to risk failure than to become complacent, right? Oh. Uh, especially as a filmmaker. I, I did want to ask you, Lonnie, uh, on, a, on a bit of a more positive topic. I was curious, since we, we also cover the WNUF Halloween special, it's one of our favorite uh, indie movies from the last few years. Uh, we love it here on No Budget Nightmares. You, you ended up doing a commercial spot part of that. How did, that, how did you get involved with the, that project? So uh, my wife, Cindy, who is the lead actress in uh, Women's Studies, she mm. did a, a Grave Mistakes, a short film with uh, Jimmy George and Chris LaMartina, who did the WNUF um, Halloween special. And we had just we had, had a relationship with them through, you know, horror cons and we're they're from Baltimore. We're from D.C. So it was mm-hmm. sort of uh, we had a relationship. And then when they just so when they were making that, they wanted people to make these kind of cheesy commercials. <laughs> And they asked us if we wanted to do one, and um, I was like, "Yeah." And like even that, like I, I don't, know, I, uh, I was trying to emulate this crazy, like, one of those like crazy '80s like lipstick commercials, like the old right. line commercials. And so, yeah, we just did. They asked, and I was like, "Sure." We did it in like a day, and uh, yeah. So, but it was. Um, I was happy to be involved. Chris is great. They make they make fantastic low budget films, and they're just they're great. They're great filmmakers. They're great people. They're, mm-hmm. It's just, uh, I'm really, they've had, they deserve all the success they've had. Yeah, it's been nice to connect with them uh, via social media and just see, I mean, incredibly talented people. And that is obviously a project that anyone listening to this, if you haven't already checked out the WNUF Halloween special, I'd, I'd strongly recommend it. But that brings us, Lonnie, to what you're working on now. Now, you mentioned to me before we started recording uh, and in, in some of the emails that you've been working on a project called The Last of the Manson Girls. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, people who actually watched Women's Studies will be happy to know that I went to film school after. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I, anyway, I did. I went and got my master's degree in film and uh, it was sort of developed as a, my thesis film for my master's at American University here in Washington. And... Um, yeah, it's a, at this point, it started out as a short film. It evolved into a web series, and now it's like a, a short feature film. It's about 72 minutes. And uh, it is uh, the story of Paul Krasner. It's based on a, a, a it's semi-based on a true story, although it's a highly fictionalized, it's, uh, it's speculative historical fiction. Sure. But uh, Paul Krasner was a counterculture journalist in the late 60s. Uh, he was a, he, he um, helped Lenny Bruce write his autobiography. He published a magazine called The Realist. Uh, very much a uh, political satire, sort of a proto Onion, uh, Mad Magazine, very kind of proto Daily Show type of magazine. And, sure. um, anyway, he became convinced that the Manson murders were part of a CIA conspiracy to delegitimize the youth protest movement. Uh, and as part of his research, he went to L.A. and took LSD with. Uh, this is Squeaky from Sandra Good and Brenda McCann after Manson and the killers had been incarcerated and, and uh, found guilty. And my film is about the 24 hours that he took acid with the Manson girls. So, and it has, it's, it has sort of, it, there's still, there's some political bent to it, although it's far, far less of it than in uh, women's studies. There's a little bit of that. Um, I, I tell people it's uh Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise meets Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So <laughs> uh, it's less a horror film than it's kind of this crazy kind of dramedy. So, 
did did you feel that it's rather fortuitous? Uh, it's been recently announced that Tarantino is going to be working on a Manson film. Uh, is the hope that Manson mania is going to run wild and uh, that might actually help uh, a, a wider release? Sure, sure. I mean, here's the, you know, I, I the joke I made when that announcement came out I was like, well, hey, I've been ripping off Tarantino for years. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, he might as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, he returned the favor, you know. Uh, no, no. Uh, I um, I'm I'm very excited. I'm a huge Tarantino fan, so I mean, I'll be. I, he can have my 16 bucks right now, you know. I mean, he can. <laughs> I'll give it to him right now. I'm gonna go see that movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it was very much like a good kick in the pants. We were kind of already on the down. Like we're in post production right now. We're in sound mixing and mm-hmm. composing music and. We're very much at the tail end, but it was very much for me like, oh, a real kick in the pants to uh, to get it done. Um, so uh, it wasn't really necessarily meant to be a feature. We were originally we were going to release as a web series, and then we just kind of were like, well, let's. We've got a feature length thing. We've spent. It took me like three years. Like I started our first day of shooting was in um, 2015, February 2015, and so uh, and I had been developing it for a long time before that. So it's been this real sort of kind of never-ending journey for me. So I'm just almost at this point, it's like, I don't care if it's good. I just want it to be done. You know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I, I'm doing that. I'm very excited about it. I think it's really good. I think it's very much of the moment. Um, it, I think it deals with a sort of politics that I understand. It's sort of what do you do after the war's over and you feel like mm. your side's kind of lost. And uh, I think people who, I think people who care about other people in North America uh, particularly in the United States, kind of feel that way right now a right. little bit. Just you know, I feel like we feel like we lost. Feel like the good guys have lost a little bit. Like the like empathy has kind of been killed at least yeah, for the time yeah. being. Yeah, and so it's more like so really like Krasner at this point. He's sort of like me. You know, the the protest movements have really fractured and fallen apart and turning turned violent. This takes place in 1972, and of course the Manson girls, their guru, their Jesus is in jail. Right. And so they're floating and lost. And it's kind of about like lost people finding each other. And again, the sort of themes of you can't let extremists sort of define you. It's about expecting to find a monster and then kind of finding a mirror kind of like in the end, he finds out, you know, we're all kind of lost and lonely a little bit. Right. You know, it's about him discovering sort of these girls now or as, you know, they're as troubled as, as he is in a certain way. So. Um, so it's uh it's it's I think it's good. You know, it, it, I think there's some there's definitely some humor in it. I really I sort of learned that if you're going to play with these things, you definitely want to uh, inject a little more humor. In, and, and if you're going to you're going to try to do a little bit of satire, actually make your satire funny. So uh, but uh, yeah, no, I'm very excited about it. Lonnie, I can't believe I'm saying this after uh, after our 2015 episode about women's studies. But I am actually very much looking forward to checking out The Last of the Manson Girls. You've painted a very interesting sounding picture. It's actually subject matter that I'm very interested in anyway. And I think the big question is, will we see it before Tarantino's Manson movie comes out? Well, so I think you will. I can't weave. So we actually, because it was developed as a web series, it's actually been submitted to a couple festivals in sort of web series format. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I should hopefully, I'm hoping to hear in the next month if any of that's going to happen. Uh, it is, it'll certainly be, so the idea is if we can, there's some dead festival deadlines I want to hit here at the end of the fall. So hopefully next year, uh, it'll be available in, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uh, we're going to festival it. We're going to do that whole ride with it. So who knows what'll happen, um, in terms of distribution. But I mean, you know, I think it'll find its way sure. out to the world somehow. You know, I hope, I hope it is good enough to at least, uh, 
at least at least uh, be on no budget nightmares. <laughs> at least, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we we have such high standards, uh, Lonnie. I want you to thank you once again for being part of our hundredth episode. Uh, this is not something that we initially planned, but uh, honestly, you've been uh, a, a wonderful person to talk to. I was so glad that we're able to contextualize things a little bit more. Uh, we can't go back and change the past, alas, but I'm glad that you were able to tell your side. And honestly, uh, I want to check out more of your work. I, I'm glad that you're going to give us a chance to do that. If people want to keep up on the progress of Last of the Manson Girls or any of your other work, is there any uh, good way to do that online? Uh, the best way to do it that'll Right now is lastmansongirl.com. All, all one just kind of shoved together, lastmansongirlsingular.com. Uh, uh, and that'll sort of get you to my Twitter and my Facebook and my regular webpage, which is, is hopelessly outdated. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so you can, everybody can sort of catch up with me there. And, and I, I try to post news at least once a month in terms of uh, what's going on with new stuff. And uh, yeah, and I want to, by the way, I, I would not have agreed. If I didn't find you guys' show kind of humorous and enlightening, and if I didn't think you guys were smart guys, I, mean, I wouldn't have agreed to come on the show. Like, I felt like, you know, I think the lessons here is one, you, you know, learn from the mistakes you make in the past. But two, you know, if there's a misunderstanding, if you maybe if people reach out to each other in terms of that misunderstanding, then you can find, like, well, make people understand where the misunderstanding was, and then everybody can move forward from there. And lots of life lessons, I think, to be learned and in that and this is just a little microcosm of it yeah and again it's it's one of those things where uh completely unforeseen uh i feel like we try to give movies a fair shake on no budget nightmares that's why we tend to go into ridiculous detail but uh what fairer shake can you give than to bring the filmmaker himself on to uh to explain uh the intentions behind his project lonnie thanks again uh we will be keeping up on your future work and hey who knows last of the manson girls might find its way to no budget nightmares in the future thanks so much looking forward to the next hundred episodes <laughs> thanks and yes that was our discussion with lonnie martin the director of women's studies i bet you didn't see that one coming listeners <laughs> Mo, yeah, Mo. While uh, while that was uh, was playing, we had a little break here, and Mo mentioned that he actually hasn't heard that interview yet. So he it'll nope. it'll be as a big a surprise to him as anybody. All that shit talking that we did about him while we were talking. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 really funny because I make a lot of jokes about never listening to the Eric Roberts podcast, uh-huh. but I never listened. To, I never listened to the finished products of this one either. Sure. So so it's, I can't believe I'm actually going to have to sit down and listen to one of our shows just so I can hear some of the content that I wasn't there to help produce. I mean, what a, what a, what a shame for you, Mo, to have to listen know, to an episode I, of Jesus. No Budget Nightmares. Listen to, listen to my own fucking voice. <laughs> I'll do that. Meanwhile, back in the world of Hip Hop Logos, uh, we move right into a summary of the plot up to this point, thankfully delivered by Uno Doze himself in freestyle rap form, Mo. Yep. So if you want to hear, because again, we haven't really heard the Hip Hop Locos do any hip hop up to this point. This is what Uno Dos sounds like when he's describing the plot up to this point. 
Yo, yo, check it out. The first thing we did is we called Jack the Fool, took the Impala to move on to the new school, and then we went into our first Jack. Yo, we strangled this motherfucker from the back to the front, and then after that, we sparked the blunt. Yo, homie didn't even know what we wanted. Yo, we wanted cash, and we did it in the flash. Dumped his body, homeboy, and now he's burned to ashes. Who knows who did it? Not us. Yo, we going to the top. You can't touch this, so step on back and listen to the story as we explain and magnify the glory okay now i i cut it off there but also the the actual movie cuts it off there as well i like to think that he fucked up immediately after that i will say that right. the thing i like most about that freestyle mo is the fact is how much it sounds like john ralphio from parks and recreation <laughs> i like that he worked in a sly reference to you can't touch this <laughs> the most credibility for your freestyle is to work in a little you can't touch this into it sure um anyway so that is that is look I'm not going to mock the freestyle ability of Uno Dos. Obviously, he's a professional musician. I am not. Um, I can't. I can't do any freestyle rap. Now, Can Mo, we? you say that, but you're a man who's quick on his feet, quick of I'm the not, mind. I should say, I'm not. So, uh, if I lay down, I'm, a beat, neith- I'm neither of those things. <laughs> if I lay down a little bit of a beat, just just like, oh God, no. Say it's a slow beat, just doom, 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 like that. You know how it's going to go, doom, 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 doom. <laughs> Say, I'm Funky Mo, and I'm here to say I love to rap in a hip-hop way. Yes. All right. Pretty good. Uh-huh. You know, Pool and Fool, they do rhyme. So I credit to uh, Uno Dos. Um, so that is... Yeah, but, 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 <laughs> I, you know, the, the the line in there, I can't remember the specific line because I didn't write it down. because I, I bet it's the bun but... where he talks about burning him into ashes. <laughs> Yeah, it's the burning him to ashes line. I'm like, you know, you could have just said ash. You you didn't have you didn't have to pluralize it. Yeah. But that's but that's my favorite thing about the cuz there's a, a couple of the uh the freestyle raps that he does in this one and he adds little extra shit in there that ruined the entire thing that he could have gotten away with something saying something else. I think you're like, a little that, upset that you got a little of that flavor in your ear. Mo, yeah, little flavor yeah. in your ear. And here comes the brand new flavor in your ear. So, Mo, <laughs> we then cut to some point of view driving around. This now is in black and white. Uh, and right. you know how that, that little bit of freestyle just kind of summarized the plot up to this point? Well, it was kind of unnecessary because then the two locos, they also reminisce about everything they've done up to this point at length, talking about how uh, they want to come up in the hip-hop game. They reminisce yeah. you know, fondly Quote, about... Quote-unquote, for La Rosa. That's right. They, yeah. they reminisce fondly about choking that motherfucker and getting his coca. Um, ah, the good old days mm-hmm. when I choked that motherfucker and stole his coca. So they are now going to go to another friend house uh and this guy is also he also slings coke so he's also right. a cocaine dealer so i mean i i guess that they really want to have as much as possible because why not my understanding is that people love that shit they love the coke well you know the here, here's the thing here's the thing when you live in a free market economy like we do here in the united states you know mm-hmm. you need mm-hmm. to be able to present the consumers with options look there's a demand right there's yeah, a demand right. for it so why not provide for that demand? It's just the free market. It really, it the free market solves all problems. So if they just right. let it go, they just let them do this. Then frankly, everyone will be happier. Everyone will be more productive. There's enough wealth. It'll all spread. It'll trickle down to yeah. uh, to everybody, including our local friends. So I mean, now, let's just now, let it now, slide. Now, if you sit back and think about it, you know, next to of course 
Ayn Rand that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know Lorenzo Munoz uh, Uno Dos himself yes. is really sort of a uh uh, a, a libertarian icon. He's a visionary, I think. Way. And he, honestly, he's a, he's a John Galt. He's a of our maverick. Time. Absolutely, he is a maverick. Yeah. Yes. So let's just let's. I mean, honestly, I could hear him spout his philosophy. I could listen to it uh, for hours. But unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time. So they do drive around, nope. and what they do next, Mo, is very smart, very intelligent. They stop at a payphone. So uh, Uno Dos can call his friend who has the cocaine to let them know that they're going to come visit. Now, in a yeah. lesser movie. In a lesser movie, they would just say that they were going to do it and then talk about having done it or maybe just skip that entire part entirely. Not Hip Hop Locos. No, 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 no. Nope. Here we see him stop in front of a payphone, get out, wordlessly, like, use the payphone where we can't hear any of the dialogue being uh, occurring. In real time, we see him just stand there with a phone to his fucking head (laughs) and talk and talk and talk for minutes. And then he just leaves and comes back and gets in the car. It's like this was made in a world where editing doesn't exist. Like you couldn't edit a scene at all. It just it wasn't something that you could do. So you just need to have it play out in real time. Right. This is this is like the uh the uh hip hop equivalent of the first forty minutes of Birdemic. Yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Just shit playing out in real time. So <laughs> So Unodos gets back in the car. And then his voice goes all slow and deep, and it goes, let's go get homie and shit. <laughs> and then now we get more driving, more point of view driving, this time in color. Uh, and this is this time, there's no audio at all. They're not talking. There's literally like three minutes of just driving footage. Yeah. So this then leads to our next confrontation. We have a close-up black and white of our two faces of our loco, Uno Dos and J10. They are now talking about the thing they're about to do, which is to jack the guy. (laughs) Uno does this. He's going to be up there for four four or five minutes. Then he's going to um, say that he has to go down to the car to get the money for the cocaine, right? When he does that, him and J-10 are going to put on ski masks. Then they're going to go back up and uh, kill the guy and take his shit, basically. Right. And this is essentially their plan for every single heist that they're going to do in this movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, why mess with success? That's what I say. Right, exactly. I mean, Les Circle Rouge, it's not, but, you know, effective. Yeah, well, I mean, it's sort of Rafifi-esque in that it takes place in real time <laughs> and almost without any sounds at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is definitely Rafifi-esque. So what happens is they're in the car. Uno Dos walks from the car to this apartment And this literally happens in real time. We see him go with a point of view shot and walk in total darkness, black and white and darkness, and then eventually find us some steps and go up the steps and knock on the door. And eventually he gets led into the place. Yep. As he was walking up the steps, I wrote in my notes, it's like the movie is taunting me. It's like, it's like, oh, you thought that was bad? Well, what about this? (laughs) So the friend, again, I don't know how close these guys are supposed to be. But his friend uh, opens the door, and he tells him – he's still on the phone. He tells him to sit down. And Uno Dos sits down, and he sits next to uh, three lines of cocaine and uh, a gun, which is just sitting out there. As you do. I guess – look, we already talked about the free market, but let's talk about another little thing called freedom, and that is the Second Amendment. The greatest amendment to the United States Constitution. Look, if – 
the only thing that can stop a bad loco with a gun is a good loco with a gun. Now, in this case... Actually, actually, mm-hmm. actually, the only thing that can stop a bad loco with a gun is a badder, more loco mm-hmm. with a gun. That, thank you for correcting me. <laughs> yes. That's right. He's more loco. That's exactly right. He is muy, <laughs> muy loco. <laughs> muy loco. He's muy loco. Jesus. We are the whitest dude ever. <laughs> anyway, Uno does his response to uh, seeing this gun and its uh, its collection of hollow points is this. Damn, man. This fucking shit's crazy like a motherfucker, Holmes. Look at that fucking shit, eh? Duh. fucking like. Duh. Blow your mind away and shit, Holmes. Yeah, so his voice went super low for reasons I... I don't know. I guess there it is because he's high or whatever. Uh, so he does test the cocaine, of course. Um, and so I guess in this case, the friend brings out a quarter key of coca. He asks him how much he wants for it, Mo. How much does he want this time for a quarter key? I did not write that. Well, one. I wrote it down, Mo. I know you detail did. is important. So his friend uh-huh. says that this shit, the coca, goes for fifteen G's, but he. Special friend price, going to give him 12 G's. 12 G's for the quarter key of coca. You know what he says, Mo? Mm-hmm. What? That's a homie hookup. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when you think when you think about it, it is. That's a pretty sweet fucking deal. I mean, that's yeah. $3,000 off. Yeah. Right? And anyway, Uno Dos still, as is per usual, uh, he he's like, that just isn't low enough. You know, he is trying to represent the Latinos and get his music out there. Uh, and then, homie hookup number two, his friend offers to bump that down uh, to 11. Now, now Uno Dos says 10, but his friend says 11. That's as good as he can get. And then they agree. <laughs> they, a gentleman's agreement, they say, okay. So that means Uno Dos is going to go down to his car and get the money. Um, his friend, by the way, kind of questions him for a second. Like, what? Like, why do you got to do that? He's like, eh, that's just where I have my money. So he goes to do it. Well, yeah, so th- so he's super suspicious at first, you know, and this is actually one of my favorite scenes because not only do they do it twice, they do it three times uh-huh. in in this one. So they argue, the re- the repetition is amazing. They argue about it where he where he finally you know where he's like originally doesn't want him to go down to his car because he doesn't trust him. Then it cuts away. Now this is one of those scenes we were talking about where. Uh, the uh, the the gentleman uh, where the film I should say not the gentleman where the film inexplicably cuts to normal video mm-hmm. feed regular color no sound edits at all it's really weird and uh, and, and the guy <laughs> the guy argues with him about going down to the car uh, then. And originally, like I said, originally doesn't want him to. Then they argue again, uh-huh. and that's when he tells him, "Well, that's just where I keep my money." He's like, "Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Why didn't you just yeah, say that, homie? Oh yeah, why didn't you just say that's where I keep my money?" Then they cut to a different angle again, and he says the same exact fucking thing, mm-hmm. where he says, "Well, I, that's where I keep my money," and he goes, "Oh, okay." Look, it, three fucking times. It's all in the game when you're a loco mo. They just don't have strong memories. It's all memories. in the game. So yeah, I guess not. Uno Dos goes down to his good friend J10, who's in the car, and they put on their ski masks. And then we get another point of view shot as they both walk back to the fucking apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does warn J10. 
that uh, the friend has a gun. So you got to be watching out for that. Um, they they go upstairs and the door is unlocked because they're expecting, of course, you know, the friend is expecting Unidos to come back with the money. They burst in, Mo. And is it, am I incorrect in saying that J10 yells, you're under arrest at one point? <laughs> I think he does yell out, you're under arrest. I was, I was not paying that much attention to, to be honest <laughs> i just think that would be so funny. but if he if he did that might be the greatest thing ever <laughs> they're in ski masks and they have like a screwdriver <laughs> you're under arrest home you're under arrest <laughs> so they grab the oh, guy i say you're gonna get so choked <laughs> they they grab the guy they bring him into the kitchen uh, Uno Dos yells at J10 to get a fucking knife, and he opens, like, you know, he just gets, like, a kitchen knife, I guess. And uh, you can barely see what the hell's going on here. They stab the guy, they grab his coca, and they run off. And we, we do, in the only visible bit of violence in the entire movie, we do get to see the uh, the dealer on the ground with, like, a pool of blood around him. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep. So, then we get more point of view driving, Mo. Ugh. Then we go to more black and white faces as the Locos, they want to see that stash. So, we are we are looking at kind of a point of view shot of them looking at the cocaine that they have just stolen. And they're going to talk about this cocaine in some detail. And let's have a little listen. Damn, sure man. This fucking shit's heavy, Holmes. Oh, yeah. Hey, fucking, hey, hold on, eh? Let me get this shit out, eh? Oh, Fucking, that's exactly that shit's shit some shit fucking pure raw fucking cocaine. Look at that shit, Holmes. Damn, Holmes. That's a fucking crazy looking shit right there. Man, right it's asking nothing but fucking money at that shit, man. That's what I'm saying, Holmes. <laughs> if you played a drinking game with the movie Hip Hop Logos, Please and you don't. took a sip every time they said the word Holmes, you would be in the hospital by the 10 minute mark. <laughs> It's true. You would be fucking dead by the half hour mark. I mean, it. You, yeah, you, yeah. You'd be unconscious by the end of the opening model. I'm, I'm hesitant to, to mock the use of Holmes in this because again, it. This is like a speech pattern, right? This is something that is supposed to be, uh, very true to these people and these characters. This right. is obviously how these two guys actually talk, right? Th- right that right, said, right. in the context of the movie where you're supposed to have, like, polished dialogue, it makes them sound insane, loco even, to just say the same <laughs> word over and over and over again. Right, right. No one would ever write it. I mean, the script of this, if you did, like, Control-F, loco, it would come up, like, a thousand fucking times. God, I want to do that so bad now. Let, we should write out the script. script. Yeah, that's a really good no, idea. I'm definitely not doing that. Not a chance. But... Well, if I could get my hands on a copy of this script in like a digital form and do that, I w- that, man, that would be something. You else. really think that the script of this was ever in digital form? No, I don't think the script of this ever existed. <laughs> yeah, right? I think it was a cocktail napping napkin with basically the, the words from the fucking opening crawl written on it. And then they went by that napkin every time they needed to improvise dialogue because they say the same fucking thing over and over and over again. So while they're uh, kind of caressing this bag of cocaine, (laughs) they also uh, start reminiscing once again about choking the guy earlier. They do talk about it. They said, remember when I choked that guy? (laughs) (laughs) But this is because uh, they need to do another one. 
So J10 is going to call a homie of his so they can jack him. I mean, this is what's been happening up to this point, but this time it's one of J10's homies. That's what's different about it. So mm. J10 is going to call him. They're going to roll up to his pad, and then they're going to jack him, and then they're going to move on to the last guy who has the equipment, the music equipment, right? So think about this like a video game, right? This is all the levels, but the big boss is the guy with the hip-hop equipment, <laughs> right? Yeah, 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 yeah. If it helps, it's like Game of Death, right? <laughs> right now they're going to fight Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but eventually you're going up to the top. And you're going to get... By the way, I keep using that word equipment because that's what they say. And it sounds so fucking stupid. <laughs> that they just want... We want the equipment. Well, I mean, you mean the musical instruments? No. Equipment. Equipment, Mo. Yeah. So, this leads into some hot payphone action. As J10... <laughs> he goes to the payphone, Mo, to make a call to his friend. It is literally just a guy standing in the dark on a payphone with music playing. Oh, no dialogue. Oh, you mean again? Again. You could just loop what we said before. It's just the fucking same thing. By the way, right. in just a little bit, we find out they own cellular telephones that they can use. But instead, they keep using payphones. Look, I understand it's really, that makes sense, right? You don't want anything. Well, to have, be- have you never seen the wire, Doug? Look, they could have burners. I'm just saying. But it makes sense. Yeah. However, when they make a call later, it's to talk about drugs. <laughs> So, exactly. so maybe they're just not too careful about this. Anyway, they they call the friend of J10's. J10 comes back to the car and he's like, let's, let's fucking do this shit. Let's go fucking visit this motherfucker. Now, those are not my words. <laughs> those are their words. <laughs> I don't know if this guy's a motherfucker. So they drive around. <laughs> they, they drive around. And this is the part... Uh. The first part where Uno does keeps asking J10 where the, the, the friend's place is. Like, he keeps asking for directions. And then right. J10 will say, it's just up here and, like, on the right. And then Uno does, like, a second later, will be like, where is this guy? Where does he live? <laughs> and at this point of view shot, like, at this point, you, it's hard to see anything that's going on. It's like I'm going blind right, right. while I'm watching the fucking thing. They're literally... Oh, my God. It's like watching... It's like, this big chunk of this movie <laughs> is like watching the street view of Google Maps... It's yeah. just moving around streets, <laughs> right? Right. Like you almost expect a a, a uh, you know a cursor to to move up and and keep moving up and clicking on it so the thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, I can't. I can't. This movie is so fucking hard. Like I can't even attempt to be funny talking about it because it's just so fucking painful. It's a really hard movie to talk oh. about simply because so little happens in it. I mean, there right. is there is action in the sense that they're doing things, but they're just doing the same things over and over. So talking about right. that in a different way is really hard. So they go to this guy's house, and then we get another close-up of them in the car. And by the way, they have a gun now. So I guess they the gun that they have is actually the one that they stole from that previous place. Probably. So the plan is they're going to go in and rush him. So what happens is J10 goes, like they're going to do the same plan as before. J10 is going to go to the guy. Then he's going to get, uh, I guess he's just going to rush him entirely. I don't think he's plans to get Uno Dos this time, does he? I don't even know. Doesn't matter. J10 Doesn't leaves the matter. car. This time, instead of the movie following J10 in a Tarantino-esque twist, <laughs> we just stay focused on the face of Uno Doz as he smokes in the car. Literally just him smoking for several minutes. It is... I have... It is... I have a note... Mm-hmm. I, I have a note in my... Well, in my notes that literally says, I forgot just how much of this movie is half a face. Yeah. 
It's just a half a person's face of a barely yeah, lit it's face. It's just all it's all black. Like I like my nephew was in the room with me while I was watching this. <laughs> of course he was. I mean, it but is. I had my head. I, it is a. I had my movie. headphones in. Right. Yeah, I, well, I had my headphones in, so he didn't hear what was happening. He didn't know any of that stuff. But every now and again, he would look over because he was playing a video game on my television. Mm-hmm. Every now and again, he would look over and he would be like, "What are you watching?" <laughs> The, that, he goes, that could I be the tagline for hip hop because what are you? Yeah, watching? he's like he, he says I can't see anything. Like it's just black. Like what is happening? And I said I have no idea. My note here says I, I just, this might be the most ponderous fucking part of an entirely ponderous movie. Yeah. This is this is like just torture to watch. Uh, this yeah, and and that's yeah, and this whole fucking movie is torture. But this that particular scene, you're absolutely right, is rough. So since it's torture time, let's take another little break, Mo. Maybe it's time for <sighs> another non-torturous <laughs> interview, surprise interview with one of our surprise guests. Yeah, let's give our listeners a break. Let's give our listeners a break from our voices, so we can go right into our voices again, but talking to somebody. <laughs> our guest, this Doug. Who are we going to talk to this? Yeah, this time? is exciting. So um, this is a director that we have featured two of his films on the No Budget Nightmares podcast. Mm. And he has actually repaid us by allowing us to be on uh, a Blu-ray collection that he released a couple of years back. And he is, I would call him a micro-budget film luminary, uh, a name. Absolutely. Um, And you will hear in this interview that I talk about it. I probably get a little more wistful than I intended, but it honestly, it it came from a very real place. When I was a teenager, reading about like cult. And I know, I got all sappy. Reading about like cult and low-budget movies. I remember reading about this guy's movies, specifically one of them, and being like, boy, I just hope someday I can see this movie. I just love to watch it at some point. And not only did I end up seeing it and recording a podcast about it, we ended up being an audio commentary on that movie many years later. I mean, it was... How fucking crazy. I mean, st- that's still fucking crazy to me. Still fucking crazy. We are, of course, referring to J.R. Bookwalter, uh, the director of The Dead Next Door uh, that Mo and I have appeared on the release for. And, of course, also the director of Robot Ninja, also featured on No Budget Nightmares. And J.R. was nice enough to uh, talk to us about everything that's going on, uh, the potential for Robot Ninja to get a, uh, a wide uh, special uh, feature-filled release in the near future. I mean, just the nicest guy. He could not have been more humble. I mean, really humble about the, his work, considering how really forward-thinking and incredible a lot of it is. Right, right. So let's listen to our talk with J.R. Bookwalter. We are here with J.R. Bookwalter, the director of such low-budget classics as The Dead Next Door and Robot Ninja, both of which have been covered on the No Budget Nightmares podcast. J.R., thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. You know, J.R., listeners of the show probably already know this, but you were nice enough to include both Mo and my own voice on your three-disc release of The Dead Next Door. Uh, It's so interesting to think... That when we recorded our episode back in April of 2015, um, that basically that was the start, not that we had anything to do with that start, but it was the beginning of this flurry of activity regarding that movie. Uh, At what point did you start the idea that The Dead Next Door deserved that special edition, you know, 2K scan, that that it deserved to be out in the world in in such kind of an extravagant fashion? Well, I don't think I would word it that it deserved to be. (laughs) I think it was was more, uh, I have kids, I have kids now and I'm always like, as a parent, you're always thinking of the future. And I just, I thought, you know, maybe I should do this 
A, because it'll the movie will look better, and B, it'll be something that hopefully they can you know have for while well, when I'm gone essentially. I mean, I know that's a weird thing to think about, but that was sort of the impetus to to do it in the first place. Was just the technology had finally arrived to do it. I kept buying all these Blu-rays that were like, oh, these these 2K and 4K scans, and this stuff looks great. And then it, the other thing was, you know, maybe some uh, small. Uh, financial uh, benefit to my children i guess <laughs> as crazy as that sounds although who knows a 2k restoration by the time i'm you know god willing i'll i'll live a, a bit longer so you know a 2k restoration is probably not going to mean much uh, 20 years from now you know who knows <laughs> i mean it must be just so gratifying just to know that that those who have always been curious about the movie and maybe had some difficulty picking it up or at least in a version that that you felt uh was as close to what you envisioned, I suppose, that could exist is now out there. Um, but yeah, you know, it's sort of it was a weird thing because to, to, to do it, because I never I, I had seen some of the film projected back when we shot it, you know, in the in the mid 80s. But I hadn't really, you know, prior after that, it was all just from that this one inch master. And I, I guess I, you don't really think about how crappy it looks because it was, you know, VHS or whatever. And it's just you always blame it on, oh, it's, it, you know, it looks better on the one inch master. But <laughs> I hadn't really given it that much thought. And when I saw the initial reel of test footage that I did of, of how, you know, I, I, how good the scan actually looked, it was sort of like it was literally like wiping the grunge off of a dirty windshield, you know, and, and actually being able to see out of it for the first time. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm personally not a big proponent of Blu-rays. Like I, I you know, me, I'm, I'm an old format guy myself, sure. but I, I, even I have to admit it looks fantastic. It really yeah, does. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of like, it's, it's like give some levity to the format. Cause you know, you know, sure. you just hear these, re these, re everything's remastered, restored this, that, and the other thing. And you really don't know a lot of times you buy this stuff and it's like, ah, this really doesn't look, I got taken again, you know, it's not that much better or whatever. But I think in the case of Dead Next Door, I really, I mean, all, all the reviews, all the the feedback I got from it, I mean, really nobody had anything to complain about because right. it was it was such a huge difference. I mean, if you like the movie, that's the absolutely the best way to see it. And of course, there's plenty of uh, old DVDs and VHS tapes out there for the for the collectors that like that kind of thing. Too, so. <laughs> Yeah, for the for the numbskulls like Mo. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Should you prefer it's, it's to see it that version? Way. It's there. Well, it's it's funny. It reminds me of back like when DVDs first came out, and like you'd be like, "Oh, look, my my favorite movie's on DVD, and it's just a scan of the of the VHS copy, and it just looks like pure hell." Yeah, well, that's what I mean. There was so much of that, you know. Right. And, and collectors are used to getting gypped because it's you know it happens so free. And I I know I've done it many times. I buy even today you buy Blu-rays where they. They're touting, oh, it's going to be on Blu-ray. I just saw uh, the Lorelei's Grasp, not to knock mm. Shop Factory, but they put it out <laughs> on a double feature, and it doesn't look any better than the DVD. I was, like, disappointed. That's, like, one of my all-time guilty pleasure favorites, and <laughs> it just didn't look any better. I, I was bummed after I bought that. I was like, ah, oh, they took me. You know, now that, that, I mean, I guess you've been living with the Dead Next Door in some capacity for about 30 years now. I know that the, the, the three-disc set was a 25th anniversary, but, I mean, uh <laughs> In terms of conception to it eventually getting released, it has to be about 30 years at this point. Well, what yeah, I think... mean, 32 years, I guess, technically, yeah, from, from 1985 absolutely. when it started, you know, if you go back. That I mean, far. So, yes, I have been living with it that far. I mean, that, I mean, it's unbelievable. Not to make this all about us, 
But I remember. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. But I, but I remember reading about the Dead Next Door when I was a teenager, uh, and living. I, I grew up in Newfoundland, Canada, which is on the far east coast, and very few video stores where I grew up. It was one of those movies where I I read about it in all of these magazines and in different books, and thought, you know, someday I'm going to see this movie. That that that's as high as my aspirations were back in the early '90s. Uh, and it's amazing to, and thanks to you, that we live in a world now where both Mo and myself have sort of, you know, we've not only connected with you via social media and, and uh, elsewhere, and of course talking to you right now, but now we feel like, you know, we're we're connected to that property in some way. And I really do want to thank you for allowing us to have that connection. Well, it was, was a weird wondering... fortuitous thing because you guys mm. had, I mean, I was, I was in that very early stages of, of even thinking about doing this when I listened to the, the podcast that you guys did. And it just, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, boy, this is practically a commentary track, <laughs> you know, on that original VHS version. And, and as I was putting all the pieces, you know, into place uh, to do it, it just sort of struck me as, you know, with a little bit of editing, this could be, a commentary track and it would be actually a very fun commentary track so that that's how that was the gen- going back to your original question that was sort of the genesis of it <laughs> a commentary track by two idiots who really don't know anything <laughs> about. <laughs> but it's but, but, uh, entertaining just, damn it yeah entertaining i mean we hope entertaining enough i, I guess <laughs> uh jer i was wondering now that you have lived with it for over 30 years what do you think the legacy of the dead next door is Boy, I have no idea. You know, when Anchor Bay put it out on DVD in 2005 and I had to, to do the, all that remastering work, I literally was like, I thought, this is it. I can't get a better deal than this. I'm giving it to Anchor Bay and I'm walking away. And I, I literally was like, that was going to be the end of it. I'm like, I'm not going to even look back or bother with this stupid thing again. And it just when the when the seven year deal or whatever it was lapsed, then it was sort of like, gosh, if I don't do something with this, then it's not out there and people are going to pirate it. But there's all this, you know, bootlegging piracy going on. It's like, I guess I should, you know, maybe do something with it. But I don't know. What will its legacy be? I don't know. I mean, people always comment. The the, the friend of mine, Dennis Peterson, who's also a filmmaker and has worked on some of the stuff that we've done. I mean, he, he sort of summed it up best by saying that it was it's sort of like blind ambition on film. Like, you know, to the, you, you, when you watch the movie, you're sort of like, I can't believe somebody actually did this. <laughs> it doesn't make it necessarily a good movie or a bad movie. It's just there's so much, you know, like zombies on the White House fence and and aerial shots of <laughs> zombies. And it's just fingers coming out of severed throats. It's just like stuff that it's like, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> I guess well, that's my yeah, legacy. What the hell am I watching here? Yeah, I was going to say, we did, we did mention in the episode how utterly ambitious it is. It's a very, very ambitious movie. Well, and I guess the impressive thing is that it actually still, you know, it, it seems to impress people when mm, they watch. Sure. I mean, you think of all the stuff that's come since then and where we are now with with CGI, even in low budget movies, you know, the technology's come so far and people shooting 4K and all this other stuff, but it's just it doesn't mean that it's a good movie, but it's sort of like you can still look, it's a it's a time capsule of a a kinder, gentler era where it was sort of like, wow, I can't believe this ever got made at all. <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, making uh, low-budget films in the mid to late 80s is very different, as you just mentioned, than uh, a lot of the low-budget filmmakers who are working on films now. Is there a specific – I know you're a tech guy. Is there a specific piece of technology that you wish you had when you were making movies in the late 80s? Well, I mean, everything that you have now – the funny thing is I'm sort of – I consider myself semi-retired and I'm not really making anything right now. But it's sort of like I wish I had any of this technology back (laughs) even in the the early 90s when I was starting to do the shot on video stuff where people were like, 
beating me over the head and wanting to throw me in a straitjacket because they're like, you're crazy. You can't shoot movies on video. It's like, well, okay, well, cut flash forward to today and everybody's shooting everything on video. <laughs> it's sort of like, I'm not saying that I was a pioneer. I got there first, but it's sort of like when you're trying to do it, when the technology is not yet ready for it, it's, you know, it was a real uphill struggle. I mean, we really, I think it's sort of, I sort of realized where it was going to go when we shot Polymorph in 1996 because uh, Dave Wagner, the co-producer, had just bought one of the, the the first Sony mini DV camera. And that's what we shot mm-hmm. that with and um, VX 1000 or whatever it was. And uh, it was sort of like, wow, this is like such a huge jump from super VHS. I can't even believe it. You know, it's like, where could this go from here? And like, I look at it now. It's kind of funny. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, just to, to be able to have to be able to edit on a computer. Although, frankly, I'm I, I have to say I'm glad that I have the background in film. You know, mm-hmm. when I shot Super 8, you know, making home movies as a kid and, and Dead Next Door was never actually cut on film. But later we did uh, Robot Ninja and Skin Alive were, were all cut on 16 millimeter. I'm glad that I had that because that sort of schools you to be a little more disciplined. You know, you're not just throwing filters on things and sort of letting <laughs> letting the software just sort of make all the decisions for you. You actually have to think, you know, before you make that cut because you're, you know, you're cutting your film literally. Right. Oh, yeah. We, so I, we see that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the technology is there and that it's so easy. But in some ways, I kind of long for the days where it was things were just a little bit simpler, you know, and, and not I think the software makes it more complicated in a lot of ways. Now, you've more than hinted at that Robot Ninja is going to get its own release in the future, a sort of a, a larger release, I should say. I should say. Uh, what what do you have in store for that movie? I mean, a, a kind of a, a an impressive cult has uh, has developed around that movie over well, certainly even since we started the podcast. It's sort of like uh, sort of like North Korea. You never know when it's actually going to blow. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I that's what I'm likening it to. At some point, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the 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 rockets in the air and and, <laughs> and let the thing fly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess the best thing I could say, there's a two, I have do, already done the 2K film scan of it. Um, there will be, if you basically use the Dead Next Door Ultimate Edition as sort of a template. So that gives you some idea of, of what to expect. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that's in the works that is going to, people are just going to be like, I can't believe he did this. <laughs> 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 not, not, to tease, not to tease too much, but it's going to be certainly a, a step beyond what the, the Dead Next Door Ultimate Edition was. I, I'm sure that when that, whenever that edition appears, uh, you will have your fill of walking down memory lane regarding it. But do, looking back at that movie now, does it does does it kind of reflect your intention uh, creating it, or uh, does it feel like a compromised version of of your vision going into it? Well, a vision is <laughs> I would not use the, I would not use the word vision. I mean, you have to understand something. That movie was conceived. On a on a, a coast to coast Greyhound bus trip, you know, from from <laughs> California back to Ohio, and I and I had just put Dead Next Door to bed, literally, and mm-hmm. and had you know when I conceived this thing, so I was just happy to be making anything, and the title wasn't mine; it was it was something that the the financier <laughs> Dave Dakota had thrown out, so it wasn't a necessarily like a title that I you know wanted to make necessarily mm-hmm. i was like well you know maybe i'll make something out of it just because i i had it i had another deal i was excited to make another movie so i i you know that was the challenge was to make something out of it of course i didn't make i think anything close 
to what David Dakota hoped I would have made. <laughs> I think he wanted a literal ninja that was a robot. You know what I mean? And it, it's the furthest thing from that. But uh, no, I mean, I the only I guess the only real compromise was the I was sort of like very bitter at, at the end at the tail end of Dead Next Door, and it literally like splashed onto the screen on Robot Ninja mm-hmm. because I was just it, you you see how just dour and dark and depressing that movie is you know and how it ends (laughs) certainly it's like it's just a lot of my i i I hesitate to use the word artistic rage but i guess that's what it is (laughs) artistic rage came out in making that film uh if if that's a word i can if that's a phrase i can use i suppose i'm safe to use that here with you guys but um because i don't have any ego about it as you know robot ninja is far from my far from my most accomplished (laughs) effort in my opinion but uh yeah that's i mean it was it was money, I think, if anything else, and we didn't we didn't have enough money. It was done very, very low budget and very quick compared to how Dead Next Door was done. So, sure. it, the compromise was in the, you know, in the the process of making it, and and in the fact that I stupidly said, "Oh, we're making like a Batman vigilante kind of movie, and it's all got to take place <laughs> at night, and we have like five lights, so we don't really have the you know the ability to do this, but we're going to do it anyways." Uh, let, remember, hey, hold on, I, let me remember. Yeah, no, yeah. Please. Let me jump in here real quick for a second, though. I, so, I, I was personally wondering. So, we're, we we hinted at uh, at a restoration DVD for 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 Robot Ninja. If that comes out, that does well. What's the possibility of us seeing some of your later material get the same sort of treatment, like a robot? I'm not sorry, like a um, like Ozone or Polymorph, you know, getting a a, a re release as well. Well, I mean, Ozone, I pretty much did uh, on DVD, what, 10, 15 years ago or whatever. I mean, that was kind of like I, I went back. I actually went back to the camera masters and rebuilt the entire show. And and that and it's pretty much probably as good as that movie's ever going to look. Now, in the case of Polymorph and Bloodletting, those two movies, the way the way that we did the editing at the time severely like diminished the resolution. So I actually recently sort of popped one of those camera tape master tapes in and went, huh. This looks uh, much better than <laughs> what I've been selling for the last <laughs> years. Like, so uh, it, there, there is, yeah, I mean, it, it's possible. Uh, well, those were never like big sellers and they weren't like, I mean, they, a lot the people that like them, like them and they've gotten some good, you know, plenty of good reviews, but right, it, right. they never did financially well enough to, to maybe do that. But you know, you're talking about shot on video, so you're not talking about there's, I don't have to do a 2k <laughs> film scan. You don't have to invest that, that extra money into it. It's mostly just my time to, to sit down and do it, but it, it's entirely possible. I mean, now that I've sort of been bitten by this bug, you know, you kind of want to go through everything again and say, where, what, what else can I clean the crud <laughs> off of and, you know, put it back out just, well, I, you know, I, for posterity. Yeah, I do. I do have to say that Polymorph was a favorite of me and my friends uh, when I was in my late teens and hanging out with them constantly watching movies and whatnot. So I, I think at the very least you'd have five guys. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Five sales I, right there. I, I see so many people say positive things about it, but it's right. like I, you can't give the damn thing away. And I don't know if it's the title that turns people off. Or it's always had bad artwork bad key art we finally i recently had somebody do some new key art just as a lark that was much better i think it was much more marketable or whatever but yeah i'm always like what the hell do i have to retitle this thing or what is it that would make people like you know embrace this thing a little bit more it's a weird red-headed stepchild in my catalog <laughs> do you remember uh offhand what what the original title of robot ninja was 
What Robot Ninja? No, I mean that was the only title there was. Oh, okay. So when when David Dakota was was pitching names to you, <laughs> it was it was uh, basically based on the concept that you had discussed about it. Yeah, I mean, what it was was I I was going to produce a film for the the filmmaker who eventually made Ghoul School. It was a different. It was a horror anthology, and that's what I had first taken to Dave because we were looking for ridiculously little money, like ten grand or something, to make sure. this thing. And it's actually the film Basement. If you're familiar with camp video put out that sure. film basement that's that was actually i was working with the filmmaker tim o'raw trying to get that thing made mm-hmm. out in la when i was finishing dead next door and dakota was ready to write a check and then he looked at some stuff some stuff that made him think oh, i don't know why don't you and i do something i've seen your movie <laughs> and blah 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 so it was to salvage the deal i was sort of like going mentally going through the scripts that i had at the time and i didn't want to do any of them for cheap because we were only talking about 15 or 20 grand or whatever sure. at that point and um, so I, he said, well, I've got some titles that I've wanted to make. And he threw out Robot Ninja and the rest is history, <laughs> I guess. So, I mean, there was never, yeah, there was never any conversation about changing the title to anything else. Or there was, it, it was, it, we literally went from the one deal to, to that one. And it was just purely because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get anybody else is going to offer me another job right now. So maybe I better take this one. <laughs> It's actually and, interesting because uh, it seems like the easy thing, and, and, and I'm sure you know it was a very difficult uh, production from beginning to end. But uh, the easy thing to do would have been, okay, the movie's Robot Ninja. There's going to be just Robotic Ninja, and he's just going to punch a bunch of people, and that's it. But it's a movie that's kind of a lot more complex and a lot, and like you said, there is a, a kind of a darkness surrounding it that that is pretty unique to uh, to the low budget films of that time. Well, that's just it. I mean, you look at the even the old artwork, and and it looks like by a product of the late 80s and you know it looks like what you would expect it to be but then people watch it and that's something completely different and they're like i think it just confuses people but um and yeah i could have done that and, and that would have probably been the easy way out of it but i don't know somehow i i started coming up with these ideas like i said really it was from creative frustration and just having worked on dead next door for four years and and of my life and it still you know would have been was was another probably year or more before it even started to see the light of day and it was just like i think it was just and the comic book thing was big at the time you know i was always into comic books but uh tim burton's batman was about to come out or about to yeah about to come out so it was just all that all the stuff in my life at the time just sort of splattered onto the typewritten page (laughs) for better or for worse and uh yeah i mean that's the only thing i'll say about that movie is there's there really is not another movie like it per se <laughs> and whether again whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i leave that for the viewer to decide for my uh, career you, it was not such a good thing <laughs> <laughs> you had you've done uh, some crowdfunding uh in order to get uh the dead next door three disc uh release out what was your experience like with uh, with crowdfunding man that's a lot of work i mean i did yeah. the 30 day cycle i think and it was literally because i was in the middle of doing all the restoration work at the time and and, and when i say in the middle of it, I was literally like frame by frame painting out all the, you know, glitches and scratches and everything. I mean, I did the majority of that work physically myself. So I, mm-hmm. it, I had to sort of like set that aside to, and just become, put my, you know, P.T. Barnum hat on for a month and just pr- like promote and try and get the word out, you know, for the stupid thing. Because I, I have, of course, had going into it had much grander ambitions. Oh, we'll raise, you know, all this money and it'll be great and blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> it, it, you know, didn't quite hit it. The, the goal that I would have liked to do, but it was close enough that it was doable. You know what I mean? It was at least enough that I thought, okay, I can cover 
my replication cost and the, the, the scan and some of that kind of stuff. And, and it actually wound up doing fine, you know, in the end of the day. Um, so it, it, it's just a lot more work than I expected it to be. I mean, and I, I really, I, I, I know so many people that have tried to raise funds for, you know, actual new movies mm-hmm. that way and, and have had mixed success, but I, boy, I don't know if I would do it that way because it's just so frustrating. I mean, I'm, I'm weighing whether or not I want to do it again with robot ninja, but now I sort of, with tempered expectations and sort of having that experience of having done it once before. Um, but like I, I said, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of, uh, grander ambitions for robot ninja <laughs> that, that might be well suited to that platform. I, uh, I've, I've spoken to so many low budget filmmakers and they, you know, they talk about, it's like rolling that boulder up the mountain, right? You just put this massive amount of effort and it's just moving the scale, just a little tiny inch every single time you do this massive amount of work. But, uh, like you said, Mixed results out there, but I mean, uh, the the proof is in the pudding. We have the dead next door for all to enjoy. Well, and um, the great the great thing about it too was was because I literally saw it through to the end. You know, including shipping the stuff out and mm-hmm. and and having and seeing the reactions of people. There was tons of posts on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and whatnot as people were getting it, and just it, that really made it absolutely worth it to see that people appreciated it for you know for what it was, and and the and the, the crowdfunding thing went off flawlessly i mean uh, you know yes i didn't hit my goal but everybody that got it loved it and was happy and and you know we sh- I, I was within reason of of my of the goal of when i wanted to ship it you know it was a little bit mm. later than i would have liked to but but nobody complained you know what i mean i see all these <laughs> crowdfunding nightmares that people have yes. where they don't get what they and i've actually seen people on on forums and stuff mentioned that the dead next door as like a model of how this should be done you know which is sort of cool you know because it's like i said it that was like a full-time job in itself just to maintain that so it's nice to see that people appreciated it well now, now you've set up expectations for robot <laughs> yeah well exactly there's nowhere to go but up right <laughs> Uh, again, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us, Jr. For those who want to keep up uh, and they want to purchase themselves a copy of The Dead Next Door, where's the best way for them to do that? What's the best way for them to keep up on uh, on potential progress on Robot Ninja or any other work you might have coming out? Well, there's a uh, – I now have social media for Robot Ninja. There's a an Instagram account and a Facebook page. Both are I Am The Robot Ninja. Uh, if you just go facebook.com <laughs> forward slash I am the robot ninja or instagram.com, et cetera. Um, that's probably the, that, that's where I'm posting most of the stuff. Some of the stuff winds up on the Tempe Twitter account, but uh, it's, I'm pretty easy to find on, on social media. Cause I, like I said, that next door and robot ninja both have their own sort of dedicated portals. So, Theoretically, if you were going to uh, oh, put this, <laughs> put I see these... where this question's going. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's just that if 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 people were wanting to get excited, I mean, about this robot ninja release, the social media is being created. Is there a potential late quarter two thousand seventeen, early two thousand eighteen? Do you have an, an idea, or is it just too early to tell? Um. Well, I, I don't feel like I have enough done yet, and there's there's a lot of irons in the fire on the things sure. that I that I want to do. Um, I wanted to do it in the spring, much like I had done the Dead Next Door two years earlier, um, and then it's sort of like I've just got been busy all summer and and not you know d- doing other things just to to keep the bills paid. And it's it's just, it's I'm not as far along as I would like to be. And now we're of course we're in it's September when we're 
having this discussion. So now we're heading into the holiday season, which I think Mm -hmm. is probably a terrible time to do something like that. So I would say probably closer to next spring would be maybe a target date for, for such a thing. And hopefully it will help now that I have this new the next door edition out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If I can, if I can move a few more platters of that thing, then that, that might help move things along too. You heard it folks. Buy yeah. yourself a copy. Even if you already have a copy of the dead next door, why not have a backup one? Hey, the holiday season is coming along. Why not have one? <laughs> put it, put it in your, in your, in your favorite child's stocking. Uh, hey, it's worth sure. it for the fancy slipcover alone. There you go. Hey, you heard it from the man himself. And of course, uh, if you do follow JR on uh, on social media, harangue him uh, with constant messages asking, where is Robot Ninja? We want Robot Ninja. Yeah, because it's sort of quieted down. I, I, I put a few teaser pictures up there and, mm-hmm. and people were all, I was getting all this buzz and then I sort of just let it, you know, decline a little bit because I was like, oh, this is taking longer than I would like. So, but uh, I'm sure as I, as I have progress, I'll throw some stuff out there and get folks well, jazzed again. There you go. Easy to find. Check out The Dead Next Door, Robot Ninja, and the rest of the work of J.R. Bookwalter. Thank you so much, J.R. Uh, no problem. We, you have allowed us to be part of your history, which is uh, the greatest compliment to us. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and really just having you here uh, chatting with us briefly on our 100th anniversary episode. It, yeah, it, it congratulations. Be... That's a milestone. It's a milestone. You know, we started in October of 2011. It's one of the slowest milestones. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, believe me, I relate to that. I know how that goes. Yeah, yeah we, we literally should have hit this two years ago, but, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, late bloomers. <laughs> exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. Quality over quantity, theoretically. And just, just know, guys, that I will come calling for that Robot Ninja episode at yes, some point. You'll, you'll know when I'm getting close when I come calling for that episode. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. When you do come calling for that, our answer is going to be, please let us record something new. <laughs> 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 well maybe we'll do uh maybe we'll do dual commentary because we got to kick it up a notch right you got to do that's one, right that's one right. better or maybe we'll do a video commentary or i don't know we'll figure some crazy thing out but. i mean i it, it sounds like your ambition is already growing as we're oh no this is going to be ridiculous people are going to be like i can't believe this fucking movie got this kind of release <laughs> whatever it is i'm in that's all i'm saying <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, Jr. And uh, and uh, again, uh, the best of luck on any future releases. And everybody, yeah, let him know you want to see Robot Ninja sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah, so I can get off my butt and do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Jr. Bookwalter, the director of The Dead Next Door, Robot Ninja, amongst uh, many other films. What was the movie that you most enjoyed? Was it Ozone that you mentioned? I know I mentioned Ozone and Polymorph. Polymorph, that's right. I mean, I've, yeah. obviously, everyone should check out the entire filmography of JR. Uh, and yeah, we are definitely looking forward to that Robot Ninja release whenever it may happen. And again, if it ends up going oh. the, the crowdfunding uh, route, uh, we're definitely going to contribute to it. Because guess what, Mo? We got to get on that sucker. We need to get on that release. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> we we kind of campaigned for it. I, I think at one point, <laughs> you can hear JR in the interview He's expecting us to say that you need to let us do an audio commentary on it. And he kind of gets ahead of it where he gets like, he sounds kind of exhausted at the very idea. (laughs) (laughs) 
But he's like, and, and you know, I think he even says at one point that you know he could always use the episode, and we beg him to let us record a new fucking commentary track for it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, please don't use that episode. Look, it's just been please. a long time. I don't even remember anything about what we may have said. I may have mispronounced his name about thirty goddamn times. You probably did. I probably did. So back to him, Jr. Brookwalter. <laughs> Look, I was a young man back then. <laughs> <laughs> So, you might recall, Mo, J-10 has gone up to visit his friend. Oh, we're back to this. Uh-huh. Thing. He's going to uh, jack him. He's going to jack yes. him for, for I guess, cocaine or whatever. Little twist. Little Do they ever explain what they're supposed to be getting? I'm not. I don't bag? think so. I'm just going to guess that it's more drugs. But in a uh, M. Night Shyamalanian twist, <laughs> J-10 returns to the car and his friend didn't answer the door. He had just called him on the payphone, said he was coming right over. But when J10 goes up there and knocks on the door, his friend just ain't home. What a flake. He really did flake out. But I'll tell you. He did. Uno does. He ain't going out like that. (laughs) (laughs) Him. He's like, mister, you march your ass back up there with me. Uno does. And we're going to knock on that door fruitlessly for as long as it takes for nothing to fucking happen. So they both go together. They they walk in real time to this this apartment. They knock on the door. No one answers. They knock on it again. No one answers. They argue about the fact that the guy should be home. And then they just fucking leave. <laughs> yeah. This this movie this movie is like the equivalent of like video games that force you to backtrack. Uh, an, across entire levels for nothing. It's like a fetch mission, except yeah. you literally have nothing to fetch. There's nothing yeah. there at the end. Right, exactly. I want you to go literally across the entire map. You can't fast travel. You can't take a car. You have to walk. <laughs> and when you get there, there's nothing. So uh, then they decide just to leave. And they're driving around, and like for the next several minutes, it's just a point of view shot of them driving while they argue about the fact that that guy wasn't home. Let's have a little listen to what that sounds like. Damn, Holmes, so what the fuck's up with your homie and shit, fuck, eh? Fuck, eh? Where the ex- fuck was he at and shit, Hey, that puto was supposed to be there, eh? I expected him there, eh? That fool never tried that shit, eh, see? Fuck, Holmes, what the fuck's up with your homie and shit, eh? Where the fuck was he at and shit, eh? That fool's always coming through and shit, eh, see? I don't know what the fuck's up with him tonight, eh? Hey, is he pulling shit all the time or what, eh? Nah, eh? He's usually cool and shit, eh? He was around. says... He never pulls this shit. Yeah, but does he pull this shit all the time? What's up with your homie and shit? He's like, I don't know. <laughs> So they're very upset, Mo. But yeah. you know, life goes on. As the emptiness hey, sirrah, sirrah. as the emptiness theme song said, life goes on and so do we. Mm-hmm. Just how it happens is no mystery. I think it's something like that. Sometimes the difference can be hard to find. That's something I will never be. Now, you're yeah, b- sorry, I, sorry, I don't follow Golden Girls spin-off oh, shows. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, a spin-off it it eclipses the original. <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm, was, I'm sure. I'm I'm sure the new uh, young. Uh, oh, I can't even fucking Sheldon. remember his name. Now. Young yeah, Sheldon. The young Sheldon show is going to be fantastic Look, and not insulting at all. Well, when that gets to season twelve, Mo, and no one remembers this Big Bang, whatever. <laughs> so, who's this Jonathan Lipnicki fellow guy? <laughs> that's not even the right. That's not even the right guy. That's the Jonathan kid from fucking Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Johnny, do you know the, the human head Johnny? weighs eight pounds, Mo? That's what's really important. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, what's what's that fucking actor's name? I can't fucking John Johnny Galecki. Johnny Galecki, that's the idiot from the Roseanne show. I don't give a shit. So, <laughs> John Galecki. <laughs> the, the locos are driving around, upset and dejected about that person not answering their door. Uh, and in in what really was the most useless sequence in a movie of useless sequences. So Pattered. they need to go back to their pad. And they're going to grab some equipment. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They need to grab some extra cuffs, a duffel bag, and some pipes. Then they're going to call the last guy, the guy with the equipment. They're also going to ask him for some coke. And like then they're going to steal his equipment, steal his cocaine. And, you know, basically, and this is really key. They're also going to steal his money. But oh. they don't call it money, Mo. They call it the fetia. They say they're going to wait for him to pull out the fetia. And then they're going to jack that. They're going to jack the cocaine. They're going to jack the equipment. It's like Shaft's big score over here. Uh, yeah, sure it is. Sure. <laughs> so once I was trying, I was trying in my head. I was trying to figure out in what world it's like Shaft's big score. But yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like a big score. Yeah, they're going to get the Fetty. That's emote. literally where that. That's literally where that ends. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna get the I can't I can't wait for hip hop locos goes to Africa. <laughs> they're happens, they're gonna yeah. get the coke or the coca as they like to say. They're gonna get the uh-huh. equipment and they're gonna get the fedia. And once he takes out the fedia, this guy, it's on Holmes. They're gonna jack his ass Holmes and they're gonna take all that motherfucking equipment. Mm-hmm. Then it goes back to a close up now in color of their faces. This Ooh. is when he pulls out the cell phone. Right. This is where he pulls out the cell phone and he calls the guy with the equipment and uh, and he talks to him. And I mean, he makes clear reference to the fact that the guy sells cocaine. I'm sure the guy's mm-hmm. really happy that he's talking about that on the phone. <laughs> uh, is this a, is this a secure line? No. He asks him about if he's still fucking with that equipment and shit. And apparently the guy denies it, <laughs> even though this is only one side of a conversation. Uh, but right. anyway, so. Basically, they say that they're going to be over at this guy's place in 20 minutes, and then they uh, leave and go to head over to his pad. But before they, but not before smoking some more. Not before smoking some more, and not before the very fetishistic scene of them putting each of their items in a duffel bag. So they put the cocaine at the bottom of the bag. I mean, Uno Dos says specifically to J10, put it at the bottom of the bag. Then they put the gun in the bag. They put the handcuffs in the bag. They put a wrapped pipe in there. Now, this is all in black and white. Then they slow, like, as they're doing it, they're caressing each item and they're talking about it. Like, when they have the gun, they're like, <laughs> gotta pop his ass, Holmes. Right? right? Right. Then he picks up the gun again. Then he says to put the coca on top. So they take the coke from the bottom and they put it on top. And, like, who fucking cares about any of this? Like, how unnecessary is all of this? Couldn't he have just said in the car, wow, we have a duffel bag with pipes, handcuffs, drugs, and a gun in it. Okay, Holmes, let's go fucking jack this guy. Right. Makes me very angry and upset, Mo, to think about all the time that we're wasting with this duffel bag. I am angry and upset that we thought it was a good idea to recover this movie because, my God, this is tedious. It does seem, it does, like, I felt like it, it added a little bit of symmetry to our 100th episode to cover. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it no, makes no. sense. In, in that sense, you are right. But, but this movie dot, fucking dot. blows. It's really it's bad. So, it's so fucking bad. I sometimes you know? tell people, yeah, I'm, I'm sure this happens to you, Mo. Like we, this is not a bad movie podcast. No budget nightmares. It's not. In our yeah, episodes. I, 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 it, 
I very explicitly tell people because like I, like I get a lot of people podcasting comes up every now and again uh, when I'm at work or whatever and they'll talk and, and, and we'll discuss that. I'll be like, oh, I've been doing a podcast for a while now, you know, and, uh, and and somebody will say, well, what kind of show do you do? And I say, well, I do a show based on, you know, low and micro budget film. Right. And they go, oh, those really bad movies. I said, no, 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 no. It's not about bad. Yeah. It's about low budget. You know, we do cover bad movies. It happens. But that's not the intention of the show. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I think that's important to tell people because, but it also, it provides a certain amount of perspective for yourself and myself in that when people say, oh, you like bad movies. I'm like, no, no, you know, I don't go out of my way to watch bad movies. Well, you know, you like The Room or you like Miami Connection or you like Birdemic or whatever. I'm like, look, our, our, our bottom is much lower than the bottom of a lot of podcasts. The movies are worse, yeah. but we're not here yeah. for that. You know, the, even though we're going to list at the, at the end of this the worst movies that we've covered, that is not the accomplishment. The accomplishment is when they're good. That's what we want. We, we're not right. here to watch bad movies. But, Mo, that does bring us to our next super secret interview. Ooh. I will say, Mo, that of our interviews that we've done... Uh, and we haven't done many on this podcast. Of the ones that we've done, I think this might be my favorite. This is, uh, if this is the one I think it is, and it should be. It should be. <laughs> you know, we host this together, yeah. Mo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I had to quickly run through my head and remind myself which ones were happening and when. Um, that this this is like a long time coming. Like, I'm, I'm, I am I was very, very excited when we were able to land this particular interview. We landed it. Now, this one came together. We did. Yeah, we did. Uh, it came together in a very kind of natural way. Uh, I had purchased a film from this gentleman for a use on an episode, and he re- reached out to me. And I actually reminded him that I had I interviewed him via email years before. Um, this is a director who we've covered four Different times on the podcast, Mo. Yeah. I believe that might be, outside of one other director, it might be the, the director that we've covered the most. I th- Yeah, it's our, it's our second most covered director, without a doubt. This director <laughs> uh, made a movie called Suburban Sasquatch. Oof. He made a movie called Fungicide. He made a movie called Malevolent Ascent. Blah. And he made a movie called Tartarus. Meh. What's his name, Mo? <laughs> Dave Wascavage. Dave Wascavage, he talked to us. Look, Dave seems like the nicest guy on the entire planet. I absolutely had a blast talking to Dave. He He was was willing to talk about everything and anything. And there was a Uh, point, and you might be able to hear it when you hear this interview, where I suddenly was struck with the realization that if I didn't ask a certain question, people who listen to our (laughs) show would be pissed at us. Yes. And I... Suddenly felt fear in my heart because I was afraid I was going to A, ruin the interview, and B, offend this super nice guy who was being so kind to about everything in regards to this interview. But guess what? Not only was he not offended, he was he could not have been nicer in terms of the response. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was so great. But uh, I will let our audience in on this little tidbit that if Doug hadn't asked about this... I would have. Yeah, Mo was going to ask. Absolutely. I was already going to ask about it. So Doug just beat me to the point. Yeah. But it's fine because I'm glad the question got out there. I don't care how it got out there. 
I also uh, we should we should we should we should. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say we also hip him to a slight error in one of his movies, which he could not have found more amusing. <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> uh, he later uh, emailed us to say how much he enjoyed doing the interview. So let's let's just jump into it. It's the uh, director of No Budget Nightmares Classic Suburban Sasquatch. It's Dave Waskovich. Let's listen to him. Some would some would argue some would argue the mascot. Of so, budget night. I mean, you could certainly make that. Sasquatch. Absolutely. So let's listen to yeah. him right now. And here we are with uh, Dave Waskavage on the phone with us, with Mo and myself. Mo, say hello so people can be sure that you are there. Hello. Hello. Mo is here. I am here. It is our hundredth episode of No Budget Nightmares. So why not have one of the filmmakers that we featured the most often on the show? Uh, we've uh, we've talked about. Uh, fungicide or fungicide, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Suburban Sasquatch, uh, recently, uh, Tartarus, and of course, Malevolent Ascent. Dave, thanks, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us on our 100th episode. This is incredibly exciting for us. Hey, thank you both. I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative uh, for you guys taking the time, and congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. That's phenomenal. I mean, it's wonderful to be pursuing your passions and bringing the message out to the people. So good job to you, and, and thank you for the nice welcome. I, you know what? I, uh, yeah, I've no, me- Paul, please. I, I've mentioned this joke earlier, but we should have reached this hundred hundredth episode two years ago. But we're <laughs> we're, 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 we're we're keep on rolling. <laughs> yeah, we we sometimes uh, you know we we aim for a bi monthly schedule, and then sometimes life gets in the way. Sometimes massive catastrophic weather events get in the way oh, yeah. <laughs> in regards to what Mo has been going through lately. But uh, you know we, we're happy to be here. We're happy to be celebrating with people that. Uh, that we love and respect and and that we have featured so deeply and actually refer back to all the time, in particular uh, in regards to Suburban Sasquatch. Dave, I have a question for you to start off with, and it might be a little bit of an unusual question, and I apologize in advance. Do people ever mistake you for the founder of Scientology? Not the founder, but the current head guy of Scientology. I think his name is Dave Miskevich. You know, that's a great question. I've actually wondered that in my car when I hear his name thrown about frequently in, in reference to Scientology. I keep thinking, someone's going to come up to me and say, like, aren't you that guy that, like, has Tom Cruise under his spell or something like that? Like, I'm just <laughs> waiting for it to happen. But unfortunately, no one's confused my finances with his. That's the one I'm hoping <laughs> No, no, sadly enough. You know, the funny thing is, I do remember my, uh, my grandmother once telling me, uh, she said, well, you know, the... You know, our name isn't really Waskavage. And, you know, when I'm 12, I'm like, okay, well, what's this mean? It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a Slavic name. And my background being Polish, Ukrainian, uh, you know, Czechoslovakian, uh, quite a lot of uh, Eastern European mix, uh, she truncated it and made it um, a little bit more phonetic to make the spelling easier, which uh, my wife always laughs at. And she's like, yeah, well, it could have been a little bit easier than Waskavage. You know, it is a bit. <laughs> of a mouthful to say there, but uh, but anyway, so no, no, unfortunately, no relation uh, to the the financial wizard of uh, that religion. Boy, I, I I should have made a religious movie. I think I think I may would have done some good finances there, but but I passed you know, that Dave, question. <laughs> a, a plus on that one, Dave. I, I, I should have just said I should have just said no, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, uh, actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because. There is sort of a spiritual component to some of your films, uh, particularly uh, Tartarus, which has, you know, very much a, a, an idea of the 
uh, of karma and what you do in life and how that affects you in the afterlife. And there's the the indigenous aspect of suburban Sasquatch. Is that something I know that, you know, I don't want to get into too deep territory here, but is that something that you're interested in exploring in your films? I, I think not, not really. I mean, you don't want to uh, become a one-note uh, director, writer, or, or artistic uh, source, right? You don't want to repeat the same theme over and over. And I think with the two films you mentioned, um, unlike uh, many of my other films, they had the more religious aspect. I think with Suburban Sasquatch, what I was trying to do was I was trying to show this, this, um, this oneness that existed and then we're all part of it and connected, but there was one distinct branch that was sort of sticking out on the, on the side, and was obviously that was the Suburban Sasquatch. And I was just trying to show that the male, uh, which was the Suburban Sasquatch, was distinctly different than everything else. Um, w- when it came to Tartarus, that was really more of, of a... Um, I won't say a stab, but more of a connection between the, the, the Christian mythos and the Greek mythos, you know, with, with Tartarus being uh, sure. the residing place in the afterlife for, for heroes and, and really more with the concept of well, what if we had this um, uh, semicircular uh, post-life where uh, heaven or hell were, were really just ex- exit ramps off this circular highway and, and you had to get there via processing your previous life, so to speak, and whatever you were able to do to achieve or to succeed to escape it. Um, but, but I did not purposely go out of way to make those central themes. They think they were just uh, helping along the way, right? Let's little supportive structures to help. Somebody comes in and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I had that perspective too, and maybe it was just something that would tag along with the story. Sure. Now, in, in regards to Trouble Moon Films, your, your uh, production company, let's say, um, do you feel like you have an ethos around the kind of movies that you want to make? I mean, obviously, it's it's meant to be a distributor for your movies, but you as a filmmaker, what's, what are the kind of movies that you most enjoy and that you kind of want to bring to the world? The uh, the, the difficulty that, that I faced with the company and naming it and, and its structure was that uh, it I really always had a love of B-movies, sci-fi, horror, like, and, and goofy comedies. And, and all of my films have, have that touched on a bit, and, and a bit of the eccentric melodrama, I'll call it, that was, that's almost over the top. But <laughs> if you're in the frame of mind to really get into it, you're like, wow, that's so cool kind of thing. But uh, Trouble Moon Films, you know, when I named it, it really was looking at more of like a more horror aspect. And I almost felt like when I created the company in my I'm um, going to narrow my focus too much and be chained into this. And what happens if I want the, the media to expand beyond films? You know, am I going to be limited by what it represents? But at, at some point, you know, when you're early on, like when, when I created the company, it was after Side was actually made, uh, you, you just got to fish it or cut bait. So I just had to go ahead, just, just take that stroke of an idea, stick with it. And, uh, and then, it's just, then it's just kind of stuck because, you know, it's just trying to give you an, an off-centered feeling, which the films really try to support, an off-centered, weird vibe to them. You know, just something a little eerie and, uh, you know, my, it's my first pass at being somewhat dramatic, right? <laughs> now, I t- I, in my brain, I kind of lump Fungicide and Suburban Sasquatch together because they're both monster movies uh, in, in one way or another. They both kind of mix practical effects with computer-generated effects. Now that you're about 15 years out from fungicide how do you feel about those early movies uh, can you see anything but the flaws or have you come uh, or is it more one of those things where you you see the charm in some of these early efforts how do you feel about them well it, you can't help but look through it with a with a corrective lens in your mind and i say that because you look at it and you're like oh my gosh that really is awful looking but it's not surprising to me as the creator because 
when I created them, I knew those flaws were there, but I was limited by the technical capabilities I had. Like, sure. I mean, it's very easy to look at it and say, like, oh, my gosh, like, who could put a film together that's just so bad and so obvious? And to me, I'm on the other side saying, wow, I can't believe I achieved that because that's way better than I thought I could ever do my whole life. You know, I'm, and you're talking shoestring budget, self-taught sure. with CGI and, and really, really rudimentary tools, especially compared with what's out there today. So, so mm. I, I knew that I was limited at the time, but I did the best that I could. And, and that's, I think, what matters the most, right? If you, you tried your best and you didn't just say, add a heck, I'm going to let this skip or slide. You know, I'm, I'm really not going to invest any time in it. You gotta, you gotta take what you can do and put the amount of effort in that makes the whole project come out. Like there's stuff in fungicide that I, I know when I even did the film, like this is just not right. But my thought at the time was, is this film was really just a test to see if I could do a structured script and sure. some level of rudimentary effects. And maybe 30 people are gonna see it. And if anything else happens, oh, that'll be great. Well, you know, then it gets international sales and, and you get some money <laughs> in and you, and, and you get an audience and you're like, oh, my God, well, I hope I don't say that. I hope I don't say that. And, but the beauty of it, too, is people will look at it and they'll say, like, oh, well, this is absually horrible, this part or that part was terrible. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what about the script? You thought that was passable, I guess, or this dialogue here was okay or that acting there was okay. Like, like you begin to realize for its flaws, there are so many other advantages that you were able to, to pull over on people and think, well, okay, you, you bought that much. That's pretty good. So let's, let's iterate on those successful pieces and then keep trying to improve. So hopefully people will see uh, a, a leap in technological, writing, acting, uh, all sorts of skill sets between fungicide and super fast watch. And that's what, you, what you're hoping to do, right? You want to achieve some improvement as you go through each project. Um, but but uh, but I have to admit though, if I watch them today, I mean, part of me inside groans, but the other part is just laughing over it's you know it's it's sheer silliness. Sure, and I'm sure there's I, I know that it might seem rather quick to have a sense of nostalgia about it, but I imagine having uh, worked on films myself, that when you watch these these movies with a lot of of distance in terms of years, you start to think about the making of it. You start to think about all those stories that went into the actual production, and it becomes. Instead of a movie, you can't even really watch it in, in, on, uh, on its own level. All of those kind of emotions and memories kind of play into that, that viewing. Uh, so it kind of becomes more than itself because, you know, 15 years is a pretty long time. Oh, yeah. You, you, like, I'll watch scenes in Suburban Sasquatch, and I'll feel the same level of stress I had during shooting certain scenes, thinking, <laughs> oh, I remember when this happened. It was so difficult to get that shot. And at the same time, you look at some things, you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I pulled that off. Like uh, an actress might have turned her back slightly or the light hit the right way. You're like, oh, if I only really intended it to happen, I could feel proud about it. But it ended up looking up great. So you look at stuff and you, you, you're both happy and sad. You're right. The nostalgia absolutely plays into it, and it does drive your emotions to a part. And you can't separate yourself, right? As a, as a creator, you're looking at there and you're still living through it, but you can't see it from the perspective of being in the audience to enjoy it as an audience member may. When when those movies were released and people were seeing them and reviewing them and talking about them, you know, certainly uh, they have a niche that people were very interested in them. Did you find yourself particularly sensitive to criticism at the time that it came out? Was that difficult to hear people, especially when they it must seem a little bit personal when someone says, you know, that the uh, that, that maybe they're making a comment about, say, the Sasquatch sued in Suburban Sasquatch or the quality of the CG and fungicide. Is that something that you were taking personally at the time? And is that something that you that as a filmmaker, you just kind of had to deal with and move on? 
No, I, I, I did not take any of it personally. I mean, when I set out on this, I just, you know, I'd remind myself, I think, you know, people are going to skewer this and they're going to, you know, pick this apart and they're going to, I mean, I, mean, I was already mentally prepared for any of that level <laughs> of criticism to come. But the funny thing is, is that it, it, I knew that if I got to the point where I was receiving criticism, well, then that means I'm getting an audience. The people are actually watching it. Like, sure. I was just impressed that people would say, gee, let me see it. You know, and people weren't shutting it off five, ten minutes into it. I mean, they're actually entertained enough to watch it. And whether you hate it or laugh at it or whatever, I mean, if you've watched the thing, you know, I mean, that's, that's fantastic to me. You know, it's the fact that it gives you something to have an opinion over. But no, I mean, there's been... I mean, look, I've seen so many films in my life, and some of them, the critics rave, and it makes a ton of movie, and I'll just look at scenes, I'm like, I don't get it, or, or I would laugh at horror movies that I would love, and, and I would laugh at the overtopness of it, or, or the what tried to be gross but looked so fake, and it wasn't a laugh at the people who worked hard to put their time into it. It was a laugh because I was so emotionally invested and just so giddy the fact that the wool was trying to be pulled over to my eyes and maybe I could see through it, but it still didn't take away from the enjoyment of it. So I looked at these as very complex, enjoyable pieces. And like I said, too, too like uh, for people to say, like, oh, I could see the, the costume, you know, I, the first thing I think is, is like, yeah, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. How come I couldn't do a better costume? Okay, well, I didn't have the time or I didn't have the budget. I didn't have people to do it. And, you know, you, you, I don't want these things to be 10-year projects to get completed. I want to get it sure. out there. So you got to cut corners, and that's okay. It's, it's fair level set criticism. It's no big deal. Look, you, I, I remember I had uh, some people who said, look, you know, Dave, I hope you're not offended, but we came up with this drinking game. And I'm like, well, I don't, I'm not, I don't mind it. And I said, well, I would appreciate you telling me what it was. And they said it was, um, <laughs> it was for fungicide. They said every time somebody makes a smart-ass comment, you got to take a shot. And, and they were really worried I'd be upset. And I thought, wow, you know, I never even looked at the script from that perspective. And here you find out there's like 30 snarky comments that go out in the first hour. And like, oh, that's yeah. so funny. Like to, to, so you learn from the audience as well. You learn what they see and how they see it. And, and you can either choose to incorporate what you've learned in your next film, or you could embrace it and, and go down the pit further and make something like Zombies by Design like I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am absolutely going to do that the next time I watch Fun decide because that is a really good idea okay, now hold uh, up disclaimer yeah you you may not want to do that because i don't know how many well, i'm not going to take shots <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to die <laughs> i I, right, actually, right. I actually wouldn't mind jumping in here real quick so uh here on the show we have uh we have an ongoing thing where we really enjoy watching movies that people seem like they're having a lot of fun uh, while making it and suburban Sasquatch is always one of the go-tos for that one. And I'm sure, I'm sure that our audience would love to know a, just how fun was it to make that movie? And B, if you have any like good, uh, like, um, on set stories, you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Oh boy. I have a million stories. I, it would be difficult to pull <laughs> yes. any individual one out, but I'll try and I'll, I'll try and skim some real quick. Sure, sure. So, so the first uh, quick answer is, is, yeah, there there was so much laughter going on through the movie, and I'll be uh, the first of it. The first person that laughed the most was me, and I would ruin so many takes for people, and I'd be laughing, and they'd say, "Why are you laughing?" And then, I don't think I was able to articulate it. It's like you know, there's this joy that you get because in your mind, at least how I did it, like when I wrote the film in um, uh, the fall of 2003, uh, when I would visualize. Uh, the movie, I'm sorry, excuse me, fall 2002, when I would visualize the movie in my mind, I would actually see these things happen. I'd quick write it down. 
and then you revise the script and you, you change it so it changes again. And then when you shoot it with an actor and actress, it comes out again. But when you actually see somebody act out what you've imagined a year before, it was, it's, it's beautiful. It was really kind of cool. And I'd be so giddy with joy. I'd be laughing. So there'd be these goofy moments where, you know, someone's wrestling with Bigfoot and I'm giggling like a little schoolgirl. Like, what's so funny about this? Well, besides the obvious, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, because it's so cool to see. Uh, but no, I, I will say this much, that the cast and crew uh, were amazing. Everybody loved it, uh, but everybody was very serious. Nobody was like taking an attitude of like, I don't care about this. Everybody was really vested in having it turn out to be the best experience possible. Right. But, you know, we, we would laugh over things like when Sulin Sanchez, would, she did her like nine-foot triple somersault flip over <laughs> Bigfoot's head. It was really a jump in the woods of two feet. And and. People are giggling, like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm filming you jump over the camera. It looked like you jump over this big Bigfoot. So she's hopping and skipping in the middle of these leaves, and we got like four people and the crew just sitting around there, three actors. They're just laughing, and she's just like jumping through the woods like she's in some kind of gymnastics team, laughing as she's doing it, doing these quick turnarounds. <laughs> and I'm, I'm picturing in my mind some Matrix super triple flip back somersault. <laughs> so, um, but that, and also obviously any scene where Bigfoot was involved sure, sure. was hysterical. Cause first of all, this didn't happen with the women, but every male on set would practically be lined up to say, can I have a turn in the costume? So <laughs> the, uh, the scene where, where, uh, Tala is fighting Bigfoot, like right after he comes through the mist and all, and, uh, she's about to shoot him in mist. Uh, Juan Fernandez wanted to get in the costume. So he gets the costume. He's like the fourth, per- fourth person in there, so it's smelling rank by this time. <laughs> but he couldn't wait to do a Bigfoot walk. Like it, was like, it was like going to church for him. <laughs> and the great thing is, is when he gets in there, he's, he's like, well, how should I do it? I'm like, well, you know, you've got to walk like Bigfoot walks. You know, here I am, the best director in the world, right? So he starts, <laughs> he starts walking along like he's on the set from Saturday Night Fever. He's doing some kind of jig across the highway, and we are laughing, and he can't hear me yell, cut, and he's just walking through the woods. He's going out in the road. There's a car come down. I'm like, Juan, stop. Car driving down the road, like with the guy in the Bigfoot costume, doing like a Saturday Night Fever, like gigolo dance. Like, what the heck is this going on here? So you, you, you take all this stuff in stride. You know, you, you just got to learn to laugh with it, but, but everybody would – would be dead serious when I would say, uh, you know, uh, you know, action. And then when I would say cut, it'd be a sigh of relief and there'd be me giggling on the floor. Um, <laughs> but also the battle scene where Bigfoot was, uh, fighting all the people, uh, you know, the hunters that were coming up with Zeke and the gunshots and everything. There was a lot of meticulous work with, with the tubing to make him urinate his pants and stepping on the guy's head. But, <laughs> but having the, the, the hunters, I'm like, okay, we'll run up here now. He's going to swat you on the head. Just, it was so much laughter. In fact, I'll give you a little clue in the film here. There was one scene where, where one of the actors rolled over because his neck was slashed. And somebody uh-huh. comes right by him. He's like, dude, dude, are you okay? If you listen really closely, you hear the audio dip out really quiet, really quickly. And the music doesn't really cover it. The audio dips really quickly. And that's because I was laughing while the guy <laughs> said, dude, are you okay? And I had to drop it and dub in some additional audio. But there's one piece I couldn't get. It's just because of my laughter. I had to be cut out of there. I'm going to keep my Dave, eye out for that. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. D- Dave, whatever happened to the Sasquatch suit? Oh, it's still up in, the, it's, uh, up in my attic. I got that. I'm not getting <laughs> rid of that. There's certain things that I figure, you know, I have to be able to pass on to my daughter so she could say, oh, my God, I can't believe this actually <laughs> happened. But also, you know, I, I did keep it because I was, uh, when Suburban Sasquatch was written, I had actually written it as a trilogy. And I figured, well, I'll keep the suit because someday, you know, I'll come back and, and I might write them and, and shoot this film. So it ended up, you know, that I 
probably could write it as a, a one other film. Like I have a, the, I've pared it down to two films, but it's always there waiting, ready to go. Not getting rid of that. So is that a tease? Is that a tease for Suburban Sasquatch 2 that we're hearing on this interview? I'll tell yeah, you right now, I, I, if, you, I, if you start a Kickstarter, I'm, I'm, I'm donating. Oh, I thank you. You know, I, but here's the thing. I, would, I could never take money from people to create one of these because, I, I mean, look, when, when I say low budget, I mean low budget. So they're relatively <laughs> easily funded. The, the, the biggest cost is the time. And there are so many people, God bless them, that really express their interest in money to be engaged in the films and help out and and i hate to say no to have people involved but there are so many people i would love to to have to come back to be in the film and to enjoy to either revisit their roles or or just to be involved and be a part of it because it's been a very fun experience and having uh, i will say the global um, response has been very helpful uh but yeah you know i mean i I, i've got the treatment ready i've got pieces of script ready it's just a matter of finding the time that that if i can ever get around to do it i think my, my biggest problem here is that the technology has advanced so much, right? The quality right. of films is so sure. good now. And, and, and I'll look at these things and I'll say there's no way I could match that. I mean, I'm, I'm so outrun now. And, and, you know, as you age, you look at things differently. And, and, and maybe what I create now wouldn't have the same zeitgeist and, pay, and uh, pace sure. and humor. Like, you, you, you've changed your perspective. And, and now the way I, the where I am in life, I'm, Maybe I want to put a little more philosophical bent on it, you know. And and and, and if I'm a fan and I want to suburban Sasquatch too, maybe that's not going to appeal to me. So I have to consider: do I do I want to line up with what I originally wrote would be the second and third films combined into two, or do I want to redo it where I think I have a better idea of where I'd like to see it happen? And I wouldn't want to do that. Right? So so I've struggled with going back and forth with what do, what do I do if I'm going to do it? Am I going to shoot to do a true sequel? But people might say it's a rehash, or do I go for the original idea and, and try to gussy it up a bit to meet a modern audience's need? Hmm. I've got an idea for you. Suburban Sasquatch versus Fungicide. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there opening now, night. It's <laughs> crossing two timelines. Well, I will say that, that, uh, that uh, Mary, my wife, she had uh, come up with an idea for a Fungicide sequel, and we, we worked on this one. It was actually uh, what we were going to do was we were going to set it a hundred years earlier, and it wouldn't be a prequel so much as that it would be people in a Victorian age that lived the same experience, and and the uh, the way the film was going to end was that the fertile ground that they that the people died at, you know, with the with the uh, with the way that the mushrooms would killed in that time, would be the same ones where the mushrooms grew in the more modern <laughs> film. So we we're trying to explain how the ground became so good as part of the mythos. No, 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 no. I, the only thing I could tell you about Suburban Sasquatch, the sequel, is, is that um, there were clues that I put in the first film intentionally that would be supported in later film, and, and it comes in the key conversation where uh, Talon and her grandfather are talking, and I, I wanted to focus in on their lips uh, specifically because I wanted their faces in close-up to show that the dialogue they were saying was very instrumental to showing what her past was representative and how she was really more of an outcast from the tribe. And she had a lot of shame that she brought with her because it was the baggage that she had. And her grandfather was very, very well aware of it. So he was pretty pissed off about it. So that, that kind of lends a little bit about the history. And, and Tally even kind of mentioned something a little bit about it later on. But uh, that would be the side explorer. That's all I can say. That's all I can give you. Let your <laughs> imaginations run with that one. Yeah. I have a question that I have to ask, Dave. And I want you to know that it's coming from a very sincere place. There is a song that plays over the closing credits of Suburban Sasquatch, and I believe it's sung by your mother. Is that correct? <laughs> yep. 
can you tell us how that song came about and and like did you record that yourself how, how did it all happen I like everything you know I just try and take what I've got and see if I can't try to improve upon it in some way shape or form so uh, I don't know anybody uh, in my immediate circle at the time who was a good singer, but my mother, you know, she she goes with her retirees choir and they just sing occasions. <laughs> she had, you know, with retiree you know singing lessons, and I'd say, you know, mom, I really would love it if I had a vocal song at the end of the film. She's like, what the hell are you talking? I I don't know. She's like, but like a good mother, you know, she's trying to support me to do whatever you want. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna write this song and I'm gonna see if you could do some lyrics on it and. And my understanding of audio engineering at the time was, is, you know, I could probably smooth out the way her, her tone is and maybe try and have it jive with the pace of the song. Uh, so, uh, so we recorded it. Like, like, I don't have a studio, so we recorded it in my little uh, studio room with all this <laughs> echo. I didn't have any professional equipment. And she was actually had just taken a nap. I'm like, Mom, get up. You've you got to sing this part of the song. She's like, what? <laughs> what? And I'm like, Here's the, here's the lyrics, okay, okay, ready, go. And I'm playing the music in the background. She's like, I, I can't hear the music. I'm like, turn it up. And, and I'm like, well, here's the pace. It's like, so I, I don't know. Like, I, like, she couldn't get the beat. And I'm like, come on, the beat's right here. And she's like, it's like, uh, hear me. She's like, I'm not hitting the right notes. I'm like, whatever the hell, it's good, it's fine, it's fine, it's good. So I got like, I literally got like 15 minutes of her squabbling out something that she's like, I don't like that at all. I'm like, I don't worry about it. You're never going to hear it again. <laughs> throw it together, patched up, throw it in the end of the film, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be lying, Dave, if I said that we haven't taken that audio and used it in several of our episodes of our show because we love returning to it so much. We, in fact, we I, love when it we, so much. We do. We really <laughs> do love it. And again, we don't want anyone to think that we're mocking your mother oh. or anything like that mm -hmm. it's it's just such a i think that at that time after that movie during the closing credits it is something that kind of stands out at that point and it's one of those moments from the movie that is just unforgettable simply because there's there's a real kind of oddness to it oh yeah no no offense take a mock away i mean come on let's face it i mean you probably couldn't do much worse unless i sang it and it it's it lends itself to the cuteness of the overall project. But again, the whole intention was what can I do without hiring a singer and going through all the time to write the contracts? And, you know, what happens sure. if things, this thing blows up? Because, you know, there's a lot of intricacies of this. You know, legally, when this film sells in Russia and someone who sings it, they get a little bit of fame. They're going to want the contract written or say, you know, <laughs> you didn't write this properly. I don't want to deal with all that shit. I just want to get, oops, excuse me, I just want to get this thing out there. I just want to do whatever I can. And besides, you know what? One thing I learned from fungicide is, like I said, so many people didn't notice so many mistakes. Well, what else could I get away with? What else could I, could I try and achieve uh, to see what happens? And, and very much the same way, Tartarus was really uh, conceived. I, I, said, I said to Juan Fernandez, I said, look, I just wrote this script. This film's going to be 15 minutes. I'm just doing it because I got a new video camera, and I want to test out some colored gel lights I got and <laughs> some new CG techniques. And, so when I put it together, I showed him and a couple of the people and Dave Weldon. They're like, boy, this is really great. I'm like, really? I'm like, all right, well, I'll add 20 more minutes to it. And I expanded <laughs> it. And just, you know, why the heck not? You know, you see what you could do. Oh, no, no. The, 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 the whole lyrical thing and the whole song thing, it's, it's just funny when you hear the backgrounds to it. Like with Fungicide, I mean, Mary and I were just laughing the whole time. She's like, well, how am I going to sing this? I'm not even a singer. I'm like, look, think about a James Bond song, you know, like, like, um, Live and Let Die, bombastic, ultra dramatic. I said, just go for something goofy like that. It's, it's tongue in cheek, you know, it's just for fun. 
Hey, but don't don't get me wrong. If Shirley Bassey showed up on my doorstep after a quick Chianti, man, believe me, I'd have her singing for me. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, I have another question that, again, I don't want you to possibly think that we're we're mocking you or anything like that. But did you know that in the opening credits to Tartarus, that your name is spelled wrong? Oh, is it really? It is. I look. It's we're looking at things way closer than your average audience would be because we're taking yeah. so many notes. Yeah. But, and it, it says your name a few times there, but just once. I think it's on the director credit. It has your name spelled wrong. <laughs> and, and again, look, we we know what this this whole business is about. Uh, and and in fact, I found it just all the more endearing moving into the movie. But I thought I'd let you know all the same. Yeah, it's oh honestly the it's honestly the curse of copious note taking. Is what it is. Yeah. No, I think that's hysterical. I think that I, I I actually I'm going to go call up the file. I'm going to take a look at that because I am just so curious to see that. No, that's actually hysterical. And you know what really is funny too? You you when you put these things together, um, especially at least in my case when I'm putting these films together. There is no uh, validation process that takes place. So you create the sure. film, and, and you try and look at it, and you try and look for mistakes. And I'll tell you, you, you know, if it takes a year to do this thing from beginning to end, you're just watching so many pieces over and over and over. And so much, so much as it gets to the point where you're just like, ah, you know, I'm sure it's fine. I'm pretty, much, pretty sure I got everything. And sometimes you gloss over stuff, and that's probably an excellent example of glossing over. <laughs> I think that's great. It, yeah, I, lo- it, it, I love, and I love people. Yeah, I love people pointing out and, and, and finding things like this, saying, hey, did you realize, did you notice? Like, oh, my gosh, that's great. No, I didn't notice that. <laughs> I, again, I, I I don't want you to, to – I'm glad that you're taking it with such uh, good nature. I didn't want it to seem like this criticism that we're throwing out. It was just something we noticed because we watched it so recently. Um, I was wondering, Dave, what is your favorite of your own films? Oh, man. Uh, all right, so let me uh, stall for time so I can <laughs> – and I'll go back and say, no, I'm I'm not offended by anything. I, I just, like I said, I love it. I just get a kick out of talking about them. That's that's absolutely fun. And the funny thing is, is there's so many behind the scenes stories. You wish you could put all that together and compile and say to people, well, well, you know, here's what happened here, and here's what you didn't see off camera, and that kind of thing. Um, all right, so that's a difficult question to say. Which one's my favorite? There could be different favorites for different qualifying reasons, like which is my favorite because the script and story really meant a lot to me and its translation to screen worked out well, or there could be my favorite because of how the actors behaved, or there could be my favorite just because of the, the feeling that went into the, the post-production of it. Um, I'd probably have to say that, that my favorite was uh, Suburban Sasquatch. I think because it was, uh, and the reason is this, right? It, it's not to belittle any of the other ones, but it, at the time when I got done Fungicide, you had this fear of, okay, well, this film may turn into something, but I've always loved Bigfoot. Nobody's ever done a, a, like a really good action-packed Bigfoot film, or at least the ones I've seen were, were great and they were kitschy, but they had a lot of pauses in it, no really depth to the story. It was pretty much like sure. there's, this, there's this creature in the wood and he's killing people. Oh, my gosh, I'm surprised. Or where's Timmy? You know, like all this, these cliches, which were fine and fun, but I thought – what if I really tied in this really cool story about how Native Americans, which, you know, they've reported on seeing Bigfoot there for so many years. I thought, what if I was able to bring that all together? Uh, And I think there was such a joy in writing it. And and, and so many days I'd be writing this thing and I'd be thinking, hey, you know, this actually kind of fits together. I mean, it's not, 
the plot holes aren't so big you could drive a bus through them, you know, they're, they're pretty minimal, and I think I could pull off some of this, you know, it just felt like something I could actually do, and I never thought I'd be able to do something as such a big film, and it was a neat, neat challenge to perceive, and, and the process was challenging, but a lot of fun, like, even little things like when you see there's aerial shots, just knowing that I contacted a local airport, and I said, look, I'm just a, a relatively broke filmmaker, I'm pursuing my passion, it's a film about Bigfoot. I know you're laughing at me. And by the time you're done, someone's like, heck yeah, John will take you up. I'm like, oh, I'll, whatever it costs, John. What does it cost? 200 bucks? He goes, ah, I'm retired. Come on, let's go up and have some fun. Like little stories like that, you know, just, just, just the enjoyment. And by the way, a little FYI is after we landed at the airport, Mary and I got in the car and we went driving. We found the, the set where they were uh, filming the movie um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan. It came out, uh, what was it, the, the one with the colors? In the woods. Oh, the village. Oh, uh, the village. The village. Yeah, yeah. We 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 drove and we found this late where they were filming the village. Uh, wow. But it was anyway. It's those little things like that. Like like it's little neat stories that this this guy who's probably passed on now took his time to take me up in a plane, and all it accounts for is maybe a minute of footage in the film. But you feel a little joy to think about how all those things come together to make that final package. And I think Suburban Sasquatch was a big accomplishment. I think in that sense. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a, that's amazing, and you you know you can really see the jump in scope from fungicide to suburban Sasquatch as well. It just seems like such an expanded, bigger movie. You know, one of those ones that you can look back on, and there were just so many people involved. There's just so much. You know, we watch a lot of ultra low budget and micro budget films, and one of the things that we criticize is not you know the quality of the acting and the quality of the filmmaking at times. It really is when people don't seem to be putting effort in and that's one thing that i can say about all of your films the effort is right there on the screen you could see how hard you're working and again not every effect is going to be perfect not every performance is going to be perfect but you can see that everyone is just giving their all and that is always going to give a you know we're always going to give the the highest marks of respect for that oh cool yeah yeah no it's it's it truly is a, a, a passion pursuit and i think one of the biggest uh, mistakes I've made and consistently and continually I uh, had done was I could not wait to get the film done and let people in and, you know, be enjoyed by seeing it. What I should have done is you should take a few months and bring people in to be able to look at it and criticize and give you feedback to make it better. But I didn't want it to be spoiled by anybody. I didn't want anybody to have to see it three times before they actually got to see it with an audience. Like I was so excited <laughs> to say, all right, let's all enjoy it together. You know, let's all experience it together. I'll, I'll do the rough work of going through and looking at it, which clearly I did a shitty job about because I'm looking at that, <laughs> that screen you're telling me about. Here it is, produced, written, and directed by Dave Westcavage. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I, you guys have to remind me if I do another film, I have to do that. See, now I have to put that mistake in the future. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's given us a lot more uh, uh, leeway on mispronouncing your last name when it's right oh, there. Yeah, <laughs> you have every right in the world to do so. That's well deserved. <laughs> Dave, uh, the latest film from Troubled Moon is Adventures of the Haunted Hunted. Can you tell us a little bit about that movie and how that came about? Oh, uh, this this film was a load of fun to make. Um, so, there, I think this was uh, 2006 or 2007 is when uh, some of these shows started showing up on some of the cable channels, and they were, you know, a couple of people going to haunted house, and they would do <laughs> investigations looking for ghosts. And I, everybody I'd encounter was like, "Wow, I love this show. It's so creepy. Oh, they felt cold air. 
right. So look, as an engineer, as an intellectual, I'm looking at this. I'm like, really? They felt cold air. Like, oh, I got in this room and I felt so tired. I'm thinking, well, it could be the mold on the wall and maybe that you're allergic to mold and it's causing your son. And I'm just in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, I don't want to spoil this thing for people. So I'm thinking, you know what? What if, what if a bunch of people were just complete idiots and they were doing one of these shows <laughs> and just, they just never encountered ghosts, but they were just dumb and they were just fumbling across and, and the real kicker was, is you know, you see on three different channels, three of these different shows. What if while they're doing one live, they bump to another ghost crew? <laughs> like, what if they were actually in the fight and they bump? So I, I wrote that scene first, actually. And, and as I'm writing the dialogue, I'm just giggling. I'm just laughing so hard, thinking, boy, these great one-liners are coming out. Well, then I just work backwards, like, where did this guy come from? Where did this guy come from? And how do they like looking so so everything came alive while the writing it well well casting was no problem everybody would just fit their roles perfectly and then the beauty of it was is uh we went away for a weekend and, and i took the laptop and i thought you know I, i'd like to do something different i always had a joy of radio dramas you know the doctor who does these radio dramas and sure. audio books are pretty good i thought what if i did radio these little mini radio dramas to promote the film and i thought maybe i'll put them on the website maybe i'll throw it as a bonus disc and so I wrote like 15 of these like radio dramas. They're only like 10 minutes long each. And, and I brought the cast over, and then not to promote drinking, but we were drinking and had pizza. And <laughs> so we're running through the script, and I'm just laughing as they're saying these lines. They're doing such a great job, and I'm visualizing this stuff. I don't think anybody else thought it was as funny as I did, but I just thought it was hysterical. Well, that just supported the filming. The filming was just off the cuff. Uh, my perspective was run off the script if you want. And to be honest, like, I think the script was maybe, it was one of the longer ones, maybe 120 pages, but I just chucked like 60 pages of it because there was so much of it, so much of it that was um, just impromptu or emotional or momentary feel or drama that was just drawn out just by the feeling. And I thought, you know, I think I could capture it if I tried to do like what seemed like a semi-live film with these goofballs going through this experience. So it was very different to try. I don't think it was one of my best sellers, but it was definitely fun to put together. And I do get a lot of feedback from people who see it. They're like, oh my gosh, now this was the funniest film of all of them. And I did kind of intend it more of a comedy to me, but it was more intentional up front, besides misspelling your name. Uh, but, but, uh, but definitely more, more and, I, and I would love to have done sequels to that one too. That one has, has always lent itself well to them. But a lot of fun also, but, but very different from what I've all previously done. Now the question must be asked, Dave. What is coming up next for Trouble Moon Films? What's coming up next for you? What should people be looking out for in the future? All right. Well, I'll be honest. Look, there are uh, three scripts that have been ready to go uh, since 2004. Uh, <laughs> I planned on, I know, <laughs> it went to, I, to me that's just last year. Uh, I had written this um, giant cockroach movie, like these cockroaches that are three feet oh, long. Right. It's only because we were looking in the Halloween stores around here. It was like day after Halloween, everything's on sale. I'm like, oh, geez, there's two foot long cockroaches on sale for 12 bucks. You can't lose. So I bought like two of them and I figured I'd make these puppets and they'd be eating people and I call it Camp Cockroach. So I wrote the script and, and I just was not happy with it. It just felt like it was a rehash of everything that was done before with giant bug movies. So I put that aside and waited. I did Tartarus and brought it back out, cleaned it up and eh, didn't like it, did Zombies by Design and and then this process kept going on. And so then I finally said, all right, you know, 2014, I'm going to shoot this thing. And I read the script again. And I shot all this footage of like all these caves and these beach scenes. I had all this 
stuff going to happen with meteors crashing Earth, and these things were swarming out of the ground. It was going to be these great, like, three-dimensional looking holes in the ground where cockroaches are pouring out and eating people. And I, Again, I just was not feeling like the script was good. And I don't know if it's because I was changing what I wanted to do or I'd stepped away so far from that uh, miniaturized uh, goofiness where you have a puppet eating and you actually have like the like a lot of the effects that look really cool and gross but has have we overdone that now have a million people done that you know there's a million films out there that do it much better than I would so I kind of put it aside so so number 1 I'll say that the cockroach movie is still setting out there in some shape or form uh, second of all, of course, as I'd mentioned, there was a sequel to Suburban Sasquatch, which may or may not get filmed. And then, of course, I had the, the sequel to Adventures of the Haunted Hunted. And I know there, there's also another script I have buried out there that I just, you know, probably haven't dusted off or haven't formulated the idea through. But uh, I think I'm taking a few-year break. I'm enjoying being a dad. I'm having <laughs> such a blast with that. Uh, I want that to be my focus for now. And these films do take time. And I think what's going to happen is, is it's going to get to the point where I just say, okay, that's it. The, you know, I'm just going to take a, a good retirement from this and say I've had my fun. Or I'm going to say, all right, you know, here's a couple hundred bucks. Let's just go ahead and do it. The heck with whatever happens. Maybe just put it up on the net for free. You know, just, just something fun, just to experience the joy of putting it together and they're taking the time to enjoy that. Uh, if I had my druthers, I'd do the Suburban Sasquatch one just because it was – such a neat thing to see, and, and I'd love to, to bookend it and close the story out in my mind just to feel like I've gotten that successfully done. Uh, but I, I, I fear I don't want to taint the original. Now, of course, if there's a letter-writing campaign, I get 50 letters that say do it, yeah, no problem. What I would you say, you I heard him, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start that campaign immediately. We need everyone email. We got at least 50 uh, listeners, right? <laughs> I think yeah. it's Dave at TroubledMoonFilms.com. Everyone email and say you need to see a Suburban Sasquatch 2 or Suburban Sasquatch versus Fungicide. Just just saying that's a possibility <laughs> as well. <laughs> and, and 99% of the people would spell my name correctly. I've had the idea. I thought, you know, maybe maybe the thing to do uh, is, is make the sequel and then just rent out a theater and then uh, just have people pay like this exorbitant admission price donated all the charity <laughs> and uh no no donate all the charity and then yeah, just yeah. say the film is going to be shown once and i destroy the copy i just destroy it and the whole idea would be is is art as a performance piece but can't be reproduced would make it very special and i think the sad thing is a lot of people go into making the film they wouldn't want to feel like their work is destroyed but it also would help people to focus together and come together i mean i've done that something similar to that before when i had uh premiered Zombies by Design. I sold a lot of props and I, I, I sent the money to uh, some charities just, sure. just to try to give back, you know, just, uh, but, but I think that was something that would be like, I really love to have a group experience because to me, when you're with a group of people to experience these things, uh, there's a definitely a certain feeling you get. When, when Suburban Sasquatch, it, it had premiered, it was the Oklahoma Film Festival in 2004. Um, I, I, the promoter wrote back to me and I said, well, what was the audience like? And he, and, and he said, you know, it was, it was pretty good. People were really into it. And I, I don't know if he was expecting it to be what it was. Like, I think maybe he was thinking it was more of a documentary or, or maybe less on the goofiness. But the cool thing is, is when you're with people that experience these films on a regular basis, know what to expect, they're not sitting there thinking, oh, wow, this is really poorly written or slowly paced. They're like, oh, my gosh, can you believe that scene when, he, when Bigfoot hit that guy's head? There was a fake CG brain that you started to see. And, <laughs> oh, I could, I could swear I could see the scenes in the costume or look at that guy's sneakers in that shot. You could see it underneath the, the Bigfoot feet, like just funny stuff like that, you know. 
<laughs> All right, so I think we're I think we're getting ready to uh, to wind this up, but I have one last question I'd like to ask. So so far we've covered four of your films. We've done Fungicide, we've done Suburban Sasquatch, Malevolent um, Ascent, and uh, uh, Tartarus. Uh, what film of yours would you like to see us cover? You mean to review? Yeah, yeah. We don't. You we know, don't. I, we don't often get the chance to ask the directors. You know what they would like to see us do. So. I mean, there isn't a lot of choice left. I do. I yeah. should put that out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I think I'm open for anything. That's not the answer you look for. I know you don't want to. I'm open well, for anything. Uh, I think. The, the one film that I'd, I'd like to get feedback on is the events of the haunted hunter because it was so different. And, and what I need, what I need people to say is, wow, this is just so off the mark from you, Dave, just don't even attempt something like that. Or, you know, if it had gotten X, Y, and Z, it might've been more enjoyable. Or here's, here's some of the gaps. Those might've been valuable feedback. Like, okay, great. I can see that happening. Um, the two films though, that, that hurt a little bit inside explain that in a minute is is infinity's lock and malevolent ascent uh infinity's lock because it really was written just an excuse for me and some guys to go running around the woods with fake guns and pretend like we're shooting aliens that was really the core genesis <laughs> my daughter was about to be born i thought what can i do that's a last minute like yeah yeah to go out there with camouflage clothes just have some goofy fun and uh so much of the footage was damaged by bad tapes no. bad batteries uh, background noise. It's, it's every production problem that can go wrong. And, and it kills me inside because I look at it and it took me years to edit. And I'm like, because of that, because trying to fix all those problems, I'm like, man, it could have been so much better if I'd had uh, more time and attention paid towards that technical aspect of setup. Uh, Malevolent Ascent, because I loved writing and uh, doing the post-production on that. And I really thought the effects turned out great. But when you look at it through like uh, you know, modern TVs, uh, higher quality LCDs, and, uh, and, and all these uh, great TVs, so many mistakes glare at you. And yet, when I'm editing it in post-production on the smaller screen, oh, it looks so fantastic. And I was using older technology, and if only I had a better tool, I think it really would have turned out much cleaner and better. But, but, um, but those are near and dear to my heart in terms of effort. But boy, when you know you fell short of the mark by something that you could have controlled, that's what kind of bugs you. But besides sure. that, you know, anything is fair game, but Malevolent Sound would be curious. I'd just love to, love to get more feedback on that because I'm, it's like, I'm, is it that it was bad or what, what could I have done different on that, you know? You want to learn from, from everything you do anyway, but that was a, a recent one. I want to see if I should continue down that track or nah, go back to the old costumes and big ape running through the woods beating people up. <laughs> well, I mean, I know how I feel in terms of that question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm always going to go for the monsters in the woods. That's just the way that my, my, my brain slides. That's the thing that I most enjoy. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I think you got to follow, uh, not to get too, too touchy-feely, but you have to follow your own path. And you got to make sure that you're enjoying the process. Because at this time, you know, this, this portion of your life, um, you have to devote a lot of time to this, right? And if you're going to do that, oh, yeah. you're going to take time away from your family and you're going to take time away from, you know, other things you could be doing then you need to make sure that you're doing something you're passionate about and also that you feel like you're you're getting a good experience out of and that people on the other end when they get to see the final result that they'll that some of that will will come through. And oh yeah, I mean I really these things uh, take these things take 17 months typically they've ran for me from uh, concept to completions and and even after that you know you're still you know, you're doing interviews, you're writing press releases, you're trying to get a deal made. I mean, there's so much involved in it. When I was shooting Adventures of the Haunted Hunt, it was very tough to, 
you know, and my daughter's like, oh, daddy, when are you coming home? I'm like, well, I'm filming at a friend's house. You know, I'll be home in four hours. You're like, I want to go home and, you know, play Barbies a little bit or My Little Pony. It's kind of cool. And, you know, you kind of, you want, you want to experience those things. And it's tough to put your passion aside to do that, but it's tough to do your passion when you have this fantastic draw in your life you want to do. Besides the fact that I'm sure Mary at some point is like, look, I want to be a wife and not, you know, a, a bad filmmaker's widow here. Um, <laughs> But, but, but yeah, you, you, you have to start these, uh, any film you're going to do, you have to start it with the idea that I love this idea so much, I'm not going to get bored in the editing stage and put it aside. Like, the worst thing that happens, you spend all that time and you say, uh, you know what, I'm not entertained by, uh, you know, zombies being controlled electronically. It's just too boring. I can't complete it. <laughs> and, and I didn't want that to happen. And then with Suburban Sasquatch, you know, it's, it was very easy because Bigfoot was something that was, you know, as a child, I was frightened to death of this thing, you know, and... And even even in my early twenties, I'm a little bit freaked out by the woods, you know. And, and now I look at it and like, oh, that was so cute. So I'm not, not afraid of it anymore. But it was such a beautiful passion, and I'd have to reignite that, you know. Can I do that for a 17 month period? Difficult question a creator has to ask himself. Absolutely, Dave. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and to celebrate your entire filmography. I mean, we celebrated. It's nice to hear you talk about it with such affection. It's nice to hear about potential plans. For the future, I think all of those projects sound amazing. I I absolutely think that we should uh, focus and feature Adventures of the Haunted Hunted in the near future yep. on No Budget Nightmares. Uh, and if people want to check out more of your movies, if they want to purchase a copy, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, go to the website, troublemoonfilms.com. Uh, there's a link there where you can buy most things I think are still for sale in the store. Some things I don't produce anymore. I just haven't had a time to go back to produce them, and, and, and that's cool. You know, things move on, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, or, and even people are feel, to, feel free to write to me. I mean, I, I always respond to emails. And I got to say, just real quick, a plug for two things that are most important. Number one, sure. uh, it seems silly, but I do get emails to this day from people all over the world, either ordering the films from someone in Scandinavia or someone in Africa writing me or, or some father who wrote me uh, from the Midwest saying it's the only horror film that his five-year-old son had watched at the time, and he thanked me for this bonding experience. As a filmmaker, you're so touched. You, you know, it's not like you're looking for an award or praise, but the fact that somebody's entertained, it thrills you. And the second thing is you guys. People out there that take the time to review, talk about, discuss, even if you poke fun, it's wonderful because you're getting entertained. You're, you're getting some enjoyment, and it feels great to feel that there's some level of interest out there. And, and to have that continual promotion of people who know it from your side of it too, and they appreciate it, that's just fantastic. And to me, the icing on the cake is finding that mistake. Uh, I can't tell you how much I love it. I can't wait to tell all my friends, like, <laughs> how did you guys miss it? How come nobody else has pointed out? It's, just, it's so awesome. I think it's wonderful. So keep it up, guys. You keep, keep going. You know, you guys keep pursuing this because you keep this industry, which is the, the low, no-budget films, the people who enjoy it for the enjoyment's sake, you keep it alive and you keep people enthused and you keep us wanting to create. And that's what we need to have. Well, we appreciate that. I mean, immensely. And it is, has been wonderful to talk to you, Dave. It, this has been a long time coming. I actually interviewed you via email years ago. I want to throw it out there that uh, Dave reached out to me after I bought a, a copy of Tartarus, uh, you know, basically just checking in, seeing if I had purchased other films. And that's what opened up the potential for this interview to happen. And it just shows that not only is he a stand-up guy, but someone who really cares about the response to his films and wanting to make sure that people have the best 
experience possible. So definitely go over to TroubleMoonFilms.com, purchase yourself a copy of really his entire filmography. I'm just going to put that out there uh, and uh, and listen back to some older No Budget Nightmares episodes and uh, celebrate the the whole oeuvre of one Dave. I'm not even going to try the last name this time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You guys are great. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate that. No problem, Dave. No problem. Thank you, uh, and uh, and we'll be in touch soon. Uh, th- thanks very much for your time. And that was it. That's an interview that was a long time coming, Mo. Oh, so happy. Yeah, he, he like like I had a I had a big smile on my face for like the rest of the night after that episode. After we were, I'm not after episode after that interview because it was just such a blast to yeah, do. It was it was it was great fun. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I feel like when we did our. Um, our other anniversary episode, not our 50th, but a long time our, ago. Our other extravaganza. Yeah, our other spectacular. I'm sorry, that's what we Exactly. I mean, those interviews were sort of piecemeal, and they were very interesting for us. But I felt like like the interviews in this episode are a lot more structured, right? They really do speak to the history that we've created over the last six years. Right. And they're, they're important interviews, for the most part, based on, you know, the history of no budget cinema and our personal history with this show. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're sort of tracing our own history as we go. And that's something I really appreciate. Now, speaking of tracing history, Mo, Oh God, we now have another freestyle rap where Uno Doz uh, (sighs) traces the history of hip hop locos up to this point. I can't sigh enough. We're almost done this this movie, movie. by the way. Like there's only 20 minutes left. Yeah. It's really, Really close to being done. So let's let's hear where, let's see where we've come from and where we're going with the help of one Uno Dose. Yo, we took the coke and now it's all about trying to slang the shit and trying to come up in this motherfucking <laughs> hip hop game. Don't get the fuck right now, yo. We gotta get this cash and do a fat. So that's it. That it cuts off. <sighs> it's it's not like it's like it's, I just like the idea that it's like twelve takes. And that's the best one of him freestyling what he's going to do. <laughs> See, and the the irony there is that is that is that I feel like they did one take, yeah. and he said, "Perfect, it's perfect." Now, this is something we got to get into, Mo. I feel like they could have filmed the entirety of Hip Hop Locos in a single night. Yeah, yeah, like the thing that's uh, there's no reason that they, they could. They, no, no, no. They they could have shot the entirety. They should. They could have shot the entirety of this movie. Edited in camera in one night. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there might be, yeah, there's no real effects, but there is music that has to be laid onto it. But this could have been like one of those 24-hour film projects where you do like a short film in 24 hours, except this is literally like a 70-minute movie. Yeah. <laughs> so that- No, I've I've done a couple, like uh, New Haven has a 48-hour film project. Right. And I've, and I did the, I did it three years in a row. And it was a blast. Like, I wish I knew how to edit then, because this was before I got into video editing. Right. But I, you know, I, I mean, I did boom mic stuff and, like, voiceover work on most of them. And, like, it was a blast. And it was super easy. And, like, those projects were all way more complicated than anything that's involved in this. Right. So, now we get more POV driving shots. And right. um, as we're seeing them drive around... Uno Doz and J10, they're talking about what they're going to do, Mo. They're going to, as we've already heard, <laughs> they're going to go to this guy's house. They're going to talk with him. They're going to look at his musical equipment. They're going to wait for him to pull out the Fedia. And then they're going to jack him and kill him and snatch his equipment. Word. So then they arrive at the guy's house. <laughs> and then we get a close-up of 
J10, and Uno Dos, and they say the exact same shit again. Yeah. They're going to kick it. They're going to smoke a blunt with the guy. Then he won't be expecting shit because he'll be all comfortable. They're going to wait for the Fedia to come out, and then they're going to jack him in his equipment. They say the exact goddamn thing, just like I just did. Mm-hmm. So then, it, it, I will give the movie credit. We do not see them get out of their car and enter the guy's house. Instead, it confusingly just cuts to them being inside the house. Right. This is then black and white. It's like a point of view shot of them looking at this guy's mixer. So we're looking at a mixer, Mo. We're looking at it in great detail. I have no comment. I was hoping I... you'd give us a yup for old time's sake. No, I'm not even giving it. I'm not even. That, this doesn't even deserve a yup. Oh, Mo's a little upset if Pop Loco's here. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just so fucking bored with this movie. Well, Jesus. well, Mo, I'll tell you what won't be boring. Let's hear the uh, our, our hip hop locos. Uh, oh, please, let finally yes. show a little hip hop knowledge as they talk about the equipment that they're going to be jacking. Let's <laughs> let's have a little listen. Yeah, Holmes. So, like, what up, baby? This is like your motherfucking mixer or what, Holmes? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? It has 16 tracks, you know? Get man, that shit man, fucking hooked up and shit, Holmes. right here, you know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Make that shit up, eh? Hell it's yeah, Media homie. outputs, computer, all the shit you need to do what you gotta do, you <laughs> Yeah, know? man. All digital and shit, Holmes? that, eh? digital, man. That's Damn, it's Holmes. digital. It's cutting edge. Shit, eh? Cutting edge shit. What the fuck is that motherfucker right there, That's your fucking, like, your sampling shit. Damn, man, so you got mad samples on that shit, eh? Damn, So I needed to stretch this audio clip so we can hear J10 say that he has mad samples on that shit yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, honestly this is one of the funnier clips it's, uh, they know. don't seem to know anything about making music which i thought it, was the know, funniest yeah. part of it <laughs> you know and and i mean the thing that's that's really funny is that like the technology for like creating beats and stuff i mean yeah it's changed and it's, sure. it's gotten improved and improved but it's still essentially the same stuff you know, and, and we see some of that. Except here, they would need a laptop you know, like the, now to go with all of this. You would absolutely, actually, you probably need a couple. Yeah. You know, and also, and a lot of like other interesting tech gear. You know, like I've watched videos of LP producing beats, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's really interesting to watch him work. Like the stuff that these guys have here, like this is like, like if Wesley Willis wanted to. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to, 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 to create a beat, you know, like he, he would honestly just hit a button on the thing and it would be like, dink, dunk, dunk, dink, dunk, dunk, dink. you know, like that the music got on my nerves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's funny. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff about how they're talking about this equipment, but I can just picture like if everything worked out, they jack this equipment and they bring it back to their pad and they set it up and it's just like, okay, now we can be hip hop musicians. And it's like, how the fuck does any of this work? <laughs> now, now they have Finally, to kidnap someone to show them how to fucking record beats. <laughs> anyway, so by the way, all this is is sort of like in inverse black and white, so it's fucking horrific to look at. It's awful. It's it's visually grating. Like I mean, it's it's almost to like begotten levels of fucking painful to look at. Then it goes to color footage. Of them rolling a blunt. This is your favorite scene, Mo. This is my favorite scene in the entire movie. Now explain to me what's happening here. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not much to explain. They're rolling a blunt, you know. But they're doing such a piss poor job of it. You know, and then like they show off the finished product. And that's my favorite part. They show off the finished product, which is 
so painfully loose and i like i've never rolled a joint in my life you know but i've seen them i know what they look like (laughs) this is so this is so badly badly wrapped oh my god it's the best come on the best part is once they roll it j10 goes this came out fat didn't it (laughs) (laughs) and then the guy that they're trying to jack he goes let's spark that in my ride so for some reason Instead of just smoking the joint in the guy's apartment, they all go down to the guy's car to smoke the pot. <laughs> sure. So, uh, by the way, this this is my favorite line of the entire movie. It's so awful. They get into the guy's car and they're talking about how nice the car is. And the guy goes, white leather makes the pussy wet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus <laughs> So this is all shot through the windshield, through the front windshield, and it's now it's all green. It's, it's a black and white, except it's all been tinted green, just to make it as unpleasant to look at as possible. But also, hey, they're smoking some green mo, so I guess there's a little extra layer to it. Oh, uh-huh. I see what they did there. Oh. And also, the, the all the audio is very slow because they're they're tripping on that weed. In fact, they talk about how they're tripping off of it. Sure. Uh, so they they smoke pot. That's all they do, and just chat for a bit. And then afterwards, they're like. Let's roll another joint. And all I could think about was like, don't do that. Let's just go back up to the fucking apartment and make this stuff happen. And in fact, when they uh, introduced the idea of smoking another blunt, the dude, the the guy whose apartment it was, he's like, well, you know, let's get into business about the cocaine. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you for pushing the movie forward, gentlemen. Right. So... Somebody somebody went to an improv class. Yes, and. <laughs> yes, and. Let's jack some coke. Um, right. So this then leads to our, our, our loco heroes talking about jacking the guy again. Like saying exactly what they're going to do with the Fedia. And they talk about the duffel bag. And I think they open it again to show us what's inside again. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. They put the Coke and they put it on top again. On top of it again. <laughs> this is like the fourth time that they've explained what they're going to do. So they're going to go inside. It does, it does make me It does make me wonder, like, like when Uno Dos was editing this, like, did, did he not watch the movie? Up. Or, like, did he... Well, you know, you know what, you know how it goes. You know, like sometimes when you're editing things, like you do things. I don't know how much. I mean, like video editing history you have. I have but, a little bit of it, Mo. In fact, you yeah. might remember I, ed- I helped edit one of the movies we featured on No Budget Nightmares. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I I don't remember that because that episode happened five fucking years ago. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, like like when you're working on stuff, like you know, you can do things and like repeat and like not realize you're doing it until you go back and rewatch. It's just it. like writing, like right? It's like writing an essay right. and you find out you're using the same word over and over. Sure, sure. That- like I I wonder if he just like edited this thing and then just put it out there. I there I go. like to picture him in front of the final edit. You know, he's there with his fingers pressed together. He's like, "This is it." Using iMovies. My masterpiece is finally complete. Soon right, the world right. will know the genius of Uno Dos. <laughs> so, by the way, I don't understand why that dude went up up to his apartment and just left them down there. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Yeah. They go up with the plan that they're going to wait for the Fedia to appear, then they're going to jack him and take his shit. However, bum, bum, bum. this guy's a little smarter, Mo. This guy's a little smarter. He was expecting it. 
He went in expecting it. So as soon as they go in, that guy has his gun out and he's pointing it at them instead, Mo. Yeah, he's the Yogi Bear of Hip Hop Loco. Yeah, he's smarter, he than, the smarter than the average Coca Loco. Yes. <laughs> smarter than the average Loco. <laughs> he's, mo- he's more Loco than Loco. <laughs> <laughs> so they run in and uh, this happens. Hey, homie, what the fuck you trying to do, hey, man? Kiss my hey, ass. I knew what the fuck hey, fuck you want. Hey, fuck you, man. Hey, fuck you up. Hey, fuck you, man. Hey, fuck hey, you, man. Fuck hey, you, man. Hey, fuck you, man. So it, they're just yelling at each other, man. Hey, fuck that shit, man. I can hear this. Hey, man, you're a fucking punk motherfucker. Dude, what's up, my dick? Oh, boy. All right. Wow. So that's pretty intense. It gets really intense there. That got graphic. Mm-hmm. So, uh... <laughs> so... They... They have the duffel bag, right? Which has yes. what? By the way, why did they bring the cocaine up to the guy's apartment? <laughs> the stuff that they'd already stolen. I don't understand oh, that. Who knows? Anyway, who so knows? he goes to take a look at their bag, and in that uh, in that moment, they turn the tables on him, right? And then they start beating the shit out of him with a couple of pipes. Yeah, well, I I think it's even stupider than that. Okay, like, I he I think he goes to handcuff one of them. That's right. That's exactly right. He takes the and, handcuffs yeah, from he, their bag with the intention right. of handcuffing them. Now I don't know why he didn't just shoot them. Right. That's that's literally what it says in my notes. I said, why didn't he just shoot them? Uh, by the way, one other detail we have to mention is he also picks up a phone and calls some of his friends to come over and help. Sure. I don't know why he didn't just shoot these guys. Yeah, just shoot. You got the gun. I gotta say what, though, no I mean, in his defense, he's loco, right? So it's unpredictable. <laughs> he is loco. Wild card, bitches. <laughs> That's right. So he tries to cuff him. Then everything goes crazy, and the camera just goes all over the place. It's hard to tell what the hell is going on. Right, the, right. Our locos turn the tables, and we hear this. So this is not token. Right. And it goes on like that. Yeah, so that's... So eventually they cuff the guy, and they put a sack on his head, Mo. They do. A fat sack. They put a sack on the guy's head, and then they take out their pipes. They got sacks on sacks on sacks. <laughs> sacks Fifth Avenue. Um, and they start... <laughs> they start beating the shit out of this guy with some pipes. And it's... Look... I don't know much about using a pipe as a weapon outside of Game of Clue. <laughs> but, but like, they fucking lay into this guy and just hit him repeatedly for minutes on end. Uh, and eventually, he just dies, Mo. Well, as you do. And when he dies, they have this uh, this little dialogue. That's it, homie. He's fucking dead, he? <laughs> Fucking bitch. I'm a fucking dead, <laughs> So, for some reason, uh, murdering this guy makes their voice go really low and slow, and they say, He's dead, homie. <laughs> he's fucking dead. That's, that's it, homie. He's fucking So, dead. after he's dead, Mo, he, they do what, what you would do, and they kick around his corpse a little bit, and they call him a motherfucker. Sure. <laughs> and then they realize, hey, wait a second. We might be loco, but we need to use a little common sense right now. His friends are on their way over. We should probably get that equipment, get his coca, and get his gun, and get the fuck out of here, right? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Is that what? Yes, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. Sure. So they go to do that, yeah. and as they're in the process of doing it, Mo, <laughs> a friend of the guy they just killed, he runs in. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh-huh. Was there actual like foreshadowing in a plot development? That's right. This, in this is it. Movie? Finally, the movie. Holy the shit! The movie is finally kicking into high gear, <laughs> Mo. <laughs> and we get we get a Mexican standoff, literally. Wow. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. Please tell him. I, 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 oh, I can't even talk. I can't even talk. It's actually not a Mexican standoff because it's just two guys pointing guns at one guy who has a shotgun. Right. But it is a standoff and they are Mexican. So I guess it all actually is a Mexican standoff. You can't yes. pigeonhole a Mexican standoff. This is just how <laughs> it goes down sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, it's very intense because we have this friend with the shotgun and we have our two locos with their handguns. We're like, how is this going to play out? Finally, some tension. It's building. Who knows where it's going to go? I was really, I was like, finally involved and engaged with the movie. And then uh, the screen just goes wonky and we hear some gun blasts and the movie ends. <laughs> yep. So, I, you know what? I, I feel like but, there's a lesson but, here. But Yes. But does the movie end? I don't know. I guess you'll have to wait for Hip Hop Locos 2 coming 2018. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't yeah, fully yeah, end. Uh, it doesn't. I'm, I'm writing. I'm writing that one now as we speak. The, it was in black and white. The, the screen goes kind of black, and, and a video effect comes up. The movie ends, and then Mo, Ugh. look, we go to hip hop heaven, where our locos survived, and they're able to hip give us a little heaven. example of hey, say say this is the mirror universe of what we just saw, right? And remember, Uno Dos does have that little, um, <laughs> that little. <laughs> soul patch to show that maybe he's he's in there in that mirror universe so in that universe oh, i get it to say he actually has a soul uh-huh and he in that universe this other universe he was able to jack that equipment and they eventually figured out how it worked and this is the song they wrote so if you want to get a sense of what the quality of latino hip-hop he was trying to create this is how the movie ends with this Yo, yo, kick it one more time. Yo, this is Uno Dos ready to rhyme. I got the freestyles flowing through my blood like Crips. And you know, I get on the mic and start tripping, flipping all the styles that you're used to. You never heard something like this busting through your crew. Hey, yo, I got brand new shit. Yo, plus ones and two shit. I'll be Uno Dos, but in English, it's called one, two, kid. L O R E N Z O N M U N O Z. Yo, Lorenzo, that's him. He's the director. It's like he's the And I'm a Mexican. Yes, I can. Flex again, grab this mic. Yo, my mission is to rob a motherfucking coke dealer. Steal his cash oh, and his motherfucking stash. Uh-huh. Go in a flash like, I, the I mean, remember there was a whole Yo, string of movies money, and maybe uh, back one day in the I 1990s. Can retire. That up there. In the 1990s, where it would end with a rap that actually explained the plot of the movie that you had just watched. Yeah, but those were always fun movies. And it was always like that early 90s party rap. That, uh, that song, by the way, ends with J10 saying, it's the Hip Hop Locos. And then it repeats again and again, except slower and deeper with it going, locos. it's the Hip Hop Locos. Hip Hop Locos. locos. It's Hip Hop Locos from the year 2001, Mo. Directed by Lorenzo Muniz Jr. Written and edited by Lorenzo Muniz Jr. Produced by Lorenzo Muniz Jr. And director of photography, Lorenzo Muniz Jr. That actually shows up in that order in the closing credits. <laughs> micro budget, it's a passion project. Micro-budget filmmakers do not do that. Just list all the credits together if you're going to do that. But right. it, it does not make your film more impressive to show people that you had to do everything because you didn't have any money. 
I only I did that once on a film that I that I worked on where I listed myself off literally every single credit, but I did that as a joke, you know. I also love Mo that the credits say starring Uno Dos as Uno Dos and of course. J10 as J10. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. Uh what is interesting about this closing credits, Mo? Uh nothing cuz I didn't fucking watch them. Two interesting things, Mo. One is it says that the Hip Hop Loco soundtrack is available, produced by Uno Doze at www.mp3.com slash Uno Doze. Oh, yeah, right. A website that we learned six years ago doesn't exist. Does not exist. And I did use the yeah. Internet Wayback Machine and unfortunately could not pull it up. I also couldn't pull up the Panic Pictures website, which was a bit of a shame because I was hoping we could find out a little more information. There's also a special thanks at the end of this, Mo. Does he thank Jesus? He thanks God in capital letters. Huh. Wife, mother and child, fathers, brothers, sisters, our families and friends, Uno Dos and J10, somehow they get thanked <laughs> as well. As well as Aubrey, Richie, Manuel, Monica, JJ, the Munoz family, hip-hop, indie filmmakers, and to all who support this film, peace! Peace. That's Hip Hop Loco from... Oh, I thought we were ending the episode. From the, <laughs> from the year of our Lord, 2001. Just a few months wow. later, the world will change forever. With the September 11th attacks. If only it had happened a couple months earlier. Oh my goodness! I know. I'm. I, that was. That was mean. I'm. My bad. That's right. Never forget. No, I don't. No. Well, no, I'm. Look, I don't take that back. It was an inside job. I think we all agree on that. <laughs> you know, the other day, uh, uh, somebody was looking at a bottle of that honest tea stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, and reading like this was at my job, and so they were literally reading off all the ingredients. Sure. And I had this idea for a skit. And if anybody wants to film this, they're more than welcome. This is great. This is something we should really include in our hundredth episode. Yeah, Please absolutely, continue. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like, and I, I imagine somebody sitting there reading off all the things. And then when they got down to the bottom, it just says nine eleven wasn't <laughs> excellent work, Mo. Mo, we've come to the end of hip hop locos. Oh, thank We did it. We made it to the end. We have survived. However, we have one more interview we have yet to put on to the podcast. Yeah, we do. And this is actually the patron saint, the Pope himself of No Budget Nightmares. The Pope of No Budget Nightmares. This, we talked about earlier that we had done a special uh, uh, anniversary episode years and years ago. Uh, when that ended, we also did a uh, an episode of an of an, a regular episode of No Budget Nightmares, which included an interview on it, which is something we almost never do. But it was the opportunity that was presented at the time, and we couldn't say no to this gentleman. So we reached right. out to him. There's no better person to end our hundredth episode with than the Pope of No Budget Nightmares, Todd Sheets. Todd motherfucking Sheets. It's amazing that the, in, over the last six years. Todd has gone through so many, you know, massive changes. He had, of course, a big health scare. I'm sure uh, fans of his were aware of that. But he's also been mm-hmm. pretty much more productive than he's ever been at any point previous. There was kind of a large gap where he wasn't making movies. He had that health scare. And since then, he's just been pumping them out year after year, including Bone Hill Road, which is a movie that just got finished. Yeah, we, uh, you know, he's been uh, just a fucking workhorse. It's 
And it's been a great time to be a fan. Uh, just a great time. So uh, we, of course, covered one of his more recent films, House of Forbidden Secrets, on the show. Yep. Uh, since then, he did Dreaming Purple Neon. He did segments mm-hmm. in High 8 and its sequel uh, that's coming out soon, as well as um, as well as well Bone Hill Road, which we talk about in this interview. In fact, uh, Todd has a lot of interesting things <clears throat> to, think, to, to talk about here. We even asked him about friend of the show, Joe Castro, during the interview. We do. Todd's a very positive person, a little more positive than I am, uh, but uh, you'll hear all that right now. Let's listen to Todd Sheets. We are now joined by the master of splatter, the prince of gore, the horror king himself. It's Mr. Todd Sheets. And Todd, uh, yeah, that's, that, uh, you know, I hear one person clapping, but if I could hear the audience for No Budget Nightmares right now, I know that they're listening to their phones or they're on their computer and they're clapping in person because they're so excited. Todd, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your really exceedingly busy schedule to talk to us here on No Budget Nightmares. Hey, it's my pleasure. You guys know that. I, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of what you guys do. The fact that the work that we've done for all these years, so many of us in the independent film industry and the micro budget, the fact that it touched you guys in a way that made you want to go out and help us and promote the work we do. I mean, that's the greatest gift of all, really. I really appreciate you saying that, Todd. You know, sometimes we worry we worry when we do a podcast like ours where sometimes we talk about work which isn't necessarily appreciated or loved by mainstream audiences – but has its own little cult and has its, and I shouldn't even say a little, a growing cult of admirers and enthusiasts. Uh, we never want to feel like we're picking on people or, or punching down or, or mocking things where people are really trying their hardest. And one of the greatest things about No Budget Nightmares has been seeing not only the progression of your early movies, but seeing the work that you've been doing recently. You know, when we last talked to you back in t- 2013, it was only a few months after your quadruple bypass surgery. And since then, you've been in one of the most productive phases of your career. You've done House of Forbidden Secrets and Dreaming Purple Neon, a segment in High Aid and Grindsploitation, and you've just finished up Bone Hill Road. I know it would be very hard for you to summarize the last four years, but how has that experience since that health scare been for you? It's been kind of a, a crazy ride, to be honest. I mean, we've we've done so much. You know, I think it's very much because of that heart attack, that quadruple bypass surgery, the fact that I was in the hospital 31 days, and I honestly thought I was never coming out of there. And I think that's what kind of kick-started me to, I mean, I just missed making movies, you know, making the crazy stuff that we make so much that I was like, you know, that kind of kicked me into gear. And... Honestly, you know, finding out that there are people like you out there, it really helps because, you know, for so many years you don't realize and the Internet really helped me to realize how many people these films have touched over the years. And, and I thought, you know, I really, you know, I almost died. I want to get back into this. And so six months afterwards, you're right. I was back in the saddle. I was doing House of Forbidden Secrets, which turned out to be a both one of my greatest experiences and one of my most horrifying experiences. It was tough. <laughs> tough few years getting that movie made i had an executive producer on there that didn't see eye to eye with me and and even though i owned the property 100 percent, there was a lot of threats and some bs politics going on i was like golly i came back for this what the hell am i doing (laughs) you know so then i started doing a few shorts after that for compilations you know i did a couple of compilations like like the you know the grind exploitation the high eight and then you know the high death and i thought you know I, I really love doing this. I'm not going to stop. I, I pulled out a project that had been sitting 
on the shelf for, I mean, years and years and years. And that was Dreaming Purple Neon. That thing, this, the original script for that's, you know, what, 15, 20 years old? Wow. And, um, kind of brushed it off and updated it a little bit and kind of, you know, tailored it to what I had available. And we went out and, and I was like, I'm not going to have any executive producer to hell with that. I'm going to do it all myself. <laughs> whatever I got to do, I'm going to scrape. I'm going to go on a corner if I have to. It's going to be bad, but I'm going to make this movie. And so, uh, you know, we went out and we did it, you know, uh, basically just on credit cards and stuff uh, out of my pocket just because I didn't want to deal with any crazy stuff. And I'd never done, a, you know, any of that stuff like, you know, the, the crowd, you know, fundraising stuff. Sure. And so I didn't know what to make of that. And so I just went ahead and did it on my own. And that turned out pretty good. We did some more stuff for Grindsploitation. We started making some more inroads with some uh, short films here and there just, you know, to keep honing the craft while I was doing stuff. And then really didn't have a whole lot of time in between that and the time I started, you know, that movie, you know, we got it done. We had premieres. We, I should mention that in between all this, we've been doing film festivals and conventions and like House of Forbidden Secrets been in over, you know, 80 film festivals and uh, Dream Purple Neons hitting close to like 76, 77. <laughs> film festivals and and theater tour you know we did a theater tour across america just took that sucker old school under my arm and banged on doors and got it in theaters and and uh so by the time i got done doing that i i was just hyped i was like i'm ready to make my werewolf movie i've been wanting to make this movie so jerry angel one of your favorites and i jerry <laughs> angel many many years ago had a concept called the dark secret of bone hill road because he lived out in the middle of the country this buckner sibley area here in missouri and there was this old craggly you know three or four story like mansion looking house up on this hill and it was bone hill road and so we would go up there and we would go exploring this house right it was it was abandoned and uh I was just, you know, visualizing all kinds of crazy stuff and it's out in the woods. And I'm like, man, this would be a great place to have a werewolf attack. And so I kind of put together a script all those years ago. This was back when we were doing zombie bloodbath one in 1993. Wow. And, uh, by about 94, 95, I had the script, but there was no way in hell, you know, it was just, Oh, you've seen those movies from that era. There's no, <laughs> I'm going to make this epic werewolf movie. So I was like, uh, well, maybe I better wait a little while. Well, that little while became, 2017 so uh, uh it was like i really really felt like i was ready uh and so we uh for the first time I ever did crowdfunding and it was weird indiegogo i didn't know what to expect and that sucker just like took off i was like maybe i can get a few thousand bucks so i put like three thousand dollars on there boom that sucker went to 17 and a half grand i'm like holy cow <laughs> of course they take a chunk now i'm telling you indiegogo does take their cut I was like, man, I could have bought a werewolf suit with the money they took. Jesus. <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, I've put in about, you know, five grand of my own money and we've made this thing epic for, for the, and people are probably listening to this going, epic, what the hell are you talking about? But we made a $250,000, $300,000 movie on the money we had. And uh, a lot of my friends in the business, you know, they jumped in. They, they did favors like Joe Castro recently. Uh, I've known Joe for years. He's done so many movies and he, was like, man, you know, you want this transformation to be perfect. I was all mad because I was like, ah, it's just not coming out the way I want. He's like, come out to L.A. Let's make this happen. So I flew out there. We, you know, over this last weekend, we made it happen. It was unbelievable, the stuff that he could do on like a couple of weeks notice, you know, and it was just like, wow, that's the kind of thing. I was pulling favors in from a lot of my friends in the business for so many years. And so we were able to get suits just for materials. We didn't have to pay for all the labor and all that, you know, and the hair punching time alone would break a movie like this. So, 
it was like really unbelievable how many people stepped in and how many people love the fact that we're doing this like old school, completely practical. There's not one CGI effect in this whole damn movie. Werewolf movie. I'm serious. It's like, wow. You know, I, I, I gotta, I gotta say just from the pictures alone, I personally am dying to see that suit in action. Cause it looks fantastic. And I got to tell you, you're going to freak out because we got an army. Okay, we've nice. got we've got like a, an actual small army of werewolves in this thing. We've got several different oh. suits. We've got uh, like different phases of werewolves, and it's just like really, it's the strangest freaking werewolf movie I have honestly <laughs> ever seen. And I'm not just saying it because I made it. I mean, I don't know what the hell this thing. <laughs> You know, when I'm reading the script, I'm writing the script. I'm like, well, that's a werewolf movie, but it's also this kind of movie. And it's also this. It's like a, you know how I do things. You guys have seen my work. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. start out to make a straight demon movie. And it ends up being this whole epic thing that goes from hell to back. And you're like, wow, I never saw just like House Forbidden Secrets. It starts out. It's a haunted house movie. Or is it by the end of it? It's kind of the same thing with this. It's a werewolf movie, but it's kind of not a werewolf movie, even though it is fully a werewolf movie. That's the only, I don't even know what to say. How, how do you how do you describe something so weird? But it's like, um, all I can say is the werewolves aren't the full-on bad guy here. You know, these guys are just like dudes. They're just animals. They're trying to eat. Hey, man, you stumbled on my land. You're going to die. Should we expect an appearance by Jerry Angel in oh, Bone Hill Road? Please say yes. Oh, Jerry made his appearance in uh, Dreaming Purple Neon, as you got. Of course. Yeah. I, I loved that. Uh, Jerry, I don't think, is going to be able to be in uh, in this uh, one. Yeah, it's sad just because the, the really the hurricane kind of did us in on that. Oh, you know? uh, right. And, uh, but, you know, we have a good substitute because we have Linnea Quigley in this thing. You know? And Linnea is like one of the greatest people in the world. And working with her has been like, we've known each other for a long, long time. And... It's like, finally, we were able to do this. I kept saying, we're going to work together one day. We're going to work together one day. And I think she finally got to the point. She's like, shut up, Todd. But it really happened because I, I always follow through on my promises. And and we did. We worked together. And it was freaking amazing. You know, it was just freaking amazing. And, and in all honesty, I think it surprises a lot of people when they see what she's done in this. I think it'll surprise you guys. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to being surprised by that. I want to go back just for a second, Todd, because our listeners would be upset if we didn't <laughs> at least address this slightly. You know, uh, you might not know this, but Joe Castro oh, and Nobody's yeah. Nightmares have have a bit of a history together, and it's not an altogether pleasant one. No. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and again, I, I understand that – I mean, it sounds like you guys have a great working relationship, and I know that he's an amazing effects artist and has done some amazing work in the past. Um, but <laughs> Actually, that was the only positive thing we had to say about the movie of his we covered was how we, we, like, we, we loved the effect work. We thought it was good. Again, I've seen a number of his movies, and I think he does amazing effects work. But um, I also know that he can be a little um, difficult – some people have found him difficult to work with in the past. What is your working relationship like with him? Is it just just very relaxed? Uh, Joe's great, man. He bent over backwards. Basically, you know, when he found out that the transformation wasn't working out, he said, well, you know, Todd, you know, let's figure something out, man. And so uh, we've kept in touch over the years, you know, and so he was like, you know, we're going to make this happen. And he waived his fee. You know, he didn't he didn't charge us the fee he charges and because uh, he does big budget stuff. I mean, he's done everything from A-list movies all, all the way. You know, he, he works for Soto FX. He does a lot of stuff out. Sure. 
So, um, you know, he, he gets a pretty good rate. And my thing is, you know, I didn't have any damn money. So he said, you know, if you can scrape together enough to pay for the materials, we're going to make this happen, which is what I did. And, uh, you know, I went out there. He, he did incredible work. We, we talked three weeks ago. Then he started prep work as soon as I sent him the money. And um, so he could get the materials and everything. And by the time I got there, he had everything ready to go. He was amazing to work with. He's always been very positive, you know, with me always. And uh, sure. And it turned out to be such an incredibly good experience because, um, you know, I brought Antoine Steele, the main man, and uh, I brought uh, Dylan Fawn Harvey, who played the in the scene that we were shooting, who has the transformation and. Man, they both were treated like royalty, and uh, and Joe just bent over backwards to make everything happen he possibly could. The man tore himself up. I mean, you know, we were working. I got there on like Wednesday night. Boom, Wednesday night when I got there, we met at Astro Burger, had some food, hung out with Clue Gulliger and John a little bit. Uh, nice. Said hello to those guys, and then we went over to Joe's house. You know, after after gorging at Astro Burger, I should say, <laughs> uh, over to you know to, to Joe's house, and we're doing you know casting of the teeth and everything, so he can work on that. He worked on it all night. We get over there the next day. We get there like noon, grab a bite to eat. Boom, we're working all day long until the wee hours. You know, uh, he uh, he he really bent over backwards to make this a, a possibility for us and to save the day. And he did save the day. He made this thing amazing. And uh, the stuff he could do with little time would blow your mind. And it blew ours. And I, I just, you know, I'm nothing but thankful because, you know, you hear stories, but let's be honest. You know, we all have to live in this, this, if you're in this business, you have to live with it. And it's, when I say that, it's because it's difficult. I mean, there's been times I've had bad days because I've been torn. Like when the guy told me, hey, man, if you ever pick up a camera again, I'll shoot your mother. And he was like, serious, I'm jerk, you know, and I'm like, so Jeez. after someone like that you're in a mood for a while you're just like yeah after you get burned so many times i've been burned in kansas city here trying to make movies that's why i quit making movies is because i got burned so badly ripped off so horribly talked about so you know people who are jealous of the fact that you you maybe have worldwide distribution and they don't you know and it's just like you don't even know the reasons because you don't even know the people and then all of a sudden you're hearing things about yourself that you couldn't you know when did i do that wow i wish i would have been there <laughs> so you know in this business you don't know what kind of crap someone's been through so joe i know has been through some tough stuff i know he has but at the same time you know he's always been good to me he's always been open to me and uh let's face it in this business there's a lot of people that don't like people but you know i get along with everybody i get along with everybody i one of the nights i was there i was hanging out with Bill from Code Red. Now, some people say, God, I hate that guy. I say, God, I love that guy. But for me, I get along with him fine because I, you know, Bill's like a comedian. If you've ever met him in person, he actually was a stand up comedian at one time. He really was. So he's got this incredibly dark, sarcastic humor whipping out of his mouth. And I'm laughing because I know it's not malicious, but a lot of people see that stuff and they're like, oh my God, what a jerk. But I get along with everybody because I think, you know, everybody has a story and it's, it's my personal relationship with those people that matter to me. It's, it's the fact that, you know, we've always got along. We're friends. We get along with each other. And let's face it. How many friends do you have that other people may hate, but you're like, man, you know, I absolutely love this guy. And it, I mean, Joe's not hated, of course, but it's just the fact that there has been, you know, I've, I've read people gripe about him here or there, but you know what? People gripe about me here and there. Hell, <laughs> Some people went in the VHS groups and said I was bootlegging my own movies and ripping everyone off. And I'm like, you people are completely ludicrous. I've never stolen anything in my life. And 
how could I bootleg my own damn movie? It's mine. <laughs> uh, Todd, the last time that we talked, and again, it's been a number of years, and it was before a lot of this recent work had happened. It, it sounded to us when we were talking to you that you felt a little conflicted about a lot of your earlier work. I think it's because at the time you were saying that it's because a lot of people judge you by that work and they don't see your progression. And especially now that you know you've you've been working so consistently in recent years and a lot of that work is so much more polished and very interesting and very diverse um but recently they've been uh through srs uh video have been releasing uh, srs cinema i should say have been releasing some of your early work in compilations do you feel now that you've put a couple more movies behind you that that you're working consistently that that earlier work that people are starting to lose that vision of todd sheets as that early uh, like late 80s early 90s shot on video guy I, I don't I think there's a little bit of that going on and and here's the thing you know I like the stuff that Ron released is really early I mean that's right before zombie rampage kind of stuff this is stuff I was making with my friends when we were teenagers and we had super eight cameras or whatever camera we could get our hands on honestly if it was VHS that's fine whatever it was we were shooting and we were trying to learn and the thing is I actually like those movies because I see a charm to them hmm. you see I see you know, some innovation when it came to doing effects, because I know at that time that was a long time ago and there was no way to do any of this stuff like there is today. So it was really hard for us as kids to even try to do it, getting all your friends together, getting out there and making effects and, uh, you know, doing the gore and, and trying to, you know, just put something together. And when I watch those, I feel like, you know, maybe it's because I was so young and because I was a kid, but I feel like, okay, I, I can really live with these because these bring back good memories and these were kids. I mean, you can obviously see we're all kids in the movies, you know, we're like goofy looking, but, um, we're in there and we're like, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can when other kids were out causing trouble or whatever, we were out making movies. It was really weird. And so I kind of didn't mind releasing those because I felt like, you know, this is kind of where it all started. They're, they go from like terrible to, to worse, but at the same time, there's things about them that I really am proud of just because I know, hey, you know, we were 14, 13 years old and we were making these crazy epics and we don't even know what the hell we were doing. We just did it. And, uh, and they're still better lit than half the stuff I see today and the gore is good. But, uh, <laughs> but I tell you what, you know, I still am not happy with anything from like Zombie Rampage up until zombie bloodbath and zombie bloodbath let me let me make this clear i consider that my first real movie because of the fact that i actually handled things in a professional uh way and i had all this support and i did things by the book so to speak the way you should make a movie but that movie itself it's flawed completely but there's a reason for it it wasn't my, me this time it was the fact that we were filming during a flood so <laughs> half of the script got tossed and we already had a contract with a theater that we were going to show this thing at halloween and I absolutely had no choice but to rewrite and do what I had to do to get the movie done. So when I watch it, I'm like, it doesn't hurt me like the early movies do, you know, and, and, and even though some people hate zombie bloodbath, that's fine. If they were, you know, in our situation, making that movie for $2,000 with like, you know, 750 extras, which ate up our makeup budget completely right there. Uh, you know, if, if, if they were doing that in the middle of the flood of 93 in the Midwest, where our locations were completely underwater. We had to boat to location sometimes. It, you know, they, they just don't even understand. So if you want to hate on that movie, go ahead. I can live with that. But those earlier movies, man, Jesus, man, I, I, got, I got crucified. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I stand by my love of Zombie Rampage. <laughs> you know what? I appreciate it. We, we did do a couple of things in that movie that had never been done before, like with the whole baby carriage thing. And <laughs> hell, we were thinking, we're just like, people are really going to freak out if we do this. Let's try it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Those movies, you know, I, I, I hate them for a lot of reasons. And part of the, the only joy I have out of it is I got to work with some people I liked a lot. Right. And uh, and I don't see them anymore. I don't know. You know, the whole group kind of went away. They, You know how that goes. I mean, that was 20 years, mm-hmm. 25. So, you know, those guys, I don't know what happened to most of them, but I, I had a good time during that period. And that's how I got to meet David Dakota. So, you know, when he produced four of those movies for me, or five, I guess, five. So I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, he's still my mentor to this day. I'm not going to ever, you know, hate that part of it. I just am upset because i wasn't ready and most directors hide that crap in a closet they maybe break it out every once in a while when they get together for a holiday and i'm allowing it to get worldwide distribution like some kind of tool (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know todd 2017 has been a pretty tough year for fans of 70s and 80s horror uh we recently lost toby hooper and we lost george romero earlier this year i know that you're a big fan of the genre you're working in it you're keeping your eye on it aside from yourself who are the the people out there, directors that you see carrying the mantle of those kind of horror legends? Uh, there's there's quite a few. Uh, a lot of people today, you know, there's a lot of guys that love that stuff and they're trying to emulate it, and I appreciate it. I think they kind of miss the most important aspects of it. And uh, don't get me wrong, there's like a ton of great great guys out there right now sure. there's I, the autopsy of jane doe just kicked my mm. ass I thought it was amazing and you know devil's candy was cool there's so many i can name that were just amazing so many great filmmakers out there working um you know steven byro still you know carrying the torch for the gore stuff i love it <laughs> but but there's you know the, the the thing is there's also a handful of guys who have great passion and their hearts are in the right place and i love what they're trying to do but it's like man it just seems like there's it's frustrating to me because they're putting so much effort, so much time and so much effort, so much time. And they're cranking out movies like 400 times a year. And you're like, okay, I was there. I've been there. Guys, stop. Take a step back. Think about it. You need to develop the script first. That's the thing that people don't realize. They look at all the gore, but Romero had a script that was solid. And, uh, and I didn't know this either when I first started, you know, I'm like, make it, I'm churning out, 12 movies a year. Look at Goblin. What a classic that is. But, uh, you know, (laughs) my God, every scene was just a connection to try to figure out how we're going to get a lawnmower down someone's throat. We didn't care. (laughs) Uh, It was ridiculous. But, you know, and I see some of that going on and there's so many guys out there that are just on the cusp of doing great things. And they're, they're trying to make their movies kind of grind housey and they're doing this and they're doing that. And they're playing with the tricks of digital editing and all that. But, Man, it's just, it just there's nothing holding it together, and I and I and I'm like, man, you guys are right on the edge because you got the gore down, you got some cool ideas, some of the lighting's cool, but like the basic fundamentals of filmmaking aren't even being followed. It's like I I learned this my myself the hard way, you know, where, you know, look up the line of axis here, guys, look up the, <laughs> and you know, understand the director's line and try to follow it you know, once in a while and. Just do things to improve with every movie. Just grow with every movie. And I think that's the, the thing I'm trying really hard to do 
And sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. But I try really hard to – if I don't learn something new on a production set every day, it's a wasted day on the set in my mind because I want to learn every day how to improve and how to tell a better story and how to get more uh, quality out of the work. And that's really my goal, and it hasn't always been. Like I said, I used to just love to like stick a drill in someone's head, and suddenly there's brains, and there's like guts coming out of <laughs> – here. Why? Why was there guts coming out of his ear? We don't care. It's awesome. <laughs> After a while, as you grow as a filmmaker and you become serious about the art of filmmaking, you, you want to tell a story, and you know you want to you want to even with Dreaming Purple Neon, I wanted to, to put together some characters and a story that people could care about and could follow when all the carnage happens. And in this movie, like in Bone Hill Road, man, this isn't a splatter flick at all. It's got gore in it because it's one of my movies. I mean, I, I, when you kill a mailman, I have to go all the way. You know, I, <laughs> I, I have to friggin' cut him up into pieces and all kinds of crazy shit. But, you know, my thing is, it's still, ultimately, it's about the story and about the characters and about what they're experiencing here and the crazy stuff that's going on in the story. And that's what I want to see more of because there's so many great people out there that are working, that are trying to do this. And, 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 but the, also you have to realize 9,000 cell phone Scorsese's. Okay. Hmm. 9 million, maybe. I don't know because I, I know a lot of people in distribution are like, Todd, if we didn't know you, we would never see your movies because we get, you know, 3,000 movies a month thrown on our desk on some right. handwritten DVD. And nine out of 10 times they put it in and they just scream because it's just like the same thing over and over. Cell phones, people walking around in the woods. Okay. But you got to, you know, I'm not putting anyone down because I think, you know, hey, you get a movie done. I'm proud of you. But it's the fact that you can do better than that. You can we can take this to the next level. All of us can. We just have to care enough and work hard at it. And, you know, that's why, you know, you know, you're right. There are a lot of people out there that are trying real hard to carry the torch. We, we need to, to look at what it was about Romero's films that we loved. And we need to 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 look at you know, all these people who we've lost and, and it's a massive loss. And the fact that Romero couldn't get a freaking budget in this day and age, mm -hmm. but some schmo fresh out of film school that just made a damn commercial for Nike is getting, you know, $20 million at a pop just to run around in circles. And that's just for an idea. That's not even for the film. Okay. That's for an idea. And then when they finally make the film, they get $150 million to go off and shoot a film that sucks. And Romero can't even get 35 cents to make a movie. That's what's wrong with this business. And we have to turn it around. And the only way to turn it around is to get rid of the fast food mentality, lose the YouTube generation mentality of, uh, this is how we're going to cut everything. This is what we're going to do. Streaming has almost destroyed our industry. I know people love it. I know it's easy, but you know what? Whoever said it's supposed to be freaking easy. Part of the fun was when you're hunting down that movie and you finally find it. That was part of the greatness, you know? Yep. Yep. The art of the hunt is gone. Definitely it's completely gone. And, and the thing is, these pirates are destroying everything and streaming is just like, oh, man, no one knows what the hell's going on. And it's really it's it's I think it's going to come back, but it's because I see a lot of mom and pops starting to pop up. But let me tell you, man, that is what we need to do. We need to get rid of all that mentality. We got to go back to like someone was telling me. Why are you shooting these wide shots, Todd? Why are you doing these big like wide shots? Because it looks amazing. It's like a crane shot. What do you mean? Well, yeah, but nobody does that anymore, man. We, you start off on, and you're writing tight with the actors. You don't even show exteriors anymore. I was like, who the hell said that? That's not even filmmaking. That's like, what is this, sitcom? What am I making, full house? 
<laughs> doing over here? I don't want to do that. I'm like, to hell with that. I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film. I want, I want, you know, if I'm making a Western, I want to see that damn town. I want to do a crane shot and this whole thing where the, you know, the horses are coming out to hell with all that. If that's what filmmaking is becoming is full house with some blood splashing around, forget it. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Even to see Mary Kate and Ashley like butchered by a chainsaw. <laughs> it's just, you know, you got to say no once in a while. And I'm going, ah, man, I don't want to do that. But, you know, there are some good cats out there. There's so many, like Ron Bonk's doing good work. Brad Twiggs do a good work. Uh, the, the the cats down in Tampa, man, there's a whole scene in Tampa, Florida. You know, you got Sean Donahue and you got Chris Woods and you got a ton of people down there. Uh, Joel Weinkoop, look, man, Joel mm-hmm. is the busiest guy in Tampa for, for real. He's yep. in a movie every four and a half seconds. And <laughs> I love him. You know, he's got this manic energy and he's a, he's amazing. There's so many good stuff. You know, people are doing good things. Sub Godin's doing this uh, like animator movie, which I thought was cool because we're both doing a werewolf movie. And I even got a cameo in it. I'm like, what the hell's going on with that? I can't even act. What are you doing? You're, I just ruined your movie. But, <laughs> but, you know, I did it. You know, because why? Because I love it. I, I love it. I want to help any way I can help. I want to contribute. I want to be a part of it. You know, so, these, you know, these guys said, ah, you know, you're one of the reasons we started making movies. How do you say no to that? You're like, oh, well, shit, yeah, I'll be in your movie. I, I'll, I'll do a terrible job and it'll be horrifying, but I'm going to stick here and I'm going to do the best I can. And that's what it's about. You know, we all try to help each other. We all try to move forward. And uh, and I just feel like, you know, there's so many people with, with good hearts out there and, and they have the right ideas. And I just want to see everybody pushing themselves to do the best they can possibly be so we can elevate the genre again. So it's not just, I mean, let's face it, you go into family video and it's either found footage or like bad zombies or some like, I don't even know what these damn other things are. They're like kind of slasher movies, but not really. And I don't know. And you look, man, I know you want to put your friends in the movies and I did the same thing, but look, there's something about, you can let them talk for a little while, but don't make me watch them talk the entire movie. <laughs> Do it. It's like, this has been a family reunion video with three blood effects in it. I am not doing it. I'm not doing it. No more. Todd, we know that you've been hard at work on Bone Hill Road. Uh, you're, you're coming to the end of that journey. I'm sure you'll be starting a new one soon. When are we, the audience, likely to be, you know, going to a local festival or, or whatever, when are we going to likely be able to see Bone Hill Road? I, I know that my appetite has been appropriately wet for it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I do want to tell people, you know, if you want to find out when it's going to be in your area, the best way is to go to the Bone Hill Road Facebook page. Uh, become a, you know, like the, like the movie. We, we would love it if you mm-hmm. like the movie. We need that kind of support. Nowadays, believe it or not, distributors for foreign markets look at crap like that. They look at sure. ridiculous things. And uh, so, yeah, if you guys mm-hmm. want to go like that, that would help. Also, the new trailer for it just came out. This is, it's the only trailer we're going to have because anything else I do. And, guys, the reason it took so long is because I didn't know what to show. I don't want to give anything away. I'm tired of these trailers to give everything away. And this movie is so compact and so tight. I don't know. I'm like, what do I do? How do I, you know, what do I show? So that's kind of why the, the trailers took so long is because I, I didn't know what to show without, I don't want to spoil anything. I just want to show you just enough to kick some butt and it will be out. The first screening anywhere. The world premiere is October 20th at the Screenland Armor Theater here in Kansas City. The Screenland Theater is a beautiful theater. It's huge. And uh, it's got uh, Adam Roberts who, who owns the theater actually got his start with us on extreme entertainment on catacombs and, you know, helped us out on that movie and did a couple things on some other stuff. And, and I've watched he and his brother grow and 
they bought the Screenland franchise and became owners of the theater, and they are doing amazing work. So we want to premiere there. Uh, and it, last year we premiered there to a sold-out audience for Dream Purple Neon, and then from there it hits the festival circuit. It's going to be playing anywhere and everywhere. I know we're going to be playing in L.A. in January. The, the location is still being uh, worked out, but I know we're going to be there. Um, a guy just contacted me about doing something in March, so it's already rolling. We're already getting that rolling, and then once we have that initial like push – and we have that that theatrical premiere, then the Indiegogo is completely shut down. So right. anyone that wants an early copy, the only way to get it is to go to Indiegogo and to order one. And uh, we have a, an Indiegogo Bone Hill Road campaign. You can look up Bone Hill Road on Indiegogo, or you can go to the Bone Hill Road Facebook pages. There's links all over for it. And that's the only way to get a pre-advanced copy. Now, from there... I expect it to be out like maybe 10 months later on actual home video in this country, like nine or maybe 10 months. It'll be like, as Dream of Purple Neon hits October 17th from Unearthed Films, it hits everywhere. It's a, you know, you can get it at Best Buy, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, Walmart, (laughs) everywhere. Walmart, Dream of Purple Neon is a mind-blowing experience. I I mean, we are shoving a drill in someone's anus in Walmart. Yes! It's (laughs) horrifying. I love it. Uh, and then uh, six months after that, I'm hoping House of Forbidden Secrets finally hits. Unearthed Films has picked that one up as well. We've been through hell. Like I said, executive producer hell. It was like, God. So that's finally coming out after much fight. And then, um, and then uh, you know, Bone Hill Road was going to hit right after that. And, and I, but I, if you want an advanced copy, that's really the only way to get one. Uh, or you can see it at a theater if it happens to get close. And, and we'll keep everyone posted on that. That's about the best I can say. Uh, and once it, I think we're going to have a, a wider release with Bone Hill Road, though, because, you know, Dream Purple Neon was the most vile, horrific, splatter filled <laughs> movie I'd ever made in my. Uh, it's, the three B's are in prominence blood, breasts, and beasts everywhere. <laughs> they're, they're, it's a pickle party. It's, a, it's a, everything. There's naked everything in that movie. And uh, <laughs> on top of that, it's like, you guys know, it, it was a bloodbath. I mean, we just went <laughs> crazy in the gore department. I've never made a movie like And that's saying a lot. I've never made a movie that gory. And uh, I was like, yes, I am so proud. But uh, after, you know, all that blood, this one's a little more mainstream. And by mainstream, I don't mean on purpose mainstream. It's just a, I was telling a monster movie. It's a, it's a creature feature. It's, it's not, you know, I don't, I didn't want to take away from the werewolves by having just like arterial sprays, 12 miles high, like in, you know, dream purple neon. So I was like, well, we're going to have gore, but I want it to be important to the story. And I want it to revolve around what goes on with the creatures and really, the creatures were the focus here and, and the stuff that's going on in the story, you know, uh, you know, Gary Warner Kent's also in the movie. Who's done a million drive-in movies. And, uh, I love Gary's work, you know, from Schoolgirls and chains all the way to Satan's sadists. He's great. <laughs> and, uh, so he, he has something really cool going on. Linnea Quigley's got something cool going on and we've got a lot of really neat talent. Uh, Eli DeGear will blow your mind. I guarantee you've never seen her this good ever. She, put herself through hell and her performance is frightening. I mean, it is just frightening how good she is. And, uh, and I got blown away by the girl that's playing her daughter, uh, Anna Rojas Plumberg, and she is going to be a face to watch. And I'm not just saying this, this girl blew my mind. This movie I think will really surprise so many people. And I hope it surprises you guys, and I hope it, it lives up to what you think, because it is – there is not a dull moment. I, I watched it the other night again, and I'm like, oh, because I have to watch through to make notes, you know, notes, sure. after notes after notes. 
And I tell you what, this thing just punches you in the face from start to finish. It just goes wham, like it's a freight train. And it, and usually, you know, my movies are kind of epic. This one's like 86 minutes. <laughs> so that tells you it's pretty tight. I mean, it's, it's crammed in. We crammed in a lot of stuff in this little movie and yeah, I can't wait. I cannot wait to see the reaction to it. And, and I think you guys are going to, of course, you guys will be among the first to see it because, you know, as soon as I have it, you know, up there for the film festivals, then I can send you guys a copy to check out. Absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to that, Todd. We always look forward to your work. We always look forward to hearing what you have to say. Honestly, it's an honor that we get to talk to the great Todd Sheets. Uh, I'm so glad that you're still with us. I'm so glad that you're still working harder. And and uh, honestly, Bone Hill Road sounds like it's going to be, you know, to me, we've been uh, we've been deprived of great werewolf movies in recent years. There's been too much CG. There's been too much nonsense around it. We I think everyone's been clamoring for a good old fashioned werewolf uh, horror fest. And uh, and I'm glad that you're going to be the one bringing it to us. I'm I'm sure going to try. I mean, I, I agree with you. I saw one just last night, Lycan, and I'm like, yeah, let's check it out. Not a werewolf in the damn thing. Why Why are you marketing this as a werewolf movie? It's not a werewolf movie, and I was mad, and I was just, you know, I, I'm I'm so there, there have been some good ones, you know, in recent years, a few like Howl. I enjoyed. I sure. enjoyed Late mm. Face. I, the werewolf was kind of weird looking, but I, I thought it was a cool movie. Yeah, they There's, went with a weird Skinwalker kind of thing for that one. Yeah, with Late Phases. Yeah, like looks like a bat in the face. Or right, something. right, right. Exactly. Yeah, it was really weird. I thought, well, it kind of looks like a critter in a way in the face, kind of like a, <laughs> one of those critters guys grew up into a werewolf. But I, I, you know, whatever. It's the director's choice. I still just enjoyed it for what it was. But you know, I loved Wolf Cop. That's not really a werewolf movie. <laughs> so uh, you know, I'm I'm like, yes, I have to do this, and so I, that's what we did. And then Clown NATO, you mentioned that is coming up. So I mean, we've got some interest in that, some major interest. The more, the merrier, I will say. Look, Todd Sheets is more than just some guy that loves making these trashy B-movies. He is what I would call a, a micro-budget god who doesn't always work with micro-budget movies anymore, uh, but still pumping out the, the work that, that we love and that we know that our listeners love. Todd, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to Mo and myself and for christening No Budget Nightmares on its 100th episode. I am so proud of you guys. You guys are what it's about. You and all your listeners, you are what it's about. You're the reason I'm still making movies. For real. Well, we, we we're not we're not going to take all the credit, but we'll take well, I think we'll take half the credit. What do you think, Mo? <laughs> well, I'll take I'll, I'll personally take 35%, sure. All right. Mo will take 35. I'll take the You know what? I'll take another 35 and you can have the rest, Todd. Is that sound all right by you? That sounds good. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> you getting flashbacks to that executive producer again? <laughs> you don't even know. I I have a horror movie about that. <laughs> Todd, thanks again so much. We appreciate it. And and keep on making movies, please, just for us. Please do so. You got it. Thank you, guys. No problem. Have a good one. You too. All right, Mo. I feel like we've been blessed by the man himself. It's true, you know, and... Like, and I want to, I want to put it out there to Todd, you know, thank him again for, for coming on the show and thank him for his, you know, support and friendship, you know, over the years. Cause he's been a really good friend to the show and, you know, to, to me and you on a personal level as well. Again, it's just one of those relationships that have come from recording this podcast, right? We, we've managed to make these connections with different filmmakers who, who have become 
close to us and through social media and other uh, mediums. It's just really been really interesting to see uh, that kind of community that is built around it. And speaking of community, Absolutely. you know, I certainly wanted to, uh, to to do a shout out to the No Budget Nightmares community, whether it be on Twitter or Facebook or, or really anywhere else. When people, you know, promote the show, when they put it out there into the world, you're helping Mo, you're helping myself, but you're also just putting the word out for the kind of work that we do. You're making sure that it's worthwhile. And I really, really appreciate it. You know, just the the conversations that occur over on the Facebook page and uh, yep. and on Twitter, it, it really is heartening. You know, it helps make it make it feel like we're not just shouting into a void, which uh, sometimes it can feel that way. Yeah. <laughs> but Mo, we've got that mushy stuff out of the way. We've got our interviews out of the way. And now it's yes. the part of the show we've all been waiting for. The top 10 episodes of No Budget Nightmares, the podcast, Mo. This is 100 if someone was trying to get into our history, if they wanted to know what it was all about, they need to know what the top 10 are, don't you think? Yeah. Let's start with you, Mo. Is that okay? Let's start with your number 10, and then we'll go to my number 10, and we'll go back and forth. How does that sound? Yeah, we can do Bo- that. Mine are actually in not in any particular order. Well, I, they I, have I, to be in order, Mo. Well, they're not. So I didn't rank them. This is just movies that I listed, you know, so to speak. So these are just 10 Good episodes of No Budget Nightmares, according to Mo Porn. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's hear one. Uh, so you know what? I'll, I'll go around the list because there. I mean, I have a general idea of where they should be, but maybe. But don't consider this like a hard, you know, order. <laughs> no, here. no one's gonna hold your feet to the fire on this one, Mo. Just They're going to. They, I know. <laughs> trust me. I know our audience. They are going to. All anyway. right. All right. Let's hear it. Number ten. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, number ten. Uh, I went with a uh, maybe one that people wouldn't necessarily expect me to pick. Uh, I went with Jennifer Help Us. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that was uh, by one of our Patreon subscribers. They actually chose that for us to watch, and they were the directors of that movie. It's, uh, you know, it, it was one of those movies, like the visuals in it. I fucking loved it. I loved the plot. I thought it was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very little about that movie that I didn't like, and honestly, I think it's one of the better movies that we've covered. Well, I'm going to start my top 10 with episode number 32. We just referred to it a few minutes ago. It's Goblin with special guest Todd Sheets. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, if we're talking episodes in particular, yes, Goblin is is a great one to have there because of the Todd Sheets interview. Absolutely. And, of course, that's also a movie that, you know, is pretty memorable for reasons beyond maybe its own qualities. Right. Exactly. All right. Moving on, Mo. Uh, moving on. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, another, maybe not so expected one, but maybe a little bit more expected if you know a little, if you know about me. Sure. Um, and I'm going to go with Order of One. Oh, Kung Fu Killing Spree. Kung Fu Killing Spree. Such a fucking hilarious, fun movie. Uh, one of the very few movies that I was, that I had written, you know, reviews for prior to watching. Sure. Um, just a weird little gem and uh, it's like a, just such a blast of a movie. My episode number nine, Mo. Sorry. Yes, my episode number nine on this top ten list. Episode nine. Wait, let me say this in a way that doesn't make me sound like a fucking idiot. <laughs> my number nine on my top ten list, Mo, is episode number four. That's right. Going all the way back to episode number four of No Budget Nightmares. It's Las Vegas Bloodbath. I feel like it's the first episode where we really kind of hit on something, where we felt like we were really doing something a little bit different than the other podcasts that I was at least listening to at the time. 
Well, we had, yeah, I was going to say, because we had three back-to-back failures. Yeah. You know, like, not necessarily in terms of the episodes. I mean, I it's like, I think we've, we've had 99 back-to-back failures. Uh-huh. As far as, but, uh, <laughs> we've had an unbroken streak of failures. Yeah, we have, we have a, our streak is unprecedented. <laughs> but, um... No, Las Vegas Bloodbath is on my list as well, and I and I agree. There's there it, there's so many classic lines in that movie that I still I still quote that movie. Yeah, me too, all, all the time. Like Ruthie loved oil wrestling is <laughs> like one of my go to. Um, yeah, it was a super fun movie. It was yeah, and you're right. It was one of the first movies that we covered that uh, that really felt right. Right. What's your next one, Mo? Well, go 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 to your next one because my because we'll just say my next one was Las Vegas Bloodbath. Oh, okay. Well, my yeah. next one is a little more recent. Mo. In fact, it's very recent. My number eight is episode number ninety-two, Heavy Metal Massacre. Nice. I love that episode. That movie is very interesting for all sorts of different reasons, and uh, some of those accents in that movie are <laughs> are unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I no, I can I can certainly agree with that one. It's uh, it didn't make my list, but it's. It's a real ridiculous movie. What's up for you next, Mo? Uh, yeah, let's go here. Uh, we'll go uh, <laughs> slightly more well-known uh, movie. We'll go with the Astron 6 Manborg. Oh, Manborg. Classic episode of Nobody's Nightmares. Mm. It was nice to get something that was good, like like just solid all the way through. Right, That we right. could be unequivocally positive about. Yeah. It's it's funny. I actually think that sometimes we're we have a, a more solid episode when we have a better movie, which I don't think that's always the case for a lot of podcasts. No, you got a lot of podcasts out there. It's it's honestly it's like the the more shit they have to complain about, the better the episode in their mind at the very least. But no, I I agree. I think I think our show strives on quality, and we do. And not necessarily that we don't strive on quality, but <laughs> you know the show does, and we definitely put out better episodes when we have better movies to talk about. My number seven, Mo. Neil Breen's "I Am Here." Dot 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 dot. dot, 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 dot. <laughs> now, I was like, I mean, my fingers are very close right now. I was this close to putting that on mine. I, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, a big fan of how ridiculous Neil Breen's movies are, and I will uh, say that one, I believe, it really feels like that one is under. Loved and doesn't get a, enough attention compared to some of his other movies, right? Because because a lot of the credit, I mean, a lot of the the interest always ends up going to Double Down. But I right. like which could have made our list as well. By the way, it could have easily made our list as well. Uh, it it didn't for mine either. But uh, yeah, I am here now is such a joy. <laughs> What's next, Mo? Next on mine, uh, let's go with another known classic. Bad Taste. Ooh, Bad Taste, the Peter Jackson classic. Peter Jackson classic. That is That's another such... one where we were we were positive about all the way through. Right. I mean, you know, not only is it a, is it a great movie, but you know, it's it has so many interesting and fun things to talk about. Um again, you know, uh Thoroughly, like I mean, honestly, a lot of my list based is based on how quotable the movie is. Sure, um, but I mean, even just Derek's "Don't Run" is yeah. enough. You know, it's <laughs> just a just a, a blast of a movie. I Suck really... my spitting steel, shithead. <laughs> exactly. Mo, my number six. I don't know if this one appeared on your list, but it's also a fairly recent one. It's episode number eighty-one. 
Tim Ritter's killing spree. I I was I mean I remember how I said I made a list of fifteen and I cut uh-huh. some of them off. Yeah, killing spree was one of the ones I cut off. I probably shouldn't have, but I did. Um, it is yeah, it's a fantastic fantastic movie, and, and it was a fun episode to do. I w- I just want to throw out here, Mo, before we continue into our uh, our, our list, that I threw out to fans of the show what episodes that they most enjoyed. And we did get a kind of a, a variety of responses, which is good, by the way. It's kind of heartening to see people, yeah. you know, who liked all sorts of different things. Um, and one that got a, a little bit of a shout out uh, consistently was our uh, David Rock Nelson Devil Ant episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which I yeah. thought was really interesting. Uh, it just That's an episode that did not make my own list, but one that I have a lot of affinity for. Yeah, yeah, it didn't make money yeah, either, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that that yeah that that one honestly was a little too tedious. Um, <laughs> you know, not the movie itself. The movie is so ridiculous that it was almost kind of fun. But the but talking actual, about it is yeah. yeah yeah it's like the watching of the movie and the taking of the notes and getting through all of the other features and all of that stuff. <laughs> it was super tedious, so it it didn't make my list. All right. What's next for you, Mo? Uh, up next, let's go with one of my favorite movies of all time. You know, and so happy that we got to cover this because it's a movie that holds a very special place in my heart. And that movie is the Canucksploitation classic, <laughs> Things. Things. Things solidly at your number six, Mo. Solidly. Might- at my number six. We might be seeing that again before the list is complete. <laughs> <laughs> because we're moving into the top five. This is my top five episodes, Mo, of No Budget Nightmares. I'm starting at episode number 22. It's a classic. It is the one... When I think about our show, it might be the title that comes to mind first. It is Bill Zabub's Ant Farm Dickhole. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You know, I was really close to adding that one. I didn't, but man, <laughs> like just the title alone. Well, was, I mean, that's it, right? It's yeah. a title that that paints a picture. You know, it's, it's like that old um, comedy routine by Patton Oswalt about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being the best title of a movie ever because right. every word just puts a picture in your head of what you're about to expect, and then it delivers. And from yeah. Dickhole doesn't necessarily deliver, but that title is one for the ages. <laughs> it sure is. What's up, Mo? I feel like you're going to have one extra movie than me, because this is technically my number four. Okay. Is that the number, is that the number we should be on? I think we should be on number five, but uh, but that's okay. Keep going. Yeah, I was going to say, I only have four left. Did so. I have you start? Did I have you yeah, go yeah, first? You did, yeah, you know what? You did have me start. So yeah, this, okay. would, this would be So yeah, you're four. supposed to be number four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So number four, although not, not a hard four, but you know, there. <laughs> um, the ridiculous over-the-top classic Redneck Zombies. Oh, that's beautiful. The trauma classic, Red trauma Red classic. Uh, that's an episode. That's a great episode. That's actually one of the few movies that uh, I had watched a number of times before right. we recorded our episode. My number four, Mo, is another one of my favorites. This time, I can not only recommend the episode but also the film that we cover on it. It's the WNUF Halloween Special, also on my list. Oh, and also referred to in our Lonnie Martin interview. Mm-hmm. 
So what's up for number three? We're in the top three, Mo. This is getting very exciting. Well, my, my number three would be the WNUF Halloween special. Sweet! I, I have a very f- good f- idea that our number two and number one may be the same movies. So it'd well, be real interesting to see where this goes. I think I think you're probably right. I'll just say yeah. right away, my number three is that exploitation movie you mentioned earlier. It's Things. It's our oh. episode number 66. Things is such a good movie. It's great. It's a fucking great great example of exactly the sort of batshit crazy stuff that we we cover on no budget nightmares will will you have my baby no i'm not gonna have your baby fucking ridiculous (laughs) i love that i fucking love that movie so much (laughs) sorry i'm thinking of that monologue where he talks about the kid being fatter than a fridge (laughs) (laughs) anyway this is it mo top two top two all right. Uh, probably, you know, pr- not n- not the most classic of our episodes. That's what I'm reserving for our number one. But probably mm-hmm. the most important movie oh, to yes. the show ever. And I, are, I have a feeling you already know what I'm about to say. I, you know what? I think our two and one are going to be exactly the same. Yeah. So my number two, without a doubt, is The Dead Next Door. Interesting. That is not where I went. Oh, no. no? Number, Dead Next Door is the most important movie for us to ever cover. I mean, it's true. It, yeah. it absolutely changed our fate, so to speak. Uh, and and it, it, it opened a lot of doors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, that one did not make my list at all, uh, which is surprising. But I will say, Mo, that my number two also is a movie that I think of it as the Rosetta Stone for no budget nightmares. It's the kind of one that you need to have to understand so much of what came after. It's all the way back to episode number 19. It's Suburban Sasquatch. Ah, see, that's my number one. Oh. Yeah. So, what could Doug's number one be? Oh, you know what? I know exactly what your fucking number <laughs> one is. <laughs> you shits. <laughs> I know exactly what your fucking number one is. <laughs> Moe's number one is episode number 19, Suburban Sasquatch. My episode number one came 10 episodes later. It's, of course, the Canuxploitation classic from 89 or 91, depending. (laughs) It is Science Crazed. Science Crazed. Which somehow did not make your top 10, Mo, at all. It didn't didn't make my top 10. Now, that doesn't mean I don't fucking love science crazed it's just it didn't it didn't make um it didn't make my list i will say if you know me that was a no-brainer it really it really was <laughs> I, I don't know brainer on no budget yeah like i don't know why i forgot about that when we were getting when we got down to the final two i i knew yours should have been <sighs> science crazed science crazed mo We're finishing up here on our special 100th episode spectacular. But before Mm -hmm. we do, we need to talk about the five worst films ever covered on No Budget Nightmares. And let me just say to the people who are listening right now, this might be your first episode. If you made it this far, congratulations to you. Yeah, right. Uh, But also, when we say that these are the five worst or among the five worst that we watched on No Budget Nightmares, this is not a bad movie podcast, but these are among... Five of the worst movies that have ever been made. Right. I mean, now, I think that we can say that without any reservations at all. This is not your room. This is not your Birdemic. This is not your Plan 9 from Outer Space. Mm-mm. This is a different category of movie. No. I mean, like, movies like The Room, like Birdemic, as you mentioned, like Troll 2, that's that sort of shit. 
Those movies are fun. Yeah, those are fun. <laughs> yeah, they're bad, but they're fun. <laughs> These movies were no fun at all. There's a tediousness to, and again, people people sometimes say to me, you know, you know, what's even worse than an awful movie, like a really bad movie, is just an average movie, right? Yeah, because there's nothing to be excited is, about. Is rough, yeah. but there's another level beyond that, mm-hmm. which is tedious, which yep. is you know where you feel exhausted watching it simply because. There's nothing to grab onto. There's nothing to enjoy. There's nothing to appreciate or even to hate because there's nothing there, right? Absolutely. So let's talk about five movies that fit into that category for me. I will say, by the way, that when I was first thinking of this list, Women's Studies was on the list. But after talking to Lonnie Martin, after hearing his explanation, I felt like it wasn't fair to include that, so it's been removed. But let uh, let me not split hairs. <laughs> Women's Studies is a very, very poor movie, yep. and its themes are very fucking weird and unintentionally offensive to me. No, and even on top of that, look, I mean, like, yeah, we got to know the director, or you did, I should say, and I mean, me to a lesser extent, <laughs> you know, and, and we got to talk to him, and he seems like a great guy, but that doesn't change. It doesn't change how That's we feel exactly about the movie, right. yeah. So I, I made this list, Mo, uh, because you uh, decided that you had better things to do. <laughs> yeah, I did. I had better things. No, I, honestly, like, I was going to run through and, and do a list, but I said, well, just just let me know what you have. And then you read off your list to me, and I'm like, yeah, that's, those are the exact five I would have picked. So I will say that I Science Craze is not on this list, uh, though it could be depending on the kind of viewer that you are. I enjoy watching Science Craze because... Mm. Of just trying to think about the mind that would have made a movie like that and how it possibly right. came into existence, but in terms of ponderousness and and difficulty in watching it, I actually think Science Crazed might be the peak of that. But it's because it's the peak, it actually makes it more entertaining to me. Right, exactly. So I'm going to start with our mind number five. This one might be slightly controversial. It's actually our third episode ever. It's the summer of the massacre. Now, well, I now put explain on- to me explain to me why this would be controversial, because this was a shit movie. It's a shit movie. It's very, very poor. But on a technical level, look, on a technical level, it's, it is absolutely poor. But we certainly covered movies that are worse technically. Yeah, that but said, a beautiful piece of shit is still a piece of shit. One of the things <laughs> I hate most, and I'm going to use that word hate, about The Summer of the Massacre is how lazy it is. And that's right. something we are, we you know, to me, I can... If someone does not have a lot of resources available to them and the acting isn't very good and maybe the writing isn't what it could be, that's one thing. But when someone is obviously not putting the effort in, that's another level of disappointment for me. To me, it's like that, that, then you're, you're insulting me, the viewer, because you just were not willing to put the effort in. Well, I mean, I think, I think you and I as film watchers are very forgiving Absolutely. To, to, to movies if they seem like the people who were making them had a lot of fun. Doing it, you know, and I, I think of movies like Wrath of the Skunk Ape, you know, which <laughs> is a bad movie, but they had, they must have had so much fucking fun making that movie that, you know, we, we you got to give them some credit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is a movie for those who haven't seen it. It includes a number of spelling and grammatical errors in the text <laughs> starting like really visible, obvious errors. Right. And this was directed by an editor of a horror movie magazine. Uh, just no excuse at all for that sort of laziness. And the fact that nobody saw it and was like, hey, maybe you should fix that. I mean, it's inexcusable. Exactly. Number four on my list, Mo. 
This uh, this is a classic episode of <laughs> I will say, by the way, uh, just going back to our previous list, we shouldn't do this, but I wanted to give a quick shout out to Die Hard Dracula, which is another episode of our show that I really, really enjoyed. This yeah. That doesn't quite belong on this list. It really doesn't because it's too entertaining. But that that's one that I really do recommend. But something I don't recommend is episode number 68, Mo. It was uh, recommended by a viewer of ours to watch. It is Killer Clowns from Kansas on Crack. You know, 2017 is like the year of the Killer Clown, Mo. But uh, if you're going to be watching uh, Killer Clowns from Kansas on Crack, you will not get your Pennywise satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a pretty colossal piece of shit. I do actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I do have one more movie that I know you're gonna you're gonna kick yourself for for forgetting. But I'll I'll, I'll do it as an honorable mention after the fact. Okay. Yeah. Well, my next on the list, number three. Please. Episode number 15 of No Budget Nightmares. Both Mo and myself had a very visceral negative reaction to... Yes, we did. Gorno, an American tragedy. <laughs> Which was great when we got to talk to the guys who made it, who I'm yeah. still friends with, at least one yeah. of them. I, I Maybe even both of them on Facebook. You know, And they're great guys. They, have, they had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. The movie's still fucking terrible. I mean, and really, it's the kind of movie when you're watching it, you're just groaning at, at some of the things that happen within it. Right, um, right. I, and, I, like, I, I will have vivid memories of my in my entire life of the Hollywood reveal of the kid with the fucking refrigerator who <laughs> looks up into the room and there is his parent hanging from the kitchen ceiling, or, you yeah. know, like, ah, oh, It's, uh, it, I... <laughs> it's it's the definition of a movie that is trying too hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's also edgelord to the extreme. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I, I do I do truly believe that anybody who's been following this show for a long time already knows what our what our number 2 and number 1 are. They have to. Uh, maybe. Yeah, if you're a regular listener, yeah. this should not be surprise you too much. In fact, no. I'm just going to jump to number 2. Our number 2 is the movie covered on this very uh, special episode of No Budget Nightmares, yep. it's Hip Hop Locos from the year 2001. Look, I thought it was going to get easier. Uh, I I remember uh, putting that forward as the subject of our very first episode, Mo, because up to that point, it was the worst movie I had ever seen. And I was like, this will keep people interested because they probably never heard of it. It remains in the top two all of these years later. Yeah, we have, yeah we're doing the show for six years, 100 episodes, and... I mean, really, honestly, it was only relatively recently that it got knocked out of the number one spot, Uh huh. you know, by our number one spot. <laughs> the number one. Actually, before we get to number one, Mo, let's hear your honorable mention. What did I miss? A movie so boring and devoid of anything happening that you probably forgot we even covered it. A film called Human Behavior. Oh, human behavior. <laughs> That's right. It was so boring. It was so fucking boring that it makes me laugh because you forget about it every time I bring it up. And you're That's like, true. Oh, my, Honestly, even though I, I remember that we covered it, I don't remember anything about the plot. At I don't all. remember a fucking thing about it at all. I mean, like, like there are other there's a lot of movies that we've covered that I don't remember much about the movie itself, but I remember the experience of how I, you know, of, of watching it, whether I enjoyed it or disliked it or was, you know, confused about something or whatever. Human behavior was so fucking boring and so not there 
I don't remember a fucking thing about it. You know, I mean, I, I, you're, you know what? You're right, Mo. That is like the biggest uh, frustration and insult, really, that yeah. we could say is that it is so unmemorable that we couldn't even remember it enough to put on a list of the worst movies we ever yeah, covered. Yeah, and I remembered it. I remembered it. Remembered, remembered it, it. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I remembered it as an afterthought. What? What? Well, you know what? <laughs> you know what isn't an afterthought, Mo? Oh no! This this one hurt. That's interesting. Like it, this number one is way more memorable than the movie we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. Human be something or other. <laughs> <laughs> Human be Anthony. Yeah. I will say the worst movie we have ever covered on No Budget Nightmares, and I would put forward as potentially the worst movie ever made. And look, I'm putting it out there, all seriousness, is episode number seventy-seven, Nightmare Museum. Nightmare fucking museum. A Which, Barbie porno movie. Barbie porno, except not nearly as interesting as that makes it sound. Nope. Absolutely. Look, I don't use that word unwatchable often. But I will say, and even when I use it, I'm usually using it in an exaggerated fashion. I will yeah. tell you, Nightmare Museum is an unwatchable movie. It's unfucking watchable It is such garbage. And, yeah. and and again, it's not garbage that's fun to talk about. I know that no. there are some people out there, some sadists, <laughs> who, who think of Nightmare Museum as their favorite episode because they can hear how dejected and upset both Mo and myself are <laughs> by having to watch that fucking piece of garbage. But I'll tell you, the only joy I have in my life is knowing I'll never have to watch Nightmare Museum again. Yep. And I will never, yeah. I mean, like, like I've had people ask me, like, what's the worst fucking movie? What's the worst movie you've ever you've ever seen? And like, not too long ago, within you know, like several years back, I would have had to have thought about it because I've seen movies in my personal life that are worse than Hip Hop Locos. Sure, you know. So like, Hip Hop Locos doesn't make my top five for worst movies I've seen ever. You know, Nightmare Museum. It's probably my number one. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a different category. It absolutely it's it's its own category. So I think we can safely say we don't recommend Nightmare Museum, but we do recommend nope. listening to our episodes uh, that we have listed here. You know, Mo, the the other thank you I want to throw out before we finish up here is to you. Uh, you know, Mo and I were not friends when we started. This podcast, and we've nope. joked a lot about the fact that we really only converse about no budget nightmares. Uh, For the most not, part, yeah. You know, it's it's not usually social calls, but uh, I'll tell you, I, I feel lucky to have gotten to know you. I feel like, by the way, that this show is even though some people they get annoyed by my voice and my laugh and all that sort of stuff, and rightfully so, <laughs> that this podcast doesn't work without you as the counterbalance on it between my annoying sounds and my annoying thoughts. So uh, I just wanted to say that I, I'm really grateful to have been able to spend the six years with you. Well, I, I always, oh, and I, I thank you. I appreciate that. I really do. Let me, let me get that out of the way first. I re- I do appreciate that. Um, I, I, I forget who said it best. Somebody at one point described uh, our relationship on the show as you were the brain of the show and I was the gut, <laughs> you know, which, which is both very, visually accurate but all but also like kind of both the gut (laughs) well yeah it's true we're both big guys you know but uh but like yeah like you you tend to be way more cerebral and me i'm just sort of like i just 
I feel the movies and I throw and I throw it up on the microphone basically. <laughs> I'll tell you, it, it's it's a sad statement about the kind of podcast that this is that I could ever be described as cerebral on it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, again, it's it's the kind of balance that. Come on, uh, Triple H, you're the, you're the cerebral <laughs> assassin, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm just murdering our podcast again and again. <laughs> But there are a few other thank yous I want to throw out there too, Mo, uh, including to Matt Farley, uh, the the genius behind our theme song. Uh, we've stuck yeah. with it for a really long time. Uh, he's also a listener of the show, which actually I really appreciate as well. Thank you, Matt. And a great for guy. Really great guy. And one of yeah. the most talented people on planet Earth. Like, really it's insane. incredible. It's absolutely fucking insane how, how talented he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Lucas Rue Raymond, uh, who was the genius who contributed so much music to uh, past episodes of No Budget Nightmares. Uh, again, another musical genius, someone who has provided so much free content to us. Right. Uh, and an incredible guy, just a super, super nice guy and someone that uh, we're glad to have in the No Budget Nightmares family. He he relayed to me a story once, uh, and, and I, I I think I can safely tell this without getting in trouble, <laughs> um, that... <laughs> That Tim, uh, no, no, uh, John McBride, yes, um, liked his Cannibal Campout song so much that he made a music video for it. <laughs> uh, so search the web somewhere. I'm sure it's on John McBride's uh, YouTube page. But on top of that, also occasionally visits Rue's SoundCloud page and leaves comments on his songs. <laughs> so if you're ever listening to one of Rue's songs on his SoundCloud page and just, and one of the little comments pops up and a little picture looks like John McBride, it is. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just, it, again, I was always in awe of the music that he created for us. So I was yeah, really he, glad yeah, I, I, you know, show. like, like I, I, on like legitimately and honestly every now and again will pop on the playlist yeah on absolutely. his soundcloud page of the songs he's written for the show and i'm just in awe they're all oh, they're so good i also want to give uh, some final shout outs to uh, dailygrindhouse.com which is where our podcast started uh if you listen to those early episodes you know we, we say daily grindhouse presents we then moved on from that uh our our, our, our new shows show up on dorkshelf.com we want to thank them for promoting the show and getting it out there in front of uh, in front of people and into their ears. Um, Honestly, and- I think the biggest thank you that we need to give for David Daily Grindhouse was helping us out when we were going through our. You know that that's absolutely when we had our legal issue. Yeah. I mean, we can just talk about it. when when Joe Castro threatened to sue us yeah. over and over, and then they took over basically the burden of that. Yeah, um, they they handled that really fantastically. Yeah. So I mean, again, there's a lot of people who have helped make this show what it is, but um, you know who deserves the most credit is myself and Mo because we're we're great. We're so great. Oh, we're fantastic. <laughs> yes. Who's so, better than us? No one. So I guess the question that everyone is wondering, Mo, is what. Next. Oh, you mean for the next episode? No, man. What's next? Um, I don't know. All right. I guess. I, much much like every other episode of this show, I have given it no thought. <laughs> <laughs> Mo and I, we need to buckle down. We need to map out what the next hundred episodes of No Budget Nightmares is going to look like. The sky is the limit, and the ground is not nearly as far down as we can go. We can go right to the center <laughs> of the earth we need to search the, the gems mo we need to we need to dig the gems out we need to search for them and 
perhaps one day we'll find something worse than Nightmare Museum, but it's not what we're searching for. We want to see well, some micro-budget goodness I, out there. I think, that, I think that now that we're at the 100-episode mark, I think we can safely start, not regularly, <laughs> but every now and again, incorporating a sequel <laughs> into oh. the movies we cover, because I don't think we've covered one yet. I think you're right, Mo. We're gonna, we're gonna. It's time for us to dig into some untread territory. We're gonna do something. Yeah. We're gonna, we're gonna take chances because why not? We've, we've gone through a lot of the luminaries. We've, we've developed relationships with some of them. It's time for us to take things into strange new areas. And I hope, listeners, that you will join Mo and myself as we head into the future. No budget nightmares. The next generation. <laughs> <laughs> Make it so, number one. All right. All right, Mo. But, Mo, I think it's time. After all of this, you managed to stay awake for two and a half hours, Mo. I appreciate I it. Yeah. I'm sure the listeners I do. Have, I do have one last thing to say. You know what Please. I think we need to... I, you know what I think we need to redouble our efforts in finding? What's that? A film that we have been talking about since the first couple of months of the show. <laughs> I think you know what I'm about to say. Let's hear it. I think we need to finally find a copy of... Pantheon Black. Pantheon Black. I'm going to track it down for you, Mo. I'm going to make it happen. We're going to watch it on this podcast of ours, whatever it's called. <laughs> Part of, Pod- of No Nightmares. Part of No Budget Nightmares, the next generation will be Pantheon Black and so much more. But for now, Mo, I think it's time to say goodnight and, uh, and we will return before you know it, listeners. Good night, folks. Tillium porn will find a way Through the movies that they watch each day They suffer so that we don't need to They're the shield that we can see through The show it has the budget of The movies that they watch and love Well, love might be a little far I'm sure they're being driven to the To drink the pain away And live to watch another day Will they stumble home to sleep Beneath their branded Tachi cheats There's one thing that I know for sure The movies and their hearts are pure A choking scene goes on too long As Anoki and Ki they sing their song As Tala aims for a Sasquatch head We killed them, we ate them, and dead is dead The lesbians are middle-aged Despite what movie titles say How my nuts, how my nuts You hear the bad director say Get out and spare the souls Before the ant farm finds their dick holes You'd think their lives were living pornos Then they have to discuss Gorno Tilly offers smart critique Mo is honest when they breathe There's one thing that I know for sure The movies and their hearts are What they see will stink of beauty now and then Let's hope that no one photoshops your head On the bodies of more hot gay
sure The movies and their hearts are pure